Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff-Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on June 11th, 2021. The time right now, 9.55 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We have a free roll. A free roll we do every week. This already started at 9.40, but you still have another 10 minutes to get into the No Fraud Online Poker Room where it takes place. You can find it near the top of the screen. We are giving away $50 this week, 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. This money came from Rumdick, a forum poster, and we also have another 50 from him for next week. So I thank him for that. As I said, 25 minutes of late registration, so that started at 940 before the show, but you still have until 10.05 Pacific time to get in there. And never a big field because we start so late and because most of our listenership is in the archives. So you have a decent chance to win the money, even though it's only three places that pay. I will send you the money by Zelle, by Cash App, by Bank Transfer, by Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. The only way I won't send Bitcoin is if the fees are too high. I'm not going to send you a $25 prize if the fees are $15. That wouldn't make any sense, even if you want it. I'm just not going to do it. And I can send it to you one of other ways you might be able to think of, of ways people transfer money on the internet and have for a long time. We're going to talk about a payment service tonight. So this is Real Cash Money. We do this every week on Poker Fraud Alert. To my knowledge, there is not another poker or gambling show which does this, at least not a weekly show. So I believe we are the only poker show in the world, maybe even the only gambling show in the world that has a weekly free roll like this. And we've been doing this for our entire existence of over nine years. And just about all the money comes from our listeners. And I appreciate that very much. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. That phone number is 702-430-1808, That is located on the top of Mount Charleston in a cabin about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. Vegas is going to be really hot this week. It's going to get up to 116 degrees in this upcoming week. But Mount Charleston will probably be about 80 or 75. It's like 30 degrees at least cooler than Vegas at just about all times, sometimes even more. Only about a 40-minute drive from Vegas to get there. It's a nice place to go to take a break from the heat during the summer and you can ski there during the winter in Mount Charleston. We have our phone line there in a cabin. I've shown you guys a picture of the phone before. Maybe I'll post it again in case some of you missed it. 702-430-1808 is that number into the show. If you do call the show, try to call in between segments. Otherwise, there's a good chance I won't take your call because otherwise it interrupts things. The call to listen line is a number you can call anytime because that is a number you call just to listen. You can't interact on that line, but you can listen And it does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require the internet, does not require an app. It doesn't use any data. It's just a simple phone call. That's all it is. It's an old school, simple phone call that any device that can make a phone call to the U.S. can do. And it's free as long as you can call the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it's one cent a minute, which I don't get. Wish I did, but I don't. They keep it. They greedily keep it. The phone number to the call to listen line is 605-313-0736. 
605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. The alternate call to listen line is 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095 is the alternate call to listen line. They both work the same way. You just call, you listen. It never buffers. It never freezes. I guarantee you that. Unlike most streaming on the internet, this one just works and never freezes up. And when we're not live, you can call that line and listen to reruns that it picks at random, that it runs throughout the week until we come back on the air. You can also listen by going to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com near the top of the screen. We have a player there which works with all devices. You also can use the TuneIn app to listen live. And if you want to catch the show in the archives in podcast format, which most of you do, most of you don't listen live, but if you want to listen in the archives, we have a lot of ways to do it. We have iTunes, we have Google Podcasts, we have TuneIn, which can be used for the live show and for the podcast format. There's two entries in there, as you'll notice. Stitcher, we're supported on there. Spotify, iHeartMedia, two very huge podcasting apps we are on those. The Bullhorn app, which is a smaller app, but actually has its own call to listen line to listen to the archives. And you may want to check that one out. All this stuff is free. I would never put this on an app that costs money. They have some premium modes you can use, but these are all free to use to listen to the show. Or if you want to listen to the archives, you can just go to the Radio Archives Forum on PokerFraudAlert.com and you'll see an MP3 file of every single show, which you can download or you can just click on it and it'll play automatically on every device I know of without any external player. So a lot of ways I give you to listen to the show if you want another, please let me know. I'll see if I can add it. There's a chat room we have. It no longer requires Flash. It will work with any device. All you need is a Poker Fraud Alert account on the forum in good standing. It's different than the Poker Fraud Alert Poker Room, the No Fraud Online Poker Room. That's a different account altogether. But the forum will not only let you access the forum, it'll let you access the chat room. So you just click chat, you get right in, and... Really, only during the live show it's useful. During the archives, there's nobody in there. And I don't actively read it because I'm doing so many things at once here. I am the one who runs everything here. I run the technical aspect of the show. I do the sound effects. I have to talk the whole time. I have to pay attention to what I'm talking about. I have to read things on my screen. So I have a lot of things going on at once, and the chat room is just too much for me to keep track of. So I will look at it every so often. And you can chat with others during the live show, or you can just type something in there, and eventually I will probably see it. If you want to text the show, the phone number is 775-372-8355. Same as the main number, 775-372-8355. You can text me anytime, anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 775-372-8355. If you text me during the show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the very beginning of the text. So I think that's about it before we get to the agenda, and then we will get going. Trader Ruski said he will not be on at the beginning, as has been the case for the last few months. He'll see if he can call in when he wakes up in the morning. And Brandon, probably the same thing. You may be wondering, are we going to do a Sharif segment this week? I presume, but we'll see if he's communicating with Brandon when the show is going on. I know those are very popular segments. I know you guys are waiting to see what happens next. Here's the agenda this week. We have a big agenda. Last week I said, you know, we just don't have very much to talk about. And then Brandon came on and we ended up talking for a while anyway, and the show ended up uh, fairly long. But as far as the topics we had, 
none were very long, and there weren't that many of them. This week is the opposite. In the same amount of time, just a lot of stuff happened. As I was watching as the week's going on, I go, wow, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Because I just kept noticing things over and over and over again to talk about. And there were even a few things I noticed today when preparing for the show that I didn't even know were happening that I also felt I needed to talk about. So this, we have probably enough material for two shows here with all the topics we have. So I don't know how much time we'll even have to add further Vegas topics. Now, a few of these are, are Vegas topics, but really for the most part, it's just poker topics and I don't know how much that uh, we'll even have time for the Brandon Vegas topics because we have a lot to do. We have a whole lot to do. So here's the agenda and then we'll get going. Two Mike Postle stories this week. The first one involves Veronica Brill, who did a show, a YouTube show, with Mike Postle's ex-wife, who basically got on there for an hour and talked trash about Postle. I know a lot of people have requested that they want to hear me talk about it. And of course, I can't ignore this topic. This is something I have to talk about. I know that Mike Postle sued me. I know that this lawsuit has been dismissed. He could even file another lawsuit against me because it was dismissed without prejudice. And I have a $27,000 judgment for attorney's fees against him. So I have that too, which has not been collected. But despite that, this is something I can't ignore and I have to talk about. But you may be surprised what I have to say about it. So that'll be our lead story. And our second story is also about Mike Postle. He filed a document in court which basically just bashed Veronica and her attorney, Mark Randazza. And this was filed ahead of the upcoming hearing, which will be on the 16th, for Veronica's attorney's fees. Now, we already had this hearing, but Veronica's hearing is coming on the 16th. And this document was filed by Postle in advance of that. And I'll read you a lot of it. And it's very bizarre. Let me say that. A Venmo hacker has been targeting poker pros. You probably know this if you've listened to my show. We've been covering this since November. They've been hitting major poker pros, ones who are household names, and They've been hitting some less major poker pros, ones who are known to be poker pros but aren't known to the average casual fan of poker. I had wondered if my name would end up being among them since I'm in the latter category, someone who is a poker pro, someone who is known to a number of poker fans, but I'm not a household name in poker by any means. So I wondered if they would ever go after me. Well, the answer is perhaps yes. Perhaps it just happened this week. I say perhaps because I can't be sure, but I saw a lot of hallmarks of that, and I will explain what I found this week, and definitely my Venmo account is being targeted in some way by someone. So we're going to talk about it. I'll give you every piece of info I have on this. I'm not going to keep any secrets about this one. I, I want this figured out. I may never figure it out, but I'm still working on it. So I'll tell you what's going on with that with the Venmo hacker perhaps targeting me. Phil Ivey is not someone who seeks the spotlight very often. This is a guy who's very reserved and keeps to himself. He has his own little inner circle, but he doesn't appear on interviews. He doesn't really make himself very accessible to the public. So that's why it was big news when he did a rare long-form interview with Chicago Joey, you know, Joey Ingram. So he did that for an hour, 
And I'm going to play you small clips of it. I'll tell you where to find the whole interview. You may find it interesting, especially if you're a Phil Ivey fan or just uh, want to know more about him. But I will play you little clips and comment on those little clips. And the remainder, if you want to go listen to it, you can go find it on Chicago Joey's channel, which I'll explain during that segment how you can find it. Perlot Friedman finally owned up to something which I have been accusing him of for 11 years. I have long stated that my big issue with Perlot Friedman was that he was a huge hypocrite by promoting UB after the cheating scandal and claiming that it was the new UB, claiming it was different ownership, that you could trust them, that he was cheated on there and he's back, so of course you can trust it since he was one of the biggest victims there, which he was. So if one of the biggest victims comes back and promotes them, you can trust them, right? Well, apparently not because they screwed everybody all over again. They stole all the money, and when Black Friday came on April 15, 2011, UB was broke and disappeared. And Prahlad never apologized for this, and in fact, he refused to address it. People like Joe Seabach, who were also promoting UB, addressed it and apologized. Prahlad, despite the fact that he's always been very, very arrogant, very, very sanctimonious. He claims he's a hippie, left-wing man of the people. For some reason, he doesn't want to explain why he would be promoting the worst poker site in history that cheated people out of tens of millions of dollars, why he would be doing that after the cheating scandal when everybody knew it was still the same ownership and he still promoted them. Why would a guy with such strong morals... So he claims, do that. He never has explained it, never has apologized. Well, some Twitter users who kind of trolled him a bit kind of got him to tilt a little bit, and he admitted to something. He admitted for the first time ever that he promoted UB in 2010 due to a need of money. So I'm going to read you the tweets, and it's the first time he's ever admitted to this, which I find very interesting. I have suspected this, and I have said it for many years, but this is the first time he's actually admitted that that's what happened. Matt Berkey created drama regarding the Landon Teese and Bill Perkins match where Berkey posted an exchange that he had with ACR support and also with Phil Nagy, the CEO of ACR, regarding a bet that ACR was considering placing on the winner of the match. So Berkey created a lot of drama over that. I will tell you the fallout from that and whether they're still going to be playing on ACR. Remember, Berkey is backing Landon Teese at least to some degree, in this match. UK recreational player David Afework, A-F-E-W-O-R-K, claims that Party Poker wrongly disqualified him for cheating after he won $160,000 in a WBT tournament there. Is this what it appears to be? Or did Party Poker have a good reason to do this? Remember, this is a UK recreational player. This is not a pro as far as we know. So we'll discuss that. This topic was suggested by Kevmath, and it was a damn good suggestion. I meant to cover it and forgot it, and Kevmath's like, hey, what about this one? I'm like, you know what? Kevmath, as usual, you are right. I am going to cover this. I just forgot it. Dan Coleman accused Sean Perry of ripping him off for over a million dollars. He said seven figures. He didn't, it, it could be even be more than a million. It could be two billion, three million. Who knows? He said seven figures. That was Dan Coleman's accusation against Sean Perry. And then he detailed the accusation. We've talked about it on this show twice. So why are we talking about it again? Well, 
I want to discuss why there seems to be a poker media blackout regarding this story whenever Sean Perry's name comes up. Because Sean Perry is back in poker. He's playing high-stakes tournaments. He's doing pretty well in winning high-stakes tournaments. And he's getting coverage from the poker media who will not mention at all of what Dan Daniel Coleman was accusing him of, which had the backing of several very respected, intelligent, high-stakes players who analyzed the whole thing. Now, I'm not saying that proves that uh, Perry's guilty. Maybe he's not. We haven't heard a defense from him. He's just gone dark about this. He's gone silent about this. But he's not gone silent in his poker play. He continues to play high-stakes events and has been winning them. So why is the poker media refusing to even mentioning this is going on? So I'm going to discuss that. I'm going to give you my theory as to why this is really the only form of poker media, to my knowledge, that is willing to take this on. I'm forgetting if Poker News did that. Poker News might be doing it, but Card Player won't and Pocket Fives won't, which is bizarre because I don't see why they wouldn't. Some sports books paid bettors on a bet on John Ram in the PGA tournament after he had to withdraw due to COVID-19. And there's some who are saying that even though this was good for betters, that it was the sports book basically paying out something they didn't necessarily have to, there's some who believe maybe this overall is not a good thing for the industry. So we'll discuss that. I have an update on the story of World Poker Tour champion Dennis Bielden, or Bleeden, I think. Bleeden, Bielden, I forgot how you say his name. But he was accused of embezzling $22 million dollars and looked like there was a pretty good case against him. Well, indeed, he's been convicted of it, and he has been sentenced. So the sentence was handed down this week. I will tell you how long he got, and I'll tell you my opinion of that sentence. Vital Vegas is claiming that rumors are going around that the embattled Virgin Hotel Las Vegas is already looking for buyers. This thing just opened. (laughs) They just renovated and opened, and Vital Vegas is claiming that they're already looking for buyers. Now, again, sometimes Vital Vegas puts out rumors that turn out not to be true. So that could be what's going on here. So don't take that to the bank. Don't run around saying, you know what? Virgin Las Vegas are already selling. No, that's not necessarily true. This could be a false rumor, but it was told to Vital Vegas. So I'm going to repeat it out here with the caveat that it's just a rumor. And I will discuss why it's not even that hard to believe. A dumb robber hit the Cosmo in Vegas, went to the Cosmo cage and demanded 10K, made a bomb threat, and was given the 10K, and then got busted quickly. So I'm going to mention what happened there, and I'll tell you that story. Not a big or really, really interesting story, but nonetheless, uh, the Cosmo was robbed of 10K at the cage, and the robber has been uh, apprehended. I assume they got the right guy. Looks like it. In fact, I think he admitted it. A nun stole over $800,000 to fund a gambling habit. We will talk about that. I want to tell you guys about a status match at the win, at the win and Encore. I'm not sure if this also applies to the Boston one, but I know the Vegas one, it definitely applies. You may want to check in Boston too. You can come to the win Las Vegas and get an elevated tier card without playing at all if you have a higher card at other properties. So 
I will tell you about this. I really suggest you take advantage of it. I'm going to take advantage of it. You should listen to that segment if you want to know more. And then we have one coronavirus topic about hydroxychloroquine, which is back in the news. So that's our long agenda tonight. Isn't that a lot of stuff to talk about? Okay, let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. So let's talk about Mike Postle's ex-wife. I had no idea this was coming. There is a wrong assumption that Mike Postle has about me that I'm really close to Veronica and that I want to impress Veronica. This is all not true. Now, I get along with Veronica. We talk sometimes on Twitter, but that's about the extent of it. Like, we'll talk in Twitter DMs, but we don't have a close friendship, and I'm not looking to impress her in any way. She's someone whose actions I applauded and still applaud. I don't agree with 100% of all the actions she's taken, but I agree with most of them. And some of this is just a matter of personal style, or if I were her, I would have done X or Y differently. But for the most part, I still think she was a hero for doing what she did, and she took a risk. Some people in the Postle circles, maybe Postle himself, it seems, from what I've seen in his uh, filings, which we'll talk about a bit later, he really seems to believe that I just want Veronica to approve of me or look favorably upon me, or maybe he thinks I want to date Veronica. None of this is true. It's not even slightly true. I'm being honest with you guys. I have, I have no interest in any of that. For that reason, I did not know that this interview with the ex-wife was coming until like the day before. She didn't even tell me. She told me like a day before it dropped. I think Postle himself knew about it before I knew. I'm not even kidding. So in case Postle thinks, and I know he listens to this show, by the way, so hello, Mike. I don't understand why he thinks this because I've never given any indication that this is what's going on. So I had no idea this was coming. Of course, I had nothing to do with it. But when I saw it was coming, I'm like, okay, well, this is interesting. I'm going to want to watch. I think that's what most people who saw this was coming thought when they saw that Mike's ex-wife was going to be on with Veronica. Now, this wasn't the first surfacing of Mike's ex-wife, whose name at least was Sabrina Ott. I think she's changed her name since then because I think she got married to somebody else since then pretty recently. But she's known to a lot of people as Sabrina Ott, and she kind of appeared out of nowhere at one point and said, I'm Mike Postle's ex. I'd like to talk to you, Veronica. And then she and Veronica talked. And I thought that was kind of weird. She used a Twitter account that she had not used in a decade, literally a decade. She was dormant on Twitter and reappeared to talk to Veronica. So I I thought that was a little bit bizarre. And I I also started hearing things. There's these accounts on Twitter that like to message me things that seem to be pro-Postle. And then they start messaging me things like to, I don't know what they're trying to do, make me feel doubt about my position, which is really strange at this point. But some of these uh, pro-Postle Twitter accounts were, at the first time she appeared, not recently, but when she first popped up on Twitter, were messaging me, oh, did you know this about uh, Mike's ex? Did you know that? And they were talking all this trash about her and talking about her past and talking, claiming she had a substance abuse problem, blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, okay, you know, you might be right. You know, if it's very possible that, this woman has her own issues and that this woman isn't very reliable. Like I thought that might be the case. I said, I don't know. And I don't really care that much. You know, this is, this really doesn't matter that much to me. I don't really care about Mike Postle's ex-wife because she wasn't with him when the alleged events at stones took place. So like 
what could she really tell us other than some stories from the past that might give us some insight into his character if they're true. But I, I think we've kind of deduced all this by now anyway. And everyone's got their feeling on the matter. So I, I while stories she tells might be interesting, they don't really add very much as far as uh, Mike's guilt or innocence in the Stone situation. That was my feeling when she first appeared on the scene. So it wasn't someone I was not going to listen to at all, but it was someone I figured I'm going to listen to with skepticism. I'm going to take it all with a grain of salt. I'm going to realize that she, if she's appearing like this, she probably has a reason for it. And it may not just be to help the poker community. She's never been part of the poker community, to my knowledge, or at least not in a very long time. So there were some reasons she appeared, and you had to be skeptical about that. That, that was my belief about the matter. I think I may have even said so on this show back when she first popped up on Twitter and wanted to talk to Veronica. By the way, you may be wondering, did she ever talk to me? Answer, no. I have no direct contact with Mike Postle's ex-wife, or really indirect. Like We've never communicated in any way. I'm sure she knows who I am because she's been following this lately, and I, of course, have been someone in the news involving Postle because of his lawsuit against me. But aside from that, I have to imagine she didn't know anything about me, and we still have never talked. But anyway, I saw the thing appear, and I thought, okay, well, I'm definitely going to watch this. Well, it wasn't the best timing for me, because I was uh, seeing my parents that day, and I was going to be busy with them the entire day, and then most of the next day. So I really didn't have that much time to watch it. I was able to squeeze in about half of it, kind of like at night right before I went to sleep on the day it was released, and then I had to watch the other half later. So I had all these people messaging me, oh, what do you think of this? What's your opinion? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I'm like, you know, I haven't gotten to this yet. People people were pretty shocked because they figured I would be one who'd like jump on it, but I just didn't have time. But again, I wasn't as excited to see it as some people were. Because some people think, oh, wow, his ex-wife, she's going to spill all the dirt. I'm going to find out everything. We're going to know everything we need to know about Possible. Well, no, she wasn't with him when all this was happening at Stones. And furthermore, she's his ex-wife, and I know they've had custody battles, so she definitely has an axe to grind with him. So we're not going to get like neutral stories about him. We're going to get stories which may be exaggerated, may be untrue, may be true, may be partially true. We don't know. And that's not just in this case. It's the case when anybody's angry ex talks about them. If you were to talk to my exes, especially ones that I'm not like currently friends with, just my exes from the past, especially ones maybe that we didn't end very well, I'm sure there would be things said about me which either are just untrue or things which are exaggerated or things which are just said from an incorrect memory or said out of anger. So that's just that's human nature. And if you have a previous relationship with someone, a previous romantic relationship, which goes sour and goes very sour, there's going to be a lot of false accusations or partially false or exaggerated accusations on both sides. That's usually the case. Now, sometimes much more on one side than the other. Sometimes one person really is at fault. Sometimes one person really has done like a lot of really awful things. I'm not saying everybody's equally at fault. But I'm saying in a typical relationship that doesn't have that going on, you're going to get some things said which aren't exactly true. So I had to keep that in mind, too, that this is not just a neutral observer. This is an ex who is in a better custody battle with him. So I was not as excited to see this as many others, but I was going to watch. 
not just to talk about it on the show, but I was just going to watch out of curiosity, especially given that Mike Possel sued me. So obviously I, w- I would like to see this. So I watched it. And I went in already with some skepticism. But maybe personally, I would have preferred to have heard a lot of things that were very, very eye-opening, very, very credible sounding, and very uh, damning towards Mike Possel. Because obviously, I don't like him very much, given that he filed a frivolous lawsuit against me. <laughs> That's Forget about my opinions of what he did during those games. At least those didn't personally affect me. But he filed a frivolous lawsuit against me for being one of thousands of people talking about this situation where he was playing on a public stream and portrayed as a wonder boy and the best ever. These are his own words. Like, I comment on it and I get sued. It's complete bullshit that this happened. I should not have been sued here. I had no impact on this. I came into it after it was already a huge story. I did not blow this up in any way. And I think Mike knows this. So I don't understand why I was sued. See, I'm pissed off about that, and I'll always be pissed off about that. But I can separate that when I watch his ex, and I don't have to necessarily believe everything that's said about him just because I don't like him. And that's the way I've always been. I've never been someone who will automatically believe something because it's something that I would prefer to see as true or because it's about someone or something I don't like. And that stretches into everything. Politics, too. Sometimes I don't like reading right-wing political sites because I feel they will not be completely honest with me about wrongdoing on the part of politicians on my side. I much prefer to read neutral sites that will be honest if my side is screwing up or if a politician on my side did bad things. I definitely don't want to read left-wing news for the same reason. But I do not want an echo chamber. I do not want to be just told things which will vilify someone or something I dislike. So I approach this saying, I don't, regardless of what I think of Apostle, I've got to look at this from a neutral standpoint. Now, normally I will play something like this on the show and comment on it, but I'm not going to do that. We have so much to do tonight. I'm not going to do it. If you want to see it, it's on Veronica's channel. It's called Mike Apostle's ex-wife, Sabina Johnson. That's her new name. Sabina, S-A-B-I-N-A. Uh, talks candidly, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's on Veronica's channel. And it's, if you just search Veronica Brill, B-R-I-L-L. On YouTube, you'll find her channel. She has about 3,500 subscribers. And you will see this video right there. Pretty easy to find. And you can watch it. It's about an hour. And I'm not going to play it out here and comment on the whole thing. Otherwise, I'll be here like all night and all tomorrow morning. But I will make some general comments about the stuff that was said in it and how I feel about it. Now, first of all, Sabina was very unclear about a lot of things. Sometimes she was confused. Sometimes she didn't remember everything all that clearly. Sometimes she contradicted herself. Sometimes she was talking about things that allegedly happened 12, 13, 15 years ago. And that's too long ago. Like everybody's memory starts to get fuzzy at that point. So that already was the first problem. She wasn't talking about stuff that happened a week ago or a month ago or even a year ago. She's talking about stuff that some of it was over a decade ago. So that's already a problem. Second, she... She just kind of seemed confused through the whole thing. Like, this wasn't someone who was just, like, right there on point, giving very clear and concise answers. It was kind of all over the place. Like, Veronica was trying to keep her on track. I don't blame Veronica for this, but the whole thing was kind of 
confused and difficult to listen to, difficult to watch. I watched it, but I wasn't riveted because I felt like I wasn't getting like a very clear and accurate story in most of these things. Now, I will say, I don't think everything she claimed was fabricated. I'd be shocked if everything was completely made up or completely exaggerated. I think in that hour and all this different Mike Postle stories she told, I have to imagine that some of them were true. I think some were completely true, some were partially true, some were mostly true, some maybe were half true, and some probably were not true at all or mostly untrue. That I think it's a big mixture of all that. That's just my opinion. That's what I, that's what I believe here. The problem is it's hard to tell which is which. Now, some stories were more believable than others. Some were very, very detailed and things they would be kind of hard to make up. Those type of stories you tend to believe a bit more. There, there's no way to know for sure, but some of these are much easier to believe than others, which don't have much detail and seem kind of like contradictory. Like one, I'll tell you one thing I didn't believe. She talked about Chris Moneymaker, and that actually was probably the most interesting thing to come from the interview, even though it's something that I don't believe. But she was claiming that Moneymaker was good friends with Postle and has been for a long time, and that they used to cheat together, which I don't believe for a second. I really don't believe it. And in fact, she even contradicted herself because towards the end of the broadcast, she was saying that uh, Moneymaker's a good guy. He seems like a good, honest guy. I forgot the exact words, but she, she was then at the end talking him up like, like he seems like a good dude. Well, if he was helping Mike cheat in the past, then he, he's not a good dude. <laughs> but, but I don't believe he was helping Mike cheat in the past. Like a, and she claimed that Mike was thrown off of poker stars for cheating. Like we never heard this before either. Who knows if that's true? Like that, that's another one that was said that who knows what the story is with that. Picture this. Could you picture Chris Moneymaker who's getting like a million bucks a year in compensation for representing poker stars and seems like it seems like that's going to go on for many years in the future as it did? Could you picture him in the 2000s saying, you know what? That's not enough. I think I'm, I'm going to help someone cheat here. Like there's no way. There's no way he would do this. And in all Moneymaker's years in poker, He's been in poker, at least as a, as a public figure in poker, for like 18 years now. He won the main event in 03. Do you think that he could go 18 years without any kind of cheating scandal, moneymaker, if he was this, this awful cheat like this? He must be one of the best cheaters in the world to have covered it up so well all this time, moneymaker. Like, it's insane. I can't say with 100% certainty that moneymaker has never cheated, but I would doubt that he has. I really don't. I don't believe he helped anyone cheat. I don't believe he helped Postle cheat at any point. I just, I just don't believe the whole story. I don't, I don't know where she's getting this. But she said something like that on there. And of course, Moneymaker was not happy about it and had to put out his own statement on 2 Plus 2 responding to it. So this is what Moneymaker wrote on 2 Plus 2 in response to the allegations against him. Saw the videos and still have no idea what I'm accused of. I knew Mike from Tunica where we played 2-5. We spoke, but not often. Not sure how we were besties. My wife never knew him, and I've never met this lady, the lady referring to Puzzle's ex, did not talk to him outside of the poker game. He moved years ago and never spoke to him or knew where he moved to. Did my first appearance at Stones, and he was there when we reconnected. We talked more often once reconnecting, and I was going to Stones for appearances and to play in that insane game. Went to a field trip with about five players and Justin, referring to Justin Caradius, to San Francisco during that time. It was the only time we ever, ever social off of the poker table. He called me the day Veronica broke the story, and I went to bat for him, as I did not think he was cheating the games when we played together. Ben cheated in two games and figured it out. 
did not did not feel like it when we played. Once I saw all the evidence, I distanced myself from him. We had a text message exchange probably about a year ago about the documentary and wanting me to be involved somehow. He reached out again to me today to apologize, but I did not know for what. Pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I think I believe him. I think I believe him. I mean, the story about Moneymaker was just so weird. But that's the sort of thing where you watch it and you go, I can't really believe this woman. Even if she thinks she's telling the truth, it seems like there's some uh, delusion or misremembering involved at best. And so even the stories that are quite believable, of which there were some which were much more believable than this Moneymaker story, you still have to say, well, I don't know. You know, This one sounds better, but may- maybe this isn't true either. Or maybe there's more to it than uh, she's revealing here. So I pretty much had to discard most of it. I pretty much had to just say, well, since she just isn't very reliable, even if not intentionally, I don't know why she's not reliable, but for whatever reason, if she's not reliable, then you pretty much have to dismiss any allegation she's making unless there's proof. Now, it doesn't mean you can't believe or partially believe some of the stuff she said. You can. You can just use your own judgment. You can listen to the interview yourself, watch the interview yourself, and you can say, okay, I believe X and I believe Y, but I don't believe Z. You can you can to- totally say that as to what they think is the truth and not the truth. So I'm just telling you when you watch it, if you haven't watched it yet, or if you already have watched it and you don't know what to think, my recommendation to you is to consider each story told closely and think to yourself, how likely is this to be true? And also, while she is telling these stories, know that... She isn't very reliable from everything I can see. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if this is intentional, but she just doesn't seem very reliable. She doesn't seem like someone that I would say, you know what, I'm going to believe everything they say. This is someone, if they say it, you can take it to the bank. That's that's not her. There are certain people who I will watch in interviews, and that is my opinion of them going in. And watching them, that's still my opinion going out. Like, this person seems very honest, straightforward. They know their stuff. They're, they're telling a story which makes sense. They have a great reputation beforehand. Like that type of person I'm usually going to believe or mostly believe. Uh, with her, who knows? Like it's possible that a lot of this stuff is true or mostly true, but I have no way to tell. So that's the unfortunate thing with this whole interview is that you walk away not knowing what to believe. And that's something you should keep in mind regardless of what you think of Mike Possel. The Shrink, who is a listener to this show, someone I've actually met in person not too long ago. He's in Canada. He actually is a doctor of psychology. But he said, it's a bad interview. She doesn't come across well. She can't remember names and get simple details wrong. She implied that Moneymaker was involved in cheating with Pasolan Poker Stars. It's a mess. So this is the opinion of like a really just a total neutral third party. He doesn't know Postle. He doesn't know her. He's been following this whole thing, but he's not a big name in poker or anything. He's just a professor who plays poker recreationally. And he's a smart guy, but that was his impression. And that's what a lot of people thought who watched this whole thing. Now, I will play you a little clip, not from that interview, but from after the interview when some people were giving sabina a hard time she posted this on her own twitter which if you want to see your twitter it's uh twitter.com slash berlin madchen i don't know what that means but uh, it's the word berlin like the city in germany b-e-r-l-i-n and then madchen m-a-d-c-h-e-n berlin madchen she's listed as sabina johnson which is her current legal name because she got married here's what she had to say to the people on twitter who were skeptical of her want to talk negatively bad about me 
go ahead. But guess what? I run a restaurant. I have a 15-year-old and I have a 9-year-old in the house. My husband is in the other room and we are very happily married. So, you could say whatever you want. Misery loves company. But sweetheart, to whatever person this is that's watching this video thinking, oh, I'm just going to pick on her, go pick on somebody your own size because I'm not her. And I have bigger balls than you. That was her message to the haters on Twitter. I want her to know if she hears this, that I'm not picking on her. I have nothing against her. I wanted to be able to fully believe everything she said in that interview. I was hoping she'd come on and, and just be very clear, concise, and very credible. But unfortunately, that's not quite what we got. So I don't know what to believe. I don't dislike her. I don't wish bad things for her. If she's really doing well in her new marriage, then that's great. I have nothing against her. But yeah, I have to be honest that this was not the bombshell that people were hoping for, at least in my opinion. But again, it doesn't mean it was all false. A lot of it could have been true. I have my own opinions. I think parts of it were true if I had to guess. I have no way to verify these things, but my opinion would be that uh, parts of it were definitely true. And I also think parts of it were very likely to be untrue. I think parts of it were likely to have been exaggerated or misremembered. A person named James Weldon responded the following way to uh, Veronica's video on Twitter. James Weldon said, uh, fact check, most of your content is really good, but you should do better research on your guests when you don't know anything about them. This damages credibility. Drunk driving mom with kids in the car, big surprise she can't see her daughter. Please note the date. And then he posted something. So let me explain that. So he posted a screenshot of a booking photo and an arrest record of Sabina when her name was Sabina Ott. It says Ott, comma, Sabina Ray, booking number, blah, 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 age 34, JID number, blah, 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 booking date, January 5th, 2021. And it is her in the picture here, you can see. And it says charges, three total, DUI, above legal limit, then it says uh, child abuse or neglect, and then a second child abuse or neglect. So uh, James Weldon was saying here that she was arrested for drunk driving. I'm not sure where this was, but she was arrested for drunk driving somewhere on January 5th, and that her kids were in the car. This is the claim of James Weldon on Twitter. Now, this could be fabricated, but I don't think it is. I think this probably is legitimate. This looks like a legitimate arrest record and mugshot of her. And it's January 5th, 2021. So this wasn't 10 years ago. This wasn't 20 years ago. This was this year. She said in the second half of the video, I think around the 45-minute mark, I didn't mark it down, but it was somewhere around there, that Mike was keeping her from seeing her kids. And as soon as I heard that, I go, no, 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 no. There's no way. Now, he may be through the legal system keeping her from seeing her kids, but a parent can't do that to the other parent. Both parents, once they're split up, have a right to see their kids. 
And the only way they do not have a right to see their kids is if the court rules that they don't. So in that case, the blame would be on the court, not on the other parent, unless the other parent presented false information in court. But still, that's what the court decided. Before this January 5th, 2021 arrest, I had heard the first time she appeared from these people who were pro-possible that were messaging me on Twitter in DMs that she had previous problems like this. I don't know about DUIs, but that she had previous uh, problems of this nature, shall I say, and that they claimed Mike had full custody of his daughter because she had these problems. I did not verify this, but that's what they were swearing to me, these accounts that, and they were trying to use it like that, just like everything she said should be discounted and, and just not believed. And I said, look, uh, you know, even if this is true, that doesn't mean anything she says can't be believed. It, it does mean that maybe she's a little bit less credible and she's maybe unstable, but that doesn't mean you can't believe anything she said. That's what I told the people at the time. But they wanted me to like I, I they, what they wanted me to do is come out and like vilify her and say oh look this the you know, apostle's ex-wife uh, she she had this and this and this happened in the past years and this is why apostle has custody i'm like no i'm not i'm not doing apostle's dirty work for him like i'm not going to come out and expose the dirty laundry of his ex who has recently shown up on twitter like that's why, why would i get involved in that i don't know this woman i have nothing against her i'm not going to bring that out there if uh, if apostle himself wants to bring it out there or his buddies want to i guess they can but uh I, I was not going to get involved with this. And I even said, like, if she's got something to say that's relevant and she can prove, then uh, that, that really her past doesn't have much bearing on this. I can understand your commentary that you believe she's unstable. But beyond that, uh, I don't really see why this matters very much. But that was before this arrest on January 5th. So when I heard that Postle is keeping her kid from her, you know, he can't do that. That would be considered kidnapping. You, you can go to jail for a long time for just taking a kid and not letting the other parent see it. So the only way you can get away with not allowing the other parent who see the child without breaking the law is getting the court to rule that it's going to be that way. And when the court rules it's going to be that way, the court does so in the interest of the child where they feel the child would be best served by not seeing one of the parents, which is pretty harsh. And they usually don't do that to a mother. They usually do not award full custody to the father if the mother is able-bodied and out of jail. They just don't. If you remember uh, Gavin Smith, when he passed away, he had full custody of his two kids. And the mother was in another state. The mother was back in Alaska. And then the kids were going to go back to the mother. But I said, what, what the hell was wrong with that mother? To where Gavin Smith, who had a big drinking problem. There's no question that Gavin Smith had a big drinking problem. I witnessed it personally. Why was Gavin Smith, who seemed to drink all day and all night, awarded full custody of those kids? I go, wow, the mom must have really been a piece of work there. And not only did he get full custody, he, got, he was allowed to leave the state, which is very uncommon. So that was bizarre to me. I never got an answer there what was really going on. In Gavin's defense, I heard from people that knew him that he really loved those kids and they loved him and he, he did a, a pretty good job raising them. So I'll give him credit there that despite his drinking issues, he was able to still be a good father. And I'm glad for the kids they had that with him until he passed away. I never liked the guy, but uh, you know, if he was a good father to the kids and he took responsibility where the mother wouldn't, I, I give him credit. 
But it, it was similar. Like I, when I heard that story that they were living with him, I never had any belief that that was going on, <laughs> that, that Gavin had full custody of his kids in a different state from the mom. I would totally have expected the opposite given the guy's drinking, but nope. So back to this. I had heard, wasn't sure about it, I had heard that Postle had full custody. And then she basically said on the video that he's keeping her daughter away from her. But as I said, the second I heard that, I go, he can't do that. He, he can't do it, and I don't think he is doing it except through the legal system. Now, she can claim that he mischaracterized her through the legal system and got a bad ruling against her. She can claim that, and I have never seen any uh, filings in this case, so I can't comment on that. But it happened through the court, it looks like. I'd be shocked if that wasn't the case. And if she really did get arrested with her kids in the car, which from this arrest record appears to be, then this is the one thing with Possel that I have to say he's probably in the right. I'm not saying Possel was is the ideal parent either. <laughs> I mean, I, I think from what we know of him that it's not the ideal situation that he has full custody, but if it's between that and somebody who has a drinking problem and gets DUIs with the kids in the car, then yeah, it's possible the better parent to have the kids. And I have to say, if I had an ex and had a kid with them and they were doing this and they had an arrest like this, I would be really upset and really concerned for the safety of my child. And I think any parent would. Now, that would never be the case because, uh, number one, I'm, I'm with the mom of my child, but even if we weren't, uh, I, I know she would be responsible with the child and this sort of thing would never happen. But if she wasn't, yeah, I'd be, I'd be very concerned and I would not want my child with her if the child would be in this kind of danger. So, like, this is what I mean. Obviously, she's bitter about this. Obviously, she's mad about the fact that she doesn't have her daughter there. And I'm sure it hurts her a lot. Like, I'm sure she wishes she had her daughter. I'm sure she thinks about it every day, how, how sad it is that she can't see her daughter and that the daughter is with Mike. But she probably thinks very bad things about Mike. And it's like, yeah, of all things, how does this guy get 100% custody of my daughter? But, yeah, if you get caught doing things like this, then that, that's why. So who knows? I don't think Postle was an angel when they were married. I don't think that it was all her fault that everything fell apart. These are just my guesses, by the way. I don't have any inside info on this, but uh, you know, knowing Mike Postle and seeing the way he's behaved over the last uh, two years, I would have to say that I would be very surprised if he was the perfect angel of a husband and that uh, it was all her fault that everything happened. But clearly this woman seems to have some uh, issues of her own, some big issues. And if she's since cleared them up, if she's stabilized, if she is not going to do things like this again, then great. And it's good that uh, on January 5th that nobody got hurt. It sounds like they could have if uh, she hadn't been pulled over. It's just one of these things you have to say, I'd like to have watched this and been able to believe every word I was told, but you just can't. So see, Mike, I know you listen to this. I know because you've said you do. You even said in a court filing that you listen to the show. So see, Mike, I could have come out here and said I believe every word of it. And I could have done this legally. But I'm fair. I'm always fair. 
even to people who file frivolous lawsuits against me. Because I've always just wanted to get to the truth. The truth may not be something that you like to hear. The truth may be something that isn't very favorable to you in many circumstances. But I just want the truth. And I'm willing to change my opinion if I'm shown evidence otherwise, which contradicts what I had believed before. I've done that before on this show. Not about you, but I've done about other things where I have information about something and I report it out here and then it turns out that uh, I only had part of the story and didn't realize it. Now, if I know something has a decent chance of being false, then I will not report it out here. But there have been times where I really believed I had the whole thing and then someone brought to me something that uh, cast doubt upon what I reported out here and I will correct it. And I would have done that with you had you brought anything to me. And I kept saying, if you want to bring anything to me to show me that you are not guilty of what people have been accusing you of in poker, that I will listen and that I will not care what Veronica says or what Joey Ingram says or what Doug Polk says or what the whole poker world says. I don't care. I've gone against them before. I think that's why you had your buddies message me on Twitter because you felt that maybe you could change my mind and get me over to your side. And you actually could have if you had them send me anything convincing, but you did not. I was never convinced, but I gave them a chance. I've given everybody a chance. Because I did not ever comment on this because I wanted to take someone's side or I was backing up a friend or I was trying to get a date with Veronica. I have no need for a date with Veronica. I've been in a relationship for a long time. Even if I was single, I would not do this to get a date with Veronica. That's never how I've operated. I've covered so many different scams and scandals in poker and gambling on this site and on this show for well over nine years now. So the situation with you was one of so many that I have done by this point. I'm sure you've looked at my site. Go look at these scam scandals and shadiness form and look at the pages and pages of stuff that I have talked about. Go look at all the agendas of the radio shows that I've done back to 2012. They're all listed. You'll see all the different things I've covered. Do you think that was all to impress Veronica? Do you think this was all done to go against uh, an individual? Do you think this was all done to go along with what people in poker want to hear? No. In fact, that's part of the reason I'm not part of any kind of uh, insider crowd or cool crowd in poker because I don't kiss anybody's ass and I don't go along with any narratives that people want me to go along with. I always try to find the truth and report it out here. And I've given you and your friends and everybody else ample opportunity to show me otherwise that would change my mind. And I've seen nothing that is particularly convincing. Now, I want to move to talk about the second thing here, which is related, sort of. On June 16th, there's going to be a hearing for the attorney's fees for Veronica and her attorney, Mark Randazza. Mike Possel filed a long document about... I mean, kind of about this, but also like a lot of stuff which didn't seem to make a lot of sense in the context of what's being done on June 16th. June 16th is not a trial. It's it's not even a hearing for anything related to the case. What's coming up on June 16th is 
a decision about how many or how much is going to be granted to Veronica for attorney's fees. It is in California state law that when you are the prevailing party on an anti-slap motion, which is virtually already what's happened by default because Veronica filed an anti-slap motion and then Mike dropped the case. And that pretty much concedes that the anti-slap motion was correct and will prevail. In a few cases, the court will rule that it was not going to prevail anyway. But usually when this happens, it's pretty much uh, giving the anti-slap motion a prevailing status to the other party. That's why it was kind of bizarre that he dropped the case like he did, but that's what he did. So we already got our ruling on this in May that Mike owes me $27,000 in attorney's fees, attorney's fees and court costs. It's very likely that the same will be ruled. I don't know about the amount, but that the same conclusion will be made in court. In fact, it'll be made the day before on the 15th and presented by the court in writing. And then on the 16th, Mike and uh, Veronica's attorney, Mark Mendaza, can argue this out in court, whether this is appropriate. And they could try to convince the judge to change her mind either way. But what the judge cannot do is say, the anti-slap would have likely prevailed, but I'm giving no attorney's fees. Because state law requires that if the anti-slap motion prevails, that reasonable attorney's fees must be granted. Not should be granted, not are recommended to be granted, but must be granted. So she said this during my hearing with Possel that you guys saw on video, a lot of you. She said to Mike, I have to award these attorney's fees by state law. And that's correct. So same thing here. So he's going to, something is going to be awarded unless somehow she determines that this anti-slap would not have likely prevailed had Mike not dropped the case. But given that Mike dropped the case, that really, really makes it likely that it would have prevailed. That's just how California law works. So since it's highly likely that it will be judged to have prevailed, it looks highly likely that fees will be granted. They're asking for 78000 which is a lot. It's a lot more than we asked for. Maybe they will get a lot less, especially because there was an additional month delay by the court in deciding this. This was supposed to be decided like on May 19th. And now on June 16th, it, it got uh, changed. It got delayed by four weeks by the court. So they could presumably look into this more. But I have to imagine that it's going to be something fairly close to what we got, maybe even higher. So anything that Mike should have filed, if anything here, should be directly about why attorney's fees of $78,000 should not be granted and why it should be much, much less than that and really drop everything else. Everything else is irrelevant here. Even if everything he writes is true, it's not relevant. The only thing relevant for the 16th is the attorney's fees, and that's it. But here's what was filed. And by the way, this looks like it was prepared by an attorney. I'm guessing the attorney for the Honor Network, which he's been working with. The Honor Network, it's a very strange situation here, how the Honor Network got involved. But the Honor Network, they are a nonprofit organization that was founded in 2014 by Lenny Posner. And this organization began as an advocate for the survivors 
of the Sandy Hook shooting. And you may remember that there was a legal battle involving Alex Jones, who had all kinds of uh, conspiracy theories about the Sandy Hook shooting. And I, I can understand why the parents were upset that Jones was putting that out there when their children had been murdered by, by the psycho. So I understand why the parents were unhappy about this. But the, the Honor Network became an expanded effort to protect people from online harassment and hate. And presumably they went this direction because they had this problem with Alex Jones and then his followers started trolling the parents of these kids who got killed. And again, I really feel for the parents here that had to go through this crap. But you may wonder, what does this have to do with Possel? And the answer is nothing. They shouldn't be involved here. But they did get involved. Why? Because the attorney who was defending Alex Jones' right to say what he did was none other than First Amendment attorney Mark Randazza. And if you've followed Mark Randazza and his work and his social media and the stories about him, he's very brash. He's someone who is very outspoken. So if you read between the lines, you can probably figure out why the Honor Network is involved here and why they are likely offering assistance to Mr. Possel. Well, the Honor Network, one of their attorneys probably helped him put these papers together because this was put together by someone who knows how to format it right and knows how to... uh, present legal arguments. I I still wonder if an attorney put this together, like why they didn't know a lot of this wasn't relevant, but maybe they weren't getting involved there. This was actually filed by Possel. There is no attorney that was listed having helped him here. So it's possible that he just emailed them what he wanted to say, and then they formatted it for him. There was something that was filed prior to this that I do not have that was rejected by the court for being poorly formatted. So it is very possible that when it got rejected, he went to them and said, hey, can you help me a bit? Because I, I don't know how to format this right, not being an attorney. Can you help me? And then they uh, they cleaned it up for him and put it in the right formatting and then emailed it to him and then he filed it. It's probably something like that. So maybe that explains why this was filed without a lot of relevance. But here's what it says. As it was inclined to do in the recent hearing, Possible versus Wattellis, the court should c- construe that the defendant's petition for legal fees is excessive and unreasonable. The defendant's counsel, Mr. Rendaza, has already been financially compensated due to a GoFundMe campaign established for Ms. Brill's legal fees and paid to an employee of the Rendaza Legal Group. Mr. Rendaza has a well-established history of disciplinary action due to fraudulent billing practices that are substantially similar to the extraordinary billing submitted to the court. Mr. Rendaza has engaged in a course of conduct designed designed to prevent me from retaining assistance in this case, perverting the course of justice. That's that's pretty... uh, explosive accusation. Remember, this is Possible writing about himself. And he's claiming that Mark Randazza engaged in a course of conduct designed to prevent him from getting assistance in the case. Hmm. On May 11th, 2021, the court ruled that the identical case brought by Mr. Wattellis against me was worth 27000 in legal fees, setting a standard for which Mr. Randazza should be compensated. That's an interesting statement because uh, that would seem to imply that he'd be okay with that compensation, which is substantially less than what Rendaz is asking for, 78K, but it's interesting that he's not even saying that was 
that, that he didn't like that amount. <laughs> he's just he's just saying, yeah, it, it should be that because we are, you know, Todd already got that, so that's what uh, Veronica should get for the work Randazza did. By the way, it's not an identical case. It's a similar case, but it's not identical because my part in this and Veronica's part in this are two different things. And I did not hire a specialist attorney, and she did. And the court does recognize that hiring First Amendment specialists, uh, that, that they have a right to bill more. It's reasonable that they would charge more than an attorney who's not a specialist. And also that if Veronica had a bigger part in this, that more work would have to be done. So that's what he's claiming, though, is that they're identical and that the 27000 is what should be awarded. That kind of looks like what he's saying. So, so far, so good. Like, so far, I, when I say so good, I, like, I'm not, the first paragraph is kind of weird about how Randaz has been trying to prevent him from getting counsel. But at least that one paragraph, at least that is sticking to the topic. At least the paragraph is sticking to exactly what uh, is going to be happening on the 16th. But then it starts going out in the weeds. So it says, argument. Mr. Rendaz and his firm have already been compensated for legal services. Ms. Brill and the Rendaz firm launched a GoFundMe campaign on October 3, 2020, which states clearly that the proceeds are specifically earmarked to pay for this anti-slap motion against me. To this date, Ms. Brill has raised over $27,681 in that campaign, which is listed on behalf of Cassidy Curran. You will please note that in Mr. Rendaz's petition for fees, Cassidy Curran is listed as an employee of the Rendaz law firm. While California's collateral source rule would allow Ms. Brill to collect from multiple parties for the same damages in order to compensate pain and suffering, this isn't a pain and suffering case. The exception to this rule, which prevents professionals, generally doctors, from being compensated multiple times for the same bill, I believe applies here. Ms. Brill's legal bill has already been covered by third parties. In this case, 329 individuals who donated specifically to cover her legal expenses in anti-slap, Ms. Brill also states that Mr. Rendaz informed her that the anti-slap would cost her about $20,000 but it would be cheaper if she could get other people to come onto the case with her. I don't quite know what that means. Let's go on here. Additionally, Ms. Brill has publicly declared that Bill Perkins, a wealthy hedge fund manager and poker player, has established a trust worth roughly $200,000 specifically to pay Ms. Brill's legal fees. By Ms. Brill's own statements, despite stating that the anti-slap would cost her around $20,000, Mr. Rendaz is in possession of over $200,000 in a trust set up specifically to pay Ms. Brill's legal fees in this anti-slap. I didn't notice anywhere in Mr. Rendaz's lengthy petition for fees where he mentions that he's in the possession of this account. The trust account aside, Mr. Rendaz's firm has already been compensated to the tune of 27681 of which 7681 is more than he quoted Ms. Brill to cover the entire anti-slap case. Well, okay, let me stop here. There's a few problems here. First of all, none of this matters. Like, I'm not an attorney, but I don't believe any of this matters. Because when you're entitled to attorney's fees, you're entitled to attorney's fees. It doesn't matter how the attorney has been paid. It doesn't even matter if the attorney has been paid or not paid. It doesn't matter if the attorney has all the money already. And it doesn't matter if the attorney has not been paid yet or if the attorney is working on contingency to get those fees. That's none of the business of the other party. All that matters is... How many attorneys? Yeah, how much of an attorney fees is reasonable in this case to award? That's it. That's all that matters. Now, if Randaza had already been paid, and then he wanted the money again, that would be a problem. Instead, the money should go to Veronica, or to Bill Perkins, or whoever paid. But that's just a matter of where the money goes, not about whether it's awarded. So I don't understand this. I don't understand this about the GoFundMe. It doesn't matter who started the GoFundMe. It doesn't matter 
if Randazza has been paid or not paid yet. It doesn't matter what Randazza quoted her. Who cares what he quoted her? So, so the case dragged on longer. That was Postle's own doing. He was the one who kept asking for these delays. Not the last delay, but all the other delays he was asking for. So that ran up the bill further. So it doesn't matter what was quoted here. It matters what work was done and how much of that work the court feels was reasonable and how much was excessive. And the billing rate for this work and whether it was excessive or reasonable. And if the court thinks it's excessive, the the court will reduce it. That's what happened in our case. We asked for 43300 and the court said, you know what? We don't think 43300 is justified here. We think 26 and change plus 400 and change for uh, court fees. So it, it, the whole thing about 27K is what we're giving you. And we're like, okay, fine. It doesn't matter how much the attorney has been paid or how they're getting the money or how the money was raised or who paid it. None of that matters. It matters that this bill has been run up and that the court has deemed that whoever paid needs to get it back. That's all it's saying. Whether it came from GoFundMe or Bill Perkins does not matter. So that's a weird argument. Then it gets even more out there. It says, history of fraudulent billing practices. Mr. Randazza, in support of his request for nearly 80,000 legal fees, did make the point that he has more extensive experiences than Mr. Benzamokin, providing 200 pages of his own resume, court cases in which he's been involved, and his own testimony. I admit that I was surprised that with the extensive in comparison to Mr. Benzamokin's 21-page application for fees, weighty recitation of his accomplishments and recognitions that he failed to mention for a few for which he's more well, most well-known. By bringing his history in the, to the attention of the court in support of legal fees twice the amount was asked for by Mr. Benzamokin and four times the amount quoted to Ms. Brill, I believe that Mr. Randazza has, quote, opened the door for supplemental information to be provided in regards to his history. Mr. Randazza has a long and well-documented history of financial fraud, including billing fraud, bribery, and extortion. In fact, in one of his previous disciplinary actions, he has used some of the same methodology that seems to be at work in this case for which he was sanctioned. And then he attaches the document. Exhibit number three in the article, Mr. Randazza's extensive history of lying to his clients and to the court is, is discussed. However, I don't want anyone to take my word in regard to someone else's character. A website dedicated to informing the public of Mr. Randazza, blah, 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 uh, details at least 19 lawsuits against him for all sorts of unethical and illegal behavior, including financial fraud against his own clients. Okay, uh, let's stop here. So he's trying to trash Randazza and say Randazza is this awful guy who's committed all these crimes and unethical actions. Why is this relevant? Again, in this case, as far as I can see, he has not done anything that could get him in any kind of trouble. If this is a pretty straightforward anti-slap case so far, why does Mr. Rendaz's history, even if what Postle is accusing him of is true, and Rendaz does have a history, and you, you can go look it up. He's a controversial guy. He's not someone who everyone likes. But that's not relevant here. Mr. Rendaz is a licensed attorney And Mr. Randazza did have the right to represent Veronica Brill and file this anti-slap motion. And the motion itself was fine. I read the motion. It's fine. Other attorneys read the motion. They said, yeah, it's fine. So so what's the point here? It seems like Mr. Randazza, who is a presently licensed attorney, who does have the jurisdiction to practice where he is, in this case, that he did the proper legal work for this anti-slap motion. And now he's seeking attorney's fees. 
Now, Postle can argue that this is excessive, that he shouldn't have had to do 78K of work, and that he should get less. And you know what? My guess is he probably will get less. But you, you can't bring up his history and say, well, because I, because Rendaz is a bad guy, don't give him the attorney's fees. Like, what the hell does this mean? That stuff was already adjudicated. That's over. If this was considered serious enough by the the state bar, then he would not be eligible to practice law. Now, perhaps you disagree with what the state bar concluded. Maybe you don't like Randazza and you feel he should not be able to practice law. Maybe you feel he should have been disbarred, and that can be your opinion. But he's not disbarred, and he is eligible to practice law, and he's practicing law here, and that does not affect his eligibility to get awarded attorney's fees where appropriate. So that's why none of this makes any sense. So then it quotes a bunch of stuff from the article, which I won't bother reading. And uh, then he goes on to say, history of lying to court and ethics violations. That's a new section. Please note that per your previous instruction, I have only included testimony, disciplinary actions, etc. that concern Mr. Randazza's dishonesty in billing and financial matters. I have not provided documentation in support of other ethics allegations, including that after being booted out of the military after five months, he continued to present himself as a paratrooper or detail his lies to the court regarding his ability to actually practice in a particular state, or perhaps most shocking, his attempt to violate the shield that protects victims of rape so that his client, the accused rapist, could use social media uh, as followers to harass and intimidate. What does this have to do with this case? Like, if if Postle wants to write a blog online saying Mark Randaz is a bad guy and I'm going to show you why I feel that way, then fine. He can do that. He has his free speech rights and uh, provided everything he's saying is true, he has a right to do that even if Randazza doesn't like it. But... uh, this has no bearing on this case. Like, why is he going on and on about about Randaz's quote history when this is just about the attorney's fees? So then he goes on and links it back to himself in a section called "Efforts to Intimidate Me and Anyone Offering Assistance." What may be of more concern, however, is my ability to retain counsel and receive assistance. Part of that problem is that Mr. Randaza himself who through his reputation of doxing, using trolls to harass and attacking not only client opposition, but also opposing counsel, is resulted in many attorneys simply saying that it isn't worth the hassle to help me if it means that they have to be subjected to him. A simple browse through his Twitter account, at Marco Randazza, and you will see Mr. Randazza calling opposing counsel idiots or worse, and since he represents some very nasty people, calling out his opposition in this extremely unprofessional way means that followers also attack in solidarity. This is the reality for the attorney, Paul Berger, and then he has an exhibit about that. Again, he's getting involved in unrelated things here. Like, so now he's going to link it to himself about why he, he's claiming that Rindaza stopped him from being able to get an attorney. But it simply isn't always a matter of lawyers not respecting him or being concerned that he will use his troll farm to harass and harm. He has actively prevented me from responding to, appropriately to this court and has attempted to intimidate those who attempt to assist me. On March 17, 2021, I received a notice from the court directing me to contact Mr. Bensamokin, Mr. Wattelis' attorney, and Mr. Rendaza to work out an extension to the time frame, a response to to which had to be received to the court before 4 p.m. I had been working with the Honor Network for several weeks at that point. The Honor Network is a nonprofit organization founded by Lenny Posner, whose son Noah was the youngest victim of the Sandy Hook school shooting, originally founded to remove defamation and hate and harassment online that targeted NOAA and the other 25 children and teachers killed, Honor has expanded to offer reporting and removal assistance for anyone who's been targeted online. 
The organization also helps victims to find specialized legal assistance, mental health referrals, etc. I have attached a copy of the letter that was filed with the court previously involving the Honor Network's assistance. I had asked the Honor Network if they would have someone help me to explain the steps that they were taking to help me and find a lawyer and the cataloging of the defamation uh, perpetrated by Ms. Brill and and Mr. Wattellis. Alexandria Merrill, who is an executive at a crisis management firm and is the director of PR and policy for the Honor Network, agreed to join me on the calls to Mr. Benzamokin and Mr. Mendaza to explain the amount of time needed to catalog the abuse in the organization's involvement. She had explained to me the difference between defamatory and harassing content that the Honor Network could, quote, action or petition to have removed, and the content they couldn't action, generally stories from legitimate news sources and contact that was offensive, but otherwise not a violation of various social media platforms in terms of service. I initially contacted Mr. Benzamokin, as you can see from my phone record. I called Ms. Merrill and conference called the three of us into a call. We spoke for about 10 minutes. At that point, Mr. Benzamokin agreed to a 90-day extension, or up to a 90-day extension. I called Ms. Merrill and then Mr. Randazza's office at 323 and was transferred to Mr. Shepard, who introduced himself as an associate and explained Mr. Randazza was unavailable, but that he had agreed to a 30-day extension. During the conversation, Mr. Shepard asked if Ms. Merrill could give him the names of attorneys with whom the Honor Network had referred me. She said there had been many referrals, but that she personally had discussed the case with Mr. Mark Bankston, an attorney in Texas, and Mr. Stephen Lambert, an attorney out of Colorado. Both had previously worked with the Honor Network and were interested in the case. At that point, Mr. Shepard said that he thought Mr. Rendazza should talk to me and would we mind holding. I reminded him I had the call in the court in a few minutes. We sat on hold until 3.47 when Mr. Rendazza called me from a different line while we were still on hold. He reiterated that he'd be offering 30 days, which he felt was generous, and said, oh, I've been waiting for this phone call. I'll call you right back and hung up. At 3.50, Mr. Rendazza called me from a different number, but directed his attention to Ms. Merrill. Who did you say you were? He said, and before she even got her name out, he erupted yelling at her, I don't know who you are. You're a fucking cunt. You're a fucking liar. You're a fucking bitch. Bankston doesn't know who Mike Postle is. I think we were just both stunned. He just kept on at her, cursing and yelling, calling her names until he finally said, now shut the fuck up and let the boys talk. I'll give you 60 days and no more. We both just hung up the phone. At 3.55, Mark Bankston called Ms. Merrill, who failed to reach her, and the call was returned at 3.56. He said that he had just gotten the weirdest call from Mark Randazza. Mr. Randazza had demanded to know if he was going to re- represent Mike Postle. Mr. Bankston responded he didn't know anyone named Mike Postle, and Mr. Randazza hung up. He said that only after did he realize Mike Postle was the name of the, quote, poker guy, which is the way that they had referred to the case. Uh, of course, by that time, the court had closed. So even though Mr. Benson-Mokin had agreed to up to 90 days and Mr. Randazza up to 60 days, I had been unable to contact the court. Keeping me on hold for so long was a clear tactic— Attacking this lady who was there to help and provide information was a clear attempt to intimidate her and prevent the Honor Network from helping me. The next day on the Zoom call without a lawyer and without the Honor Network, Mr. Mendez's tactics were rewarded with a 33-day extension. Okay, let's stop here. So this is a very convoluted story. But if you didn't quite understand what he's trying to say, he was trying to say that Eric Benzamoke and my attorney agreed to up to 90 days. And I, I think that was true. I'm forgetting now. But I think he said that uh, that he, he would agree to that. I, I'm not 100% sure of that. There's been so many extensions, I lost track. So don't quote me on that one. But I don't know what Rendazza said about the 60 days. But then I do know the court gave 33 days. I do remember that on that particular extension. And keep in mind, there was just one extension that's being left out there too. Of course, the judge will know very well because she's the one who granted them all. But in this story, he's trying to say that there was this guy, Bankston, this attorney named Bankston, that was 
one of the suggested attorneys that Honor was going to try to hook up with Mike Possel. And that Randazza, upon hearing this, hung up, called up Bankston, demanded to know whether he's representing Possel, and Bankston, who didn't know much about the case yet and didn't know Possel's name, said, I, I don't know any Mike Possel, and then Randazza thought he was being screwed with, so he called back and yelled obscenities at uh, Possel and this woman at the Honor Network who was helping him, and that this Bankston attorney didn't know who Possel was, Randazza was saying, and then after that refused to give more than 30 days. So uh, who knows if this is true or, or partially true, or whatever. Even if it's true, it looks like a miscommunication. It looks to me like Randazza wanted to know if this Bankston guy was really going to take the case. Calls up, Bankston's like, what? I don't know any Mike Possel. And then Randazza's all pissed, saying, Wait, why, why do you lie to me about this? He doesn't even know any Mike Possel. So I, I don't know why you guys are screwing with me like this and got, and got really pissed. So even if you want to say that Randazza was rude, and by the way, Randazza's rude all the time. Like that's uh, He's known for being rude, so whatever. Like So the guy's rude. But <laughs> that, that just, again, doesn't have any, any bearing here. Randazza was pissed off because he thought they were lying to him. And it turned out that Bankston didn't know Possel's name and just knew it was someone having to do with poker that was uh, being accused of things on Twitter. And that only after the hang-up, he's like, oh, that's who he's talking about. Ah, crap, I, that, I told him I didn't know who that was because I didn't know his name. So, okay, like a miscommunication. There was confusion, okay? Like even, even this whole story indicates that there was a lot of confusion here between the parties and that Rendaza believed they were lying to him when they weren't actually lying, but it kind of looked like they were. So, okay, fine. So, like, how did that prevent him from getting an attorney? It looks like a misunderstanding if Bankston backed off because of this, which I can't imagine this Bankston guy is that sensitive to where he backed away from this just because of uh, that one weird phone call. Like, uh, attorneys aren't intimidated that easily. And I can't believe there's not a single attorney that Possible could find who is willing to go up against Mark Randazza. It's not like Mark Randazza is a mob attorney who's going to have them uh, buried in the desert somewhere. He's claiming that these attorneys are telling him that Randazza is difficult to deal with and a jerk, and has trolls on social media that harass people. The, 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 like, I don't even know if that's true about the social media trolls. I'm not, I'm not even seeing evidence of that. Like, I'm, wa- I'm watching Mark Randaz's social media posts, and I'm, I'm not seeing trolls then turning around to harass people. I'm just, like, where is this even happening? It happened with the Alex Jones thing, but that wasn't because of Randazza. That was because of uh, Alex Jones has, like, a ton of trolls that listen to his show. But that's a totally different matter. So who, who knows even what he means by that? But I'm not seeing anything from this story that was preventing Possible from getting an attorney or why Randazza should not get awarded these attorney's fees or that Veronica should be awarded them for hiring Mike Randa- Mark Randazza. Like, none of this makes any sense. Ms. Merrill and I both filed complaints about Mr. Randazza on March 18, 2021. Despite no further contact, Mr. Randazza has continued to attack Ms. Merrill and the Honor Network online. She made it very clear that she was not a lawyer and that the Honor Network does not give legal advice, but they do offer legal referral, and that's exactly what they did. Clearly, his issue with the Honor Network is due to the Alex Jones case, but that has nothing to do with me, and I shouldn't have to pay for his personal vendettas against the father of a murdered kindergartner. Okay, well, yes, I, I do believe that Randazza probably has an issue with the Honor Network because of his history with them, but I think they also have an interest in this case. Because of their previous history with Mark Randazza, it goes two ways. So that's an interesting statement. Like, would the Honor Network really be involved here if Randazza was not one of the attorneys? I have my doubts. Doxing. 
Here's a, a doxing accusation. Mr. Rendazza's unethical and threatening behavior towards me and those who might be able to provide assistance certainly didn't stop there. With a short extension granted, I began to prepare my response to the anti-slap, but I was dealt two blows in a short span of time. Mr. Bankston's father died on March 24th, and he wouldn't be available, and Ms. Merrill was hospitalized on April 1st, and she wouldn't be available. So wait, wait a minute. I, th- I thought Randazza was stopping Possel from getting an attorney. It looks like Bankston was going to represent him anyway, and then his father died, according to this uh, filing. And then Ms. Merrill, who wasn't even an attorney, was hospitalized on April 1st. With no hope of handling this myself, I asked to withdraw the case, but it would to be allowed to refile at a later date. Mr. Randazza posted withdrawal form on Twitter, including my address and phone number, despite being aware that myself and my minor daughter have been the subject of death threats. He mocked me, linked his tweet to a video where a man is beaten up, and says this is what happens, and then others pointed out that he was doxing someone by posting their personal address online as illegal. He refused to remove it. Instead of removing it, Ms. Brill retweeted it and shared my address and phone number dozens of times. Well, Mike, you you put your address and phone number on a court document that is public record. Like this document I'm reading from right now has your address and phone number. I'm not going to read it, but but it's part of the document. I could read it. I'm not going to read it because I I I'm not going to uh to do that. But when you put your address and phone number on a court document that becomes public record, then anyone who gets that document or anyone who posts this document, it's going to end up revealing that. That's that's an argument not to reveal that information in a court document and maybe get an alternate number to list or or an alternate mailing address. I understand it's a pain in the ass, but that's something you have to take care of when you are when you're involved in a case that there's public interest. If it's like a personal injury case because you got in a car accident, uh, then you don't have to worry as much. But still, if someone brings it up, they could find it. But uh, in something like this, where you know a lot of people are going to be reading these documents, and these documents aren't top secret. These documents are accessible to anyone who wishes to get them. This is, this is publicly accessible stuff. These documents can be retrieved by anybody. So I don't know why you think this is like secret information. You provided it on these documents, and then Rendaza posted it. Now, it is true. I did see in this Twitter exchange that when it was brought to Rendaza's attention that your phone number and address were up there, that he wouldn't take it down. He said, I, had I known that I wouldn't have posted it, I would have redacted it. And someone said, well, you can still take it down and redact it and repost it. And he said something like, not interested. But I guess Randazza could argue, I, I don't want to redo all this. I, I don't want to have to delink this from all the comments we already got to this whole thing. Like He, he doesn't want to make a whole new Twitter post when he already made one with people commenting it already. So... That that would be his answer of why he just doesn't feel like doing that. He didn't say that, but as my guess would be, if he was asked why he wouldn't redo it, that would be why. And he was saying he didn't intend to. Now, you can claim that he did know this the whole way, and he did this as kind of an FU, but the bottom line is when you put your address and phone number on a legal document that is part of the public record, then this is what will happen if someone posts that document. It's not like Randazza said, hey, everybody, here's Postle's address. That would be a different story. He posted a document where Postle listed his own address and... That's what happens. That's uh, a warning to everybody here on the show that if you're going to be filing legal documents, that these can be brought up by others and your any information you put on there, including personal information, will be seen. So you may want to go get a private mailbox or, or get a, a burner phone or something that you don't want listed there if you don't want that information made public. Then he said in a section called misrepresentation, I would like to draw your attention to a situation 
that I do think has bearing on this case. Mr. Mendez has mentioned many times that I had no interest in actually pursuing this case and only did so for fame or attention. His support of this position is twofold. First, that a documentarian contacted me about making a documentary about the scandal, and second, that I made no real attempt to find counsel. By the way, the thing he's not mentioning here is that he didn't serve anybody. That's the biggest problem. Nobody was served. Six months, nobody was served. You filed on October 1st. Nobody was served. April 1st, you dropped it. Exactly six months, no one was served, including corporate defendants who are incredibly easy to serve. That I know that my attorney brought that up. I know that Randazza brought that up. For some reason, you're not mentioning this here, but that's uh, that's the biggest piece of information here that would lead one to believe that this was not a serious case. Maybe it was a serious case, but you, you certainly didn't behave like it was. You, you don't file something and let it six or six months without serving anybody, especially corporate defendants who are incredibly easy to serve. So he writes, I was contacted about participating in some sort of documentary project, but to date, the no project has materialized. I was not the facilitator. I did not contact anyone asking to make a film or TV show about me or the scandal. Now, that may be true. I don't know who contacted who. I know there was this Dave Broom guy who did a documentary or wants to do a documentary about the possible situation. Haven't heard much from him recently, but he did contact Postle. He did contact Veronica. I don't know who made initial contact. I don't know who brought Mr. Broom's attention to this, but I know Mr. Broom is real, and I know he is wanting to do this documentary. I don't know who's funding it, but there is some sort of documentary that's planned. Whether it ever takes place, I don't know. I haven't seen anything about it yet. But it's possible that Postle was the one contacted and it wasn't the other way around, but okay, that still doesn't explain why he didn't serve anybody. Additionally, I have not pursued press at all. In fact, I've been completely off social media since September 30th, 2019, and I have spoken to the press only in response to Ms. Brill's failed attempt to sue me. Even those rare interviews haven't occurred since October 2020. I have not sought attention through the press or social media in any way. Mr. Rendaz has continued attempts to paint me as a media seeker, are easily verifiable as inaccurate, and are a continued attempt to cast me in a false light. If his position were so strong, why the need to lie? Well, you said right there in the Sacramento Bee that this documentary that's coming out would not only shock the poker community, it will shock the world. These were your words, Mr. Postle. So that does kind of look like someone seeking attention. You want to shock the world with your story. <laughs> if you wanted no attention, you could have told the Sacramento Bee, sorry, I, I don't want to be interviewed. I have nothing to say. Or you could have just quickly said a few things. But you said... My documentary coming out, the documentary that's all about me, will not only shock the poker community, it shall shock the world! So yeah, that does kind of look like attention-seeking. It is true he hasn't been active in social media, but he's definitely he definitely was in the newspaper promoting this upcoming documentary, and he also appeared on Mike Mattisau's podcast for like two hours in an extensive interview about this entire thing. Now, yes, this was uh, not too long after the scandal first broke, but this was after that September 30th, 2019 date that he claimed he left social media. So I, I guess the only truth in this whole thing is he hasn't been constantly seeking social media attention. That part's true. But that doesn't mean that there's not some kind of ultimate goal to get attention uh, later on. And being in a documentary 
and then promoting it in the newspaper. I, to me, that would look like he does want to get attention later on. If you don't want attention to yourself, you you tell the documentary maker, no thanks, <laughs> I'm not going to be in this. You don't say it's going to shock the world in the newspaper. That would be drumming up interest in it. Then he writes, continued dishonesty. Mr. Rendaz's dishonesty continues in his letter to the court, feigning a complete lack of understanding to why Miss Brill was included in my suit and minimizing her role in what has happened to me. I have known Ms. Brill for many years. And while I was a professional poker player, she was a part-time commentator. Over the years, I have been aware of five other male poker players whom she is accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. I've been warned to avoid her. I was in the middle of a painful divorce and custody battle and tried to avoid more drama by ensuring that we were never alone together. Eventually, I had to be very stern that I wasn't interested. What? What? Is he trying to say Veronica wanted to sleep with him? What? <laughs> what? I had to be very stern that I wasn't interested. Mm. Angry at being rejected, she turned very nasty. On the final day of her employment at Stone's Gambling Hall, she used her show to attempt to get me banned from the casino by claiming Mike must be cheating. I don't really think that she expected her statement to blow up like it did. Previously, when she went after someone, as she did with Roger Bailey and at least four others whom I'm aware, her target was simply canceled. But all of a sudden, this person who had failed to make a career for herself as a commentator and was minutes until the end of her last show, a person with hardly any social media followers, had the whole poker world hanging on her word. She went from 1,000 followers on social media to more than 14K almost overnight. Poker celebrities wanted to talk about the scandal. Poker shows and sports shows all wanted to talk to her. They called her a whistleblower and a hero and wanted to know how she cracked the cheating scandal. Quickly, it went from it's greater than 0% chance that he's cheating to he is a cheat and I can prove it, though, of course, she never did prove it. Within days, she launched a $30 million lawsuit, not focused on me, but on the deep pockets of the casino with myself and floor manager's casualties. 89 people jumped on the suit, expecting the casino to quickly and quietly pay out, but that didn't happen. Stone's Gambling Hall, the casino, did their own investigation, hired a third party to do a second investigation, and the DOJ, referring to the California DOJ, by the way, did a third. The judge dropped me from the case, but Brill battled on, hoping a big win for the casino. Eventually, Ms. Brill's attorney at the time, Mac Verstandick, had to issue a statement that no cheating was found. Okay, let me, let me stop here. Have you ever heard the statement, the evidence of absence does not mean the absence of evidence? That was actually said about Iraq, about the weapon of mass destruction, when they weren't found there during the Iraq War, the second Iraq War here in the early 2000s. That kind of applies here. Now, this doesn't directly have to do with Mike Postle because this wasn't his choice, but uh, the investigation was meaningless here on Stones because there was no chain of custody regarding any of the stuff that was examined. By the time the forensics evaluation was done, a lot of people had access to it between the first cheating accusations made on Twitter in late September and when this was done. It's not like the police came and immediately seized it and kept it in a secure location. This was in Stone's possession, to my knowledge, until this investigation was done, and they hired their own people to do it. Now, yes, I know the California DOJ was there, but still, by this point, any evidence that was, that was there or not there wasn't reliable anymore because it was in the custody of Stone's. So it's possible there was never any incriminating evidence in the first place. And it's possible there was someone who was removed. It's impossible to tell because this stuff was not grabbed when these accusations first came out. So that it's meaningless. These investigations do not mean there was cheating. 
They also don't mean that there was no cheating. It just means you can't determine anything from them because by the time the investigations were done, things could have been modified. There's no way to know. So that's, that's why this type of thing would never hold up in court because the other side would say, yeah, but didn't Stone have this equipment all this time? Wouldn't it be in their interest to remove anything that they wouldn't want seen? Well, yes. <laughs> so th- this is why unless immediately this stuff is uh, either seized or held by a trusted and neutral third party, where it can't be tampered with, any non-evidence found there is meaningless. Now, what about this statement from Mac Verstandig that no cheating was found? Well, I didn't like that Mac made that statement. I was critical of it. I'm still critical of it. I think it was dumb. I think everybody sold out for pennies and uh, basically put their name on something they likely thought wasn't true. That's why Veronica wouldn't be part of it. That's why a lot of those plaintiffs of the 89 people refused the the pittance that was offered to them and would not put their name on that statement. There were some people like Jeff Boski, who must need the money, I don't know, but who put their name on the on the damn thing. But basically it was carefully worded to say, well, we didn't find anything. Well, yeah, of course, for the reasons I just said. By the time you looked, anything that would have been there wouldn't be there anymore. Either there was never anything there or something was there, it was removed, it's impossible to tell. So that, that's why it's meaningless to put that up there. So that, that statement was meaningless. That statement was something that was put out as part of a settlement to get a, a, a token settlement for the plaintiffs here. And I, I felt that was a mistake. Because I, I, I think that Mac wanted to get a W for the clients. I think he wanted to give them something. I think he didn't want to walk away empty-handed for them. I don't think he cared about the pittance he was awarded because he didn't get very much money out of this. I don't think Mac did it for money himself. But I I think Mac didn't want to... It didn't want to look like he lost both the suit against Postle and the suit against Stones and walked away with nothing. So this way he can claim, okay, look, we got a settlement. But it backfired because the the poker community was very unhappy with Mac over this because the, the settlement was tiny and they had to put out this obnoxious statement that was misleading. So people didn't like that. And I, I think if Mac had to do it over again, I, I can't say for sure, but I have a feeling he would have done it differently. He's never told me that. I'm just guessing because he got a pretty bad reaction to this. I think he was treating this like, hey, something's better than nothing without really stopping to think about, wait a minute, what about the public implications of this? Maybe we shouldn't do this. And I, I said that at the time. And, and I like Mac, and I'm not uh, trying to be critical of him. I'm just, I'm just saying that that particular move by him I don't agree with. And I don't agree with those who signed that statement. But the reason the statement meant nothing is because the statement was made based upon investigations that were done way after the fact. So he goes on to write, instead of apologizing or even ignoring me and moving on, Mr. Ms. Brill doubled down, calling me a cheater, con man, and scumbag. She did countless videos and interviews, even claiming the DOJ was bought and paid for by the casinos. Even now, she still goes on Twitter to mock me and call me a cheater, even, ma- even posting the video of the last court procedure, making fun of me because I was nervous and didn't speak as well as I would have liked. It is endless. Well, okay, so you and Veronica don't like each other. Okay, like, so she said mean things about you on the internet. Like, you, you two are never going to be best friends. You two are, are never going to date. You two are never going to be uh, ones who care deeply about one another. So, yeah, she said bad things about you on the internet. True, but there's no crime against that. Like, she can. She can give her opinion that she thinks you're all these bad things she's saying. And uh, she can make fun of your court appearance. 
that's if you appear on on video Zoom court and everybody in the internet can watch it, and then they make fun of you. Well, that's that's part of the hazards of appearing on Zoom court. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's the way it goes. You may not like it, but uh, people can do that. If I appear on Zoom court, people can make fun of me too. I'm sure they will. You know, like that that's the way it goes. If if the public has an interest in the case and the public finds things to make fun of and they don't like you, they they will make fun of you. That's kind of the way the internet works, but you can't I don't see what this has to do with attorney's fees. Like why, why is it matter if Veronica is, is making fun of how you came off on that uh court appearance? Like really, it it doesn't matter. This this is not being considered here. The case is over. Exhibit 19 Twitter posts, including the court video, revealing that she's aware she's not supposed to have it and that she doesn't care that she's violating the court's order. That's referring to the fact that the video of the court was not supposed to be reproduced. It did say not to be recorded. Not really prominently, but it did say that in the bottom corner. I mentioned to you guys, after Apostle appeared there with Eric Benzamokin and the judge, that I could not play it on this show for that reason, because I was being respectful of the court's wishes from what I saw on that video. It says not to be recorded, so I I wasn't going to play it back on this show and violate what the court wanted. Somebody else, who I don't even know, just some anonymous guy on YouTube, copied it and slapped it up on YouTube. So I don't know if it's still up there. I haven't looked, but I I don't even think he's alleging that Veronica had anything to do with it because I, I really think it was just some random on YouTube who did this. But I, I don't understand the part about Veronica with having it uh, in, in the video. I, I don't know what he's talking about there. I understand that I'm without a lawyer and so at a significant disadvantage. I'm so thankful that I have friends and supporters around the country who have spent evenings and weekends trying to help me compile this information and launch a defense. But no one can risk defending me, even on social media, because Ms. Brill and Mr. Randazza have proven themselves to be eager to attack and devour anyone who supports me or even questions the storyline. My life has been completely destroyed by this baseless accusation. Yet thanks to Ms. Brill, I continue to be attacked, and my name is a punchline in jokes, and I am referred to as a cheater in a nationwide audience on gigs she has landed because of her attack on me. I understand life isn't fair, but I don't understand how someone can be allowed to use the internet to destroy a person's life without consequence. I understand that poker and gamblers in general have a reputation of being less than upstanding members of society, so this may seem like an inconsequential issue. But I am a good person. I'm a single father raising a young daughter by playing poker. I've been a professional poker player for over 17 years. This is a game that I love and a game I'm good at. But because of Ms. Brill, I can't even earn a living in my chosen profession. Question. Why not? Why not? Um, Are you banned from every casino in the U.S.? Even if some local area casinos have banned you, which I don't know if they have or haven't, but even if they have, are you banned from every poker room in the U.S.? I don't believe so. Can you not find a poker game in a card room in the U.S. that is of that spreads the game and limits that you were typically playing before all this happened. I'm talking about typically playing, not that time you played higher for one of the streams. I mean, what your, your typical game you were playing before was like 2-5 no limit or something. Uh, can you not find that game? Can you not play online? Are you banned from Bovada? Are you banned from ACR? Are you banned from Bet Online? Are you banned from the legalized poker sites if you were to move to one of those states? So I don't understand why you're saying you can't make a living. I have not set foot in a card room for uh, getting close to uh, 17 months here. 
And I've continued playing poker online. I'm in the same state as you are. But for some reason, you seem to think you can't make a living, which is a little bit odd. I, ne- I never understood that argument, unless you want to claim that these accusations caused you to be banned from every card room and every online poker room. I don't understand how this stopped it. He finishes off with, I understand that the law requires people who bring an anti-slap have their fees covered in order to protect those who might not otherwise be able to afford to fight, but it isn't supposed to be a lottery win for the opposition. I didn't complain about Todd Wittellis' fees, despite Mr. Benzamokin's claim in court that his client made one post one time. He has spent hours and hours on his podcast calling me a cheater, a liar, and continues to do so. Oh, look, he's talking about me. Isn't that sweet? Uh, Though certainly more carefully now. (laughs) Okay, let me stop. This, This statement about me, I want to address this. The paperwork you filed, Mike, referenced like two sentences that I wrote on Poker Fraud Alert about you. That was it. You did not mention anything else. That is your fault. Or I guess you could say your attorney's fault. I didn't, so it's definitely not our fault that that's what you referenced. I never denied that I spoke about you on my show. But my show was not part of the lawsuit. So that did not have to be defended at this time. If it was, we would have defended that too. You were just one of many, many topics that I covered. That's the truth go look. Go look before I ever knew who you were at all the different topics I've covered over time on this show about poker and gambling stories. Some about scams and scandals, some just about interesting stories and personalities and notable stuff that happens in these worlds. So it's not all about you. It's not about Veronica. I don't care about that stuff. This was a very, very big story. Even you said it'll shock the world. So I covered it. That's all I did. I gave my opinion. That's all I did. I was not interested in ruining your life. I was not interested in trashing your reputation. I was not interested in supporting Veronica or Doug Polk or Joey Ingram or anyone who was saying anything bad about you. I saw an allegation. I watched videos. I came to my own opinion and I presented it as I do about every story like this in poker. And if you do not have people like me doing this, then people get away with bad things. It's important that this type of stuff is discussed and that we get down to the truth about any story, not just about you, but about all the stories before you and about all these stories since the story about you came up. I'm going to talk about other scandals tonight. I'm going to do it again next week and the week afterwards. He goes on to write, while I don't excuse what Mr. Wattellis has done to me, The fact is he pursued me so vigorously in order to impress Ms. Brill. (laughs) Repeating everything she claimed about me and then reporting to her what he had done. No, no. I I never reported to her what I had done, first of all. I I didn't run back to Veronica. Veronica, look what I did. Look what I did. Look, 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 look. Do you like me now? Do you like me now? No, no. I also did not repeat everything she claimed. I stated what she claimed. I stated, this is what Veronica is saying. And then I stated, here's what I think. Here is my opinion. Here's what I have decided from what I have seen. That's what I did. I did not do this for her or to impress her or to back up her narrative. He writes, Ms. Brill should be held accountable for the ongoing harassment and defamation that has far-reaching consequences for myself and my family. 
withdrawing from a case that I feel certain could easily be proven, a case that winning might not regain all that I have lost, but would at least feel like a degree of justice was received was devastating. But I didn't feel that I had a choice. I understand that we aren't trying her actions in this forum. Okay, well then why, why, why all this stuff? If you understand it, what what the hell was this whole long thing about? But paying Mark Randazza for his continued campaign of manipulation and intimidation on her behalf, especially after he's already been paid, that I simply don't understand. You don't understand. You're right about that. You're not paying him for harassment or for any kind of campaign. You're paying either him or whoever paid him for the legal work done to defend Veronica here. You get it now? Legal work is done. Legal work is not free. Legal work has a price. And that when the court awards attorney's fees, it's saying the attorneys should be compensated. And if they already have been compensated, then the person who paid them should be compensated because we don't feel it should be coming out of that side's pocket. It should be coming out of the other side's pocket because their lawsuit had no merit. That's what attorney's fees are about. It does not matter who's already been paid or where the money came from. It doesn't matter if they've been paid at all. As I said, it is completely fine for an attorney to say, I think this anti-slap motion is so strong and I think our chance to collect is so high that I won't even charge you up front. I'll just take whatever we're awarded in attorney's fees. That's completely legal to do. That's a form of contingency. It's also completely legal to have the attorney get paid everything up front and then to have the attorney fees go to the to the person who paid them, whether it is the party in the case or a third party. Completely legal there too. Even if it came from GoFundMe. Still. Just because you had to go fund me to raise the money doesn't mean that you can't get the attorney's fees back. It's simply determining what fees were actually charged and whether it is reasonable and whether attorney's fees should be awarded. And that's it. Nothing else. Conclusion, for the reasons set forth above, I respectfully request that the court should construe the defendant's request for legal fees to be denied on the basis that Mr. Rendaza has already been compensated more than the amounts in the previous proceeding, that his claim for 142 hours of work is not only excessive, but fraudulently so, and his unprofessional behavior has been an obstruction to this entire proceeding. That's it. And then there's like a million detachments that take up like the next like 300 pages. I'm not even kidding. It's, a, it's a, actually a 331-page document. <laughs> I can't imagine the judge is going to read all this. So it's really 331 pages. I... I been told at first it's 133 pages. No, it's actually 331 pages. But there's like 14 pages of arguments and then uh, over 300 pages, 319 pages of exhibits. <laughs> about attorney's fees. That's all this is about is attorney's fees. 331 pages. You got to be kidding me. Anyway, I don't think this is going to have any impact. That's my guess. I think the judge is going to say the following. I think she's going to say, number one, Randaz's previous problems or accusations against him by others as no relevance here. So we're not even considering it, which I, I can't imagine her not saying that because it really has no relevance here. And uh, anything about me and Veronica and, and, and about making fun of your video and all like, again, no relevance here has no relevance to attorney's fees. I think just about all of this is going to be ignored. I think the only thing that will be really looked at will be what I got and is there any kind of connection to that also the way that Randazzo was paid again not relevant I, I really think the only thing will be about 
how much work Randazza did on this versus what needed to be done and what I got. That's that's really the only relevant things here. And of course, the judge knows very well what I got because she's the one who gave it. <laughs> yeah, you could really sum this up in one page. You don't need 331. But that was filed. So I, I still don't think Mike gets it here. I still think he doesn't get what the attorney's fees hearing is about. If he does understand, then this document doesn't make very much sense. We will see what happens on the 16th. If you want to follow it, uh, I'm sure this will be announced on the 15th, which, in case you're wondering, is a Tuesday. Probably in the afternoon on the 15th, the court is going to post the preliminary attorney's fees award. I think it's very unlikely it's going to be denied. So it's probably going to be awarded and probably, my guess is probably like 35K. That's my guess right now. That's what I'm saying. The over-under is 35K will be awarded. Far less than 78K. That's what I think they're going to get. I'd be surprised if I get it on the nose. Would 40K surprise me? No. Would 30K surprise me? No. Would 65K surprise me? Yes. Would 10K surprise me? Yes. Would zero surprise me? Big time. I guess we'll see. I will say this, and then we'll move on from Puzzle. This case was dismissed without prejudice. And that means I could be sued again over the same thing. And I know that Puzzle even communicated to my attorney shortly before our hearing that he plans to do so. That doesn't mean anything, but he did, he did communicate that. If he actually does so, I'm going to fight it again. And I'm never going to give up fighting this. There is no point will I ever agree to any form of uh, settlement because I was hit with a frivolous lawsuit. And we gave him a way out of this frivolous lawsuit without costing him a penny. We said, drop me out and we won't come after you for anything. And we'll agree to this in writing. And he said, no. And he continued. So we said, okay, we're going to file an anti-slap. You okay with that? And he, I mean, he, he didn't stop. He said, no. He said, I'm not, go- I'm not going to drop him out. We were never asking for the lawsuit to be dropped entirely, only to drop me out with prejudice so I could never be brought back in. And he would not do that. And that's all he had to do. And I would have been out of it. I would have been out of it. And I would not have come after him for attorney's fees because that would have been part of the agreement. But he refused. So then he ran up fees in defending this. And those fees have to be paid. That's his own doing. So I will keep defending this. And his case is very, very weak. The bottom line is, and we said this in our response, this is the secret. The bottom line is he went on a podcast shortly after the story broke, the Mike Mattisau podcast. And he admitted that he allowed Stones to portray him as a wonder boy, as the greatest ever, these were his own words, that he allowed them to do this, that he was okay with them doing this, and that he allowed them to do this to drum up interest in the stream and the casino itself. So that's it. When you've done that, you have made yourself into a limited-purpose public figure in poker. And at that point, if anybody wants to make comment about the stream and your play on the stream, they can. And even if you don't agree with their opinion, even if you are sure their opinion is wrong, even if their opinion ends up uh, harming your reputation, this is what 
happens when you play on a public stream and allow the casino to portray you as a wonder boy and the greatest ever. Once you do that, you make yourself a public figure, you open yourself up to comment. And anyone who watches those videos definitely will notice a lot of non-standard things happening. Now, whether these non-standard things mean that uh, something bad occurred there, you can say that's up for debate, but definitely your play on a lot of these streams over a year and a half was non-standard, and a lot of non-standard things happened. So, of course, the public has a right to comment on this. This was not only that you're a public figure, but this was of the public interest because it was a publicly streamed game. And it was definitely of the public interest that everything in a streamed game where whole cards are visible to certain parties, that everything's on the up and up. And if it isn't, then the public needs to know so they don't play in other streamed games or they're aware of the danger. So this is something very much of the public interest and you voluntarily made yourself into a public figure. And that's part of being a public figure. When you're a public figure, you lose a lot of the rights to sue for defamation. And if you don't like that, then you should not become a public figure. That's one of the downsides to being a public figure, is that your ability to sue for defamation is much reduced. At that point, you have to prove something known as actual malice, which means you have to prove that not only was what they are saying false, but they had to have known it was false when they said it. And obviously, you can't say that about me. Anytime I've said anything about you, it was 100% what I really believed. That's true today. That was true two years ago. And I would have no reason to make up things about you that aren't true. Why would I have done that? I didn't know you. I didn't know Veronica. I, I had no reason to take anyone's side here. And I've been doing this, talking about all these stories for so many years, and I've always been very careful to be neutral and to give my true and honest opinion and not let anything cause a bias. Then I got sued somehow, and I'm never going to give up. So if you want to refile against me, you can try. I suggest you don't, but you'll try and you'll get the same result. So I, I hope you're not dumb enough to do that. And we'll get the same result faster, by the way and a lot more easily. I shouldn't have been in this in the first place. No matter what you think about some of the other more major figures involved in this, I should not have been in this in the first place. I, I didn't have an impact. I did not have anything to do with the shitstorm that got started. Whether justified or unjustified, I had nothing to do with it. I came later. And you can look back at the dates and you'll see that history proves that. So your beef shouldn't have been with me anyway, regardless of what you feel happened to you. Even if you feel we were not at fault at all, I should not have been brought into this. I talked about it once everybody else was already. You listed a thousand John Doe's because I guess you think a thousand people were talking about it. I disagree. I think more than a thousand people were talking about it. And I was one of thousands talking about it. That's all I was. But I'm currently one of two people with an anti-slap motion. And I'm the only one person currently with a judgment against you over this matter. Because you dragged me into this, which I just wanted out of the whole time. I will never pay a penny to settle anything like this because I did nothing wrong. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Speaking of never paying a penny, 
Some scammer or hacker on Venmo has been targeting me. It may have been a random targeting that was just uh, similar to what has been happening to other poker pros, or it might be the great Venmo poker pro hacker at work. I say great sarcastically, though I guess technically he is great because he's pulling off something even Venmo doesn't understand is happening. Like Venmo won't even acknowledge this, but whoever's doing this can get into any Venmo account at will which is pretty impressive. It's frustrating. It's criminal behavior. This guy belongs in prison, but it is impressive that he pulled it off. Though I think it's also possible it's something someone stumbled into, and it may not have been a great hacking job. It may have been an accidental discovery. Let me get to what's going on here and why I'm discussing it again. I bring this every so off- I bring this up every so often on this show. In November... I talked about the Venmo hack that was brought to the poker community's attention. This is in late November. Daniel Negranu and Eric Seidel were the first to bring this up, both on November 24th. On November 24th, Daniel Negranu not only had his Venmo account drained, but then whoever drained his account also used his account to pay for an Uber ride in Las Vegas. <laughs> So I assume the person's in Las Vegas. Actually, I'm not even sure it's Las Vegas. He just said they paid for a $43 Uber ride on his dime. Maybe it wasn't Las Vegas. I'd love to know from Negreanu what city this was in. I kind of assumed it was Vegas. It might be Vegas. Anyway, Negreanu wrote at the time, you just stole 15 k dude, and you still need to get me for $43 more? Ain't you a piece of work? <laughs> it's really ballsy to go take an Uber on Negreanu's dime after you drain his account. Eric Seidel said, looks like my Venmo has been hacked and email connected to the account changed. I've tried calling, emailing, contacting Venmo with no response for the last hour. Well, this became a pattern. This started happening to many poker pros in November, and then it continued happening in December, in January, in February, in March, in April, and in May. This just keeps happening. Some are big name pros like Seidel and Negranu. Some are not such big name pros. They're ones you know their names, but not massive pros that everyone would know. As I mentioned on the show, Vanessa's helps got hit the next day, and she understood it was happening because she saw all the signs that Negranu and Seidel had talked about. Basically, they talked about what happened is they had gotten requests for small amounts of money for uh, like such and such person requests $6 from you, and they could just kind of ignore it, like, who the hell is this? Why are they requesting $6 from me? And then right after that, their account would get compromised. So... Vanessa Selbst got a $6 request from a fake Dan Coleman. It wasn't the real Dan Coleman. It presumably wasn't even Dan Coleman's account. But from someone who called himself Dan Coleman, with the exact same spelling as the poker pro Dan Coleman, they sent a $6 request to Vanessa. And Vanessa's like, oh, shit, I know what this is. They're trying to hack my Venmo. So what she did is she changed her password, and she also sent all her funds to her wife. Well, that didn't do any good because the password change didn't matter. The... Hacker can get in through some sort of backdoor method, and they just got into her account anyway. And then they looked at her history and like, oh, okay, well, I see you sent the money over to your wife. Okay, well, we'll just hack your wife's account. <laughs> that's, that's what they did. They went right into her wife's account and uh, emptied that one. So that was the end of that money. Uh, Steve O'Dwyer was uh, another one who had it happen to him. He's one who's not as well-known, but he was also hacked. Mike Mattisau was hit. This was on December 28th. 
Justin Bonomo was hit in February, or actually in January. He posted about it in February. Then he was hit again. Oweas Ahmed was hit in February. Shannon Shore got hit, but he was actually able to get his money back. One problem was that Venmo was super uncooperative. And they were super difficult. So they were just non-responsive or they weren't admitting that they were at fault or that their system was uh, vulnerable and they weren't giving anyone their money back. Tim Kramer, again, a poker pro, but not someone super well-known, he got hit. Joe Cata got hit. He said even though he he had a pin set up that didn't help him, they got right in, which makes sense because they get into the back, a back door. This is in March. A lot of victims here. And the only one to my knowledge who has ever gotten their money back with Shannon Shore. Everybody else was just screwed. Everybody else was just either not responded to by Venmo or Venmo just gave them form letters and basically wouldn't do anything for them. Six more people got hit. On March 29th, Ben Lamb said, five people have messaged me today saying that their Venmo has been hacked and Venmo won't even give them a proper response today. And then Tony Dunst said that he was the sixth one. He said, make me the sixth. Got some automated message addressing me as Ben while mine was hacked. <laughs> ben. Alex Keating on April 1st said that he got hit. He got two small requests, just like that thing from Dan Coleman, fake Dan Coleman, that is, that Vanessa got, that pretty much every other victim got. He said, I, I got two small requests and I got a text with Venmo with a code that I could never log in again. So you know they could get a, a two-factor authentication code, like such and such person uh, wanted to do such and such with your account. Here's your code. Enter this now. Well, of course, Alex Keating did not give this to the hacker, but the hacker got in anyway. So the hacker has some backdoor way to just get right in. That was the last we heard. I haven't scoured social media enough to know for sure that other poker pros, that I, like, I don't know if others have been hit since April 1st. But as you see, this is an ongoing thing. Like we're we're going all the way from November through early April and poker pro after poker pro keeps getting hit. Right my recommendation the whole way has been drain your balance, that means take your balance out and send it to your bank, and delink your bank account. Now if your bank account is linked and you have a zero balance, you do have some recourse through your bank because since that the hacker would have to be using your bank to take money out of your bank account through Venmo, you can go to your bank and say that was fraudulent. It was done by a hacker. And then what the bank would do is contact Venmo and basically make Venmo give the money back. It's a pain in the ass, but you can probably get it back. Some, not something you want to have happen. It's, one, it's something you want to avoid, but you're not totally screwed. But if you have a balance in Venmo, if you have money just sitting on Venmo and the hacker takes it, then good luck ever getting that back. The only one who got it back was Shannon Shore. I don't know how he pulled off this miracle, but the rest of them could not get it back and they just ate it. Because it's up to Venmo at that point whether they give it back to you or not. I think they probably deserve to be sued over this. And maybe Eric Bensamo can get to that after he's done with his PayPal lawsuit. Same company, by the way. But I recommended that either close your Venmo account or if you want to have one, delink a bank account and make sure you have a zero balance. Well, well, guess what happened? They came for me, or at least I think they did. On June 9th, just a few days ago, I wonder if this might happen to me because, you know, I'm no Daniel Negreanu or Eric Seidel or even uh, Vanessa Selbst. I mean, me and, Ves- me and Vanessa Selbst both, both like girls, but that's about uh, where our similarities end. I-, I guess we both like girls and we both play poker. 
That that's about it. And I, I was once friends with uh, Dustin Wolf, and she looks like Dustin Wolf. So I guess we have that too. But she also looks like looks like uh, Doug Polk. Kind of like if Dustin Wolf and Doug Polk had a baby. That'd be Vanessa. But anyway, I'm not a big name, but I'm not a nobody in poker. Kind of someone, if you pay attention to poker, you know who I am. But if you only lightly pay attention to poker, you don't know who I am. And since it's been 15 years since I've won a bracelet, sorry, 16 years since I won a bracelet, and since I'm not a tournament player for the most part, I don't get that much attention for my poker play. I'm a cash player, and there's uh, cash players who do really, really well, better than I do, that are totally unknown. Cash players just don't get many accolades. I'm only known because of my poker media work, which is for myself, of course, and because of uh, winning a bracelet. So anyway, I'd wonder if they're going to get me at some point, since they were getting names in poker that weren't huge as well. I got a weird request at about 6 p.m. on June 9th, 6 p.m. Pacific, from Nick Scheel, S-C-H-E-E-L. Nick Scheel was requesting $100, and he was requesting it for UCSB graduation drinks, Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. And he actually put the emoji of two beers clinking. So Nick Shield thinks I should pay $100 for his graduation drinks at UCSB. Now, there is one possibility why I was hit here that has nothing to do with poker. And that is I actually went to UCSB. I actually did graduate from UCSB. I didn't have graduation drinks, but I did graduate from UCSB in the early 90s. This could be a coincidence. It could be that because I have some association with UCSB, that this is a scam that is going to UCSB alumni that they locate on Venmo. Venmo, if you don't know, is kind of like a hybrid between a social media site and a payment system. It's kind of like PayPal that's attempting to be cooler. So where PayPal is just very business-like, Venmo is like where you can kind of make friends on there, make contacts, uh, send people requests for money, things like this. So basically, this is supposed to be this guy, Nick Scheel, who just is asking me to send him 100 bucks just to make graduation drinks easier for him to pay for because he just graduated from UCSB. And it is June. I mean, it probably is around the time UCSB is graduating, but... I don't know a Nick Shield. So this is very suspicious to me. Either this was a targeted scam at people who went to UCSB and they're hoping that maybe some small percentage are going to pay, even not knowing Nick Shield, just thinking, oh, cool, he graduated. Okay, I, re- I remember when I graduated, I couldn't really afford all the drinks I wanted. So yeah, okay, Nick, have your hundreds of drinks. So he's hoping that if he fires us out of thousands of UCSB alumni that he can find on Venmo, that even a small percentage will net him thousands of dollars. Maybe that's it, or it could be a complete coincidence and that this is one of these request scams, like it's being done to all these other poker pros, that you request something and then shortly after you break into the account. So I wasn't going to take any chances. Now, the question was, was I following my own advice? I've been telling you guys since November, keep a zero balance on there. So the question is, when this happened, when Mr. Nick Scheel sent me this $100 request for the graduation drinks. Was my balance on there? 
Zero point zero. The answer is no. Because of the damn free roll, someone sent me a donation for the free roll on Venmo without me even telling them to send it to me on Venmo. But they sent it to me on Venmo, which is fine. Like, I'm not criticizing this. In fact, I very much appreciate their generosity. And uh, I haven't told anyone not to send me money on Venmo. So uh, I really appreciate that this person sent a donation on Venmo. I appreciate all free roll donations, and I mean that. It was my fault for not immediately withdrawing this money. Now, it was not a lot of money. Obviously, they're not sending me thousands of dollars for the free roll. So it was small money, but nevertheless, there was money in there. And I had meant to withdraw it immediately. I had meant to go relink my bank account, withdraw it, and then delink my bank account. That was my plan. I forgot. So about a week later, this happened. And I said, oh, shit, I never got that money out of my Venmo. So I... I jumped up and I typed in my Venmo and I'm like, please have the money be there. Please have the money be there. And the money I had left in my account after that whole thing was zero point zero. No, actually it wasn't. I had not had the money stolen yet, but I'm like, I jumped right away. The second I saw this request come in from Nick Scheel, I got right on my Venmo. I saw the uh, money in there and I immediately did the request so i uh, linked a bank account and i withdrew to that bank account and then i delinked the bank account before it was even done so presumably it can go through hopefully that doesn't screw it up but presumably it'll go through and yet no bank account is linked so if uh, the hacker gets access to my account then he will find 0.0 in there with really nothing further to do i guess the only thing he could possibly do is go through the Venmos of uh, anyone who sent me money previously and try to hit them. (laughs) So if that happens to any of you, I'm sorry, but uh, I delinked everything I could. So fortunately, I got all the money off, which wasn't much, but I I didn't want this guy even getting a dollar, obviously. And my bank is not connected. But there's something nefarious going on here. If it wasn't the poker Venmo hacker, it was some kind of scammer. So then that led me to wonder, who is Nick Scheel? Is he even real? And you know me, I'm going to look this up. I'm going to try to figure this out. So I found some interesting stuff, but I'm really not sure. This is one of these rare cases where there's a person on the internet who purports to have a certain name and identity. And usually if I look into it, I either come up with they're fake or they're real or they're real but being impersonated. I actually don't have an answer here, even though I found something. So listen to this. This is really weird. There's a Twitter that goes back to 2015 that is twitter.com slash Nicholas Scheel, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S underscore S-C-H-E-E-L, Nicholas Scheel, okay? If you go to that, you see Nicholas Scheel. It says IU 2021, which is presumably for Indiana University. In fact, it even says Indiana comma USA. His tweets are protected, which is bizarre. That means nobody can see them unless they're a follower of his. And he only has 193 followers, and he's following 205 people. He joined October 2015, and you can see his banner picture is him in a pool in IU. Presumably it's him. You see like some students in a pool with an IU flag in the pool, like learning to scuba dive, presumably, because that's where you learn to scuba dive is in a pool. 
and he has like scuba gear on in a pool with an IU banner there. You can see also a headshot of Nick Scheel, supposedly IU 2021, meaning he's about to graduate IU. And he looks uh, he looks younger there. He doesn't look like he's about to graduate college, so it was probably taken some years ago. So is that the same Nick Scheel? Well, let's see. So I went on and looked at some other things. Now, and also, why are his, why is his tweets protected? That's kind of unusual for a young guy on Twitter. How often do you see a young guy on Twitter who's like a regular college student? How often do you see his tweets being protected? Usually tweets are protected by someone who's controversial that doesn't want their tweets being seen by the public after some story about them that starts to go viral. Or sometimes like maybe someone getting a divorce doesn't want their ex-wife or ex-husband uh, seeing this and using stuff against them in court. That's when people protect their tweets. How often do you see some college student, some dude in college protecting his tweets? You don't see that often. Well, I found an Instagram for a Nick Shield. That's Instagram.com slash Nick Shields. Shield spelled the same way, S-H-C-E-E-L, with an underscore at the end, Nick Shield underscore. Same thing. It's protected. It says this account is private. And it says Nick Shield UCSB 2021. Hmm. Well, that looks very similar to the Twitter account. Because the other one said IU 2021 for his description. His description here on Instagram is Nick Shield UCSB 2021. Also, it shows... The one picture I can see, his main picture, is him swimming in the ocean. So again, the kind of a swimming theme. One of them in a pool, this one's in the ocean. So very likely the same guy and a, a very similar profile, and they're both private. Then I found two LinkedIn's for what seems like that same Nick Shield. Again, with a swimming water sports theme. This one shows... Nick Scheel as a younger boy, presumably, on a paddleboard, and it says about paddler, surfer, and snowboarder, pro SUB, SUP paddler, Riviera paddle surf, ocean minded, Zinka Hinano, education, St. Margaret's, says presumably some private school he went to, from 2010 to 2017. Remember, he's supposed to be graduating in 2021, which would make him about 22, especially, you can see he graduated high school in 17. That means he was born in 99. That's one LinkedIn. Then there is a more detailed LinkedIn that I found that says this. And this one says he's a Marine Safety Lifeguard Supervisor, again, with a water sports theme. Claims he's in uh, San Clemente, but then it also says he's in Santa Barbara, California. San Clemente's in California, but in Orange County, south of there. It says UC Santa Barbara. Then it says... I am fascinated by puzzles and find satisfaction in the strategy required to solve any problem. Whether I am communicating with a public, training a colleague, or attaching lift bags to a sunken ship, I strive to be tactful and sincere in my proceedings while providing the best level of service. Yeah, sincere and tactful, except for requesting money from strangers on Venmo. (laughs) I excel in team environments and am motivated to surpass expectations wherever possible. This is a lot of nonsense. Having competed as a professional athlete from a young age, I developed a deeply ingrained self-motivation and work ethic that has led to my academic and professional success. As an ocean lifeguard and EMT, I have worked to hone my communication, tactical risk assessments, and confidence under stress. Salvage diving has taught me to maintain strategy in the face of urgency and to uphold humility in a team environment. I'm excited to carry these skills with me to future endeavors and to, to, to continue to develop and sharpen myself through my upcoming career. 
Then his experience is listed that he worked for the city of San Clemente for six years, including presently, uh, for the Marine Safety Division as a lifeguard supervisor. Then he worked for Boat U.S. for the last five years, including presently, as a salvage dive contractor, presumably someone who dives down to vehicles that have sunk and they get things out. A student sales representative for Lifestyles with a Z Productions, Lifestyles Productions, from August 19th to December 2020, sales and distribution of Icon season ski passes to college students attending University of California, Santa Barbara, and other West Coast schools. And also he was an EMT for one year for the Santa Barbara County Fire Department. And then he was also an intern for three months from April to J- June 2017, presumably at the end of high school, for Western Westerly Marine, a custom boat builder in Santa Ana. And he was a team rider for Riviera Paddle Surf from January 2013 to June 2017 when he graduated high school as a sponsored athlete. He was a team rider for Life Proof as a younger kid from March 2013 to March 2014 and a team rider for Starboard SUP, also a sponsored athlete from January 2011 to December 2012. Okay, let me tell you right here if this is all true this has been a very very active kid involved in a lot of things by a young age i mean the dude's 22 look at all he did here (laughs) he's he's been a lifeguard supervisor a salvage dive contractor a student sales representative for some uh, ski passes which is a weird thing to be doing when you have all this other stuff to do an emt an intern at uh westerly marine and a team rider for paddleboard competition since he was a, a 12 year old he also has a Paddy Open Water Diver Certificate, and uh, he, as I said, he's an EMT for Orange County, they claim. I mean, this is impressive, if it's true. I'm not kidding here. That's pretty good. His parents must be proud, but there's a little bit that's uh, questionable here, which I'll get to in a second. I also found on a weird site called Trident Sports, which is tridentsports.com, exactly as it sounds, tridentsports.com. It's a Canadian site, and he blogged on there in October 2012 and July 2012 and uh, that was it July uh, I think also yeah February 2012 and January 2012 and uh, if you scroll down you can find further blogs on uh, in 2011 and even in uh, 2010 you can find actually it was, that's not true May 5th 2011 was the earliest blog you could find well 2011 he was 11 years old and in fact, he writes pretty well for an 11-year-old. He writes, a great race for a great cause. This race benefiting Surf AID, a charity that supports the Mentawai Islands, is like no other. The race begins with a pep talk about how we are helping these small villages and their people. Then comes the fun part, a six-mile SUP race. Finally, another speech, then awards. Awards for the most money raised, top competitors, and divisional rewards. Overall, a race I will never forget, and all for a great cause. I mean, it's pretty good for an 11-year-old, right? Then a few weeks later, he writes... For, for a race report for his paddleboarding, with a 2 p.m. start time, the 8th annual Malibu Downwinder had a 10 to 20 mile northwest wind to assist us in surfing the 7 mile course. Having not competed in a downwinder, I was naturally a little nervous. The downwinder was a combination of surfing and paddling rolled into one. Paddle into the swell, shift your weight back, and ease into a surf stance, then repeat. It was tons of fun. I, I don't know if I really believe he wrote this. Like, the dude was like 12. I'm not saying no 12-year-olds can write this well, but this this almost looks like it was written by an adult. In fact, it looks like it was written by an adult. So I guess in addition to be a great paddleboarder, an EMT, and uh, and salvage uh, diver, he's also 
a very good writer from a very young age. I mean, this guy can do everything. This Nick Shield. But but these are dated 10 years ago. So what's going on here? What is this Trident Sports site? Now, I didn't bother to go to the archive.org and look there if I could find these from back in 2011. That would actually be really interesting. But what's the story? Is this, guy, is this a real dude? Like, it, why didn't I contact him and say, hey, Nick, uh, what's going on here? Like, is this really you? Why would you have requested this? Did someone hack your account? Like, what's the deal here? Like, given the very bright future you would think that uh, Nick Shield has here, given what we've seen of his life, why is he scamming on Venmo? And, of course, one explanation could be he's not. Someone's pretending to be him. Someone just copied his identity. That happens all the time. Problem is I couldn't reach him. Remember, he's protecting his tweets. He's protecting his Instagram. I tried to follow him, and he did not accept my following on either site. I cannot find him on Facebook. And, strangest, I cannot find any public records about him. Now, it's true he's only 22, but like he's an e- he was an EMT. Why can we not find anything on Nick Shield? There's other Nick Shields out there, but not ones that match this age. But why, why is there no Nick Shield that is 22 that matches the places he claims to have lived? Basically, California and uh, Indiana. Why are we not seeing this? I do see a 24-year-old Nicholas Scheel, but he only lived in Fargo, North Dakota, and again, it's the wrong age here. But that's it. So how has Nick Scheel not shown up in any public record search, which is pretty hard to do? Now, yes, like an 18-year-old who's basically done very little and maybe not even registered to vote, yeah, they could dodge being in public record searches because nothing's in their name. Because the way these public record searches are done is every time you sign up for anything, you end up in some database, and then these sites buy whatever's in the database, and then you're listed there. Sometimes the info is not current. Sometimes the addresses are old, the phone numbers are old, and other records are old, emails, whatever they are. But you show up there in some way because they start accumulating information about you from companies you do business with, or even registering to vote, or even... uh, buying things or even getting loans, like anything involving credit would somehow, it would make you show up there. Like there's a lot of things that'll make you show up there. It's very hard to stay out of these unless you opt out of them. So either he opted out of them, which I guess is possible, or he doesn't exist. Now, is it possible that there's a 10-year-old blog by about him when he doesn't exist? Yes, it's possible this is some long-running identity that a scammer created 10 years ago and still uses today. It's also possible that uh, something happened to the real Nick Scheel and that some scammer took over the identity. Let's say Nick Scheel died tragically in an accident at age 16. Well, then there really wouldn't be public records about him. And then a scammer could take over that identity and and take these old blogs he wrote and uh, basically use those to validate that he's real. But I find it really strange that this guy who is so active with so many things in life does not show up in any search, and then the two social media sites about him are private. Now, you may say, well, maybe he took himself out of these searches because he had some problem. Maybe someone was stalking him. Maybe he privated his social media and got himself off these database sites because there's been someone searching for him and stalking him. But then the question would be, why? I mean, this guy seems like a happy-go-lucky dude who loves being in the water and surfing and paddle boarding and diving 
<laughs> like, like what, what enemies has he made here that would be looking to stalk him to where he has to go into hiding like this? It's also possible that he went rogue in some way and started to, yeah, maybe he really is doing this. Maybe uh, he ran into hard times and he, he, he actually is doing this stuff under his own name and, and he's taking himself out so people can't find him. I don't know. This is really strange because you see, you see all this stuff about him online, but then I can't find any public records on him. And there's this weird thing about one of the sites says he's I Twitter says he's IU twenty twenty one, and then the Instagram says he's UCSB twenty twenty one. And there's never any explanation about that anywhere. And the guy just seems to have done way too much for this age. It's not impossible. I've known people who just have so many different irons in the fire at the same time from a young age. I wonder how they don't burn out, but what a weird identity here <laughs> to be requesting 100 on Venmo. 100% this guy didn't just do it because he really wanted me to pay for his drinks. I'm like, clearly I don't know him, and it's pretty ballsy to send someone a request for $100 for your graduation drinks. So I have to imagine this got fired out to a lot of people, and then someone maybe he's hoping that a few people bite. So maybe it has to do with my UCSB association. I'd love to know the truth here. And maybe it has to do with that hacker on Venmo. Maybe it's not. But now I kind of want to find out the mystery of Nick Shield. I want to know, I want to know if he's real. I want to know if this, this uh, super water boy here is, is real. Or is this an invention of a scammer? In fact, I'm, I'm going to look up this Trident Sports. I'm, I'm curious. I should have done this before the show, but going to go to archive.org, which is a, it's called the Wayback Machine. And it keeps an archive of a lot of websites going back many years, going back to the 2000s, even the 90s, I believe. So I'm going to go to tridentsports.com, see how far back it goes. Yeah, it's been around forever. It's been around since uh, 99. So what we need to do is go to a page on, uh, let's see, March 4th, 2012. Let's see if we can find his blogs there. That would say a lot. Wouldn't completely solve the whole thing. Not even close, but at least it would say that as of that date that Nick Scheel had blogs up there. Yeah, I see it right there. Nick Scheel race report. Okay, so either this was a long-running scam or there was a real Nick Scheel. There may even very well still be a real Nick Shield. Because I can see on a site screenshot that was taken in March 2012, Nick Shield's report from a race he had in Mission Bay, San Diego, February 8th, 2012. So what the hell? So like, why is he in no public records? Now I'm really believing he removed himself. Now I think he is real, but he removed himself and he's hiding for some reason. Now, I guess it's possible that some scammer has been using his identity to fuck with him, or not to fuck with him, but just to scam and we're using him. And then maybe that's why he's hiding, because he doesn't want people coming back and accusing him. Maybe he got tired of getting messages like, hey, why are you scamming me? This is such a mystery. If anybody out here can help me solve this one, I'd appreciate it. I'm not going to do anything to Nick Shield, by the way. If you if you feel bad for Nick Shield, uh, I'm not going to do anything to him. I'd really just like to talk to him and find out what, like, what's up. But I, I typed in Nick Shield scam, and I'm not 
nothing's coming up either. So there's like not even anyone complaining that Nick Shields scammed them. This is so weird. It's like bothering me that I can't figure this out. All right, we're going to leave this alone for now. <laughs> yeah, CJN in the chat said, maybe hire Christopher Mitchell's private investigator to find Nick Shield. <laughs> maybe I should. That, that PI did a bang-up job finding Lee Bradbury. He found too much. <laughs> so maybe that is who I need to go to. Say, hey, you did a good job uh, giving Lee Bradbury's info to a scammer who doxed him. Can you find a guy who's trying to scam me on Venmo? Or at least whose name is being used to scam me on Venmo? What a weird situation. All right, well, let's move on to another weird situation. That is Phil Ivey doing an interview. How many interviews have you watched with Phil Ivey more than like a few minutes? I don't mean like after he wins a final table and they ask him a few questions. Like, how often have you ever seen Phil Ivey do an hour-long interview? I don't think I ever have. I really do not think I've ever seen Phil Ivey speaking for an hour, anywhere near an hour. He just doesn't. He is not a spotlight seeker. I know Mike Possel likes to say he's not a spotlight seeker, but but Phil Ivey definitely is not a spotlight seeker. He is some a guy who mainly likes his privacy, who really... He's, he's taken advantage of his name to make money, which is fine. Like, I would too. I'm not even bashing him for this. If you're as famous as Phil Ivey and you can make money through sponsorships, as long as you're not representing anything shady, yeah, if, you know, go ahead and do it. I would totally do the same thing. But... He's someone who, other than lending his name and image to sponsorships and maybe doing interviews for a few minutes, I've never seen him do a long-form interview. But he got talked into doing a long-form interview for Poker King. And I don't even know much about Poker King. I knew Poker Dash King, which is still around, which was like a poker news site that never really caught on that much. It used to have actually like a picture of a, a king with a crown playing poker, like a cartoon of that. And that did a lot of articles in the 2000s, this poker-king.com. I know they used to read Never Win Poker, too, so they would often make often write articles about me and about uh, Never Win Poker. So I kind of like poker-king, but then they kind of just disappeared. I think they're still around, but they're not really that relevant anymore. But this is just Poker King without the dash. And it appears to be some sort of uh, poker site because you can download it. It says new games, incredible promos. I, I don't know much about it, but PokerKing.com seems to be now connected with Phil Ivey in some way. And the only reason I know this is because that had to that was mentioned during the interview. So you remem- may remember seriously serious Thomas Keeling, and he used to be a poster on Poker Fraud Alert. And he even did a few guest radio shows on here a long time ago. But Seriously Serious, I guess, works for Poker King now, which I didn't know either. But I'm not revealing any secrets here because this was all revealed in the video I'm about to talk about. And I guess he somehow talked Phil Ivey into doing an interview for an hour with Chicago Joey, Joey Ingram. And then they put it up and uh, you can see a, a poker king watermark on the bottom left side so seriously serious is a media guy by trade he does content he does internet content that's his trade and has been for a long time so i guess he's got a job with poker king now and phil ivy signed on with poker king as a partner and he's 
he's signed on with a lot of things. You may say, oh my god, how'd they get Phil Ivey? Well, actually, getting Phil Ivey isn't that tough. <laughs> he really will sign on to a lot of things. Not quite like Johnny Chan or the Grinder, but he will sign on to a lot of things, a lot of which have failed since then. But he'll sign on to a lot of things as long as it like, seems semi-okay and they pay him. So he signed on with Poker King, and then Thomas Keeling, who also signed on with Poker King to do their media and content work, said, hey, Ivy, you know what would be great is if you did an interview, a long-form interview, which will get a lot of attention because, number one, you're Phil Ivy, and number two, people will be very interested because you hardly ever do these or you've never done these. So this will bring a lot of attention to Poker King. So can you do this? And Ivy actually said yes. And Ivy actually mentioned during the interview, he didn't mention Thomas Keeling by name, but he said the content guy, referring to Thomas, uh, talked him into it, and that now he kind of regrets it, which I he, it was kind of like half-joking, but it kind of seemed like he meaned it. He meant it, too. I'm not going to play that part of it, but uh, uh, that I, I didn't keep the timestamp. I should have played it, but I forgot the timestamp of that. But anyway, he jokingly said that he got talked into this, and that was a big mistake. But anyway, he did the interview. He did the interview with Chicago Joey, and... It's just interesting because he never does this. And I did learn some more about Phil Ivey from this interview. I'll be honest, it wasn't the most exciting interview, but it's because Phil Ivey's not a very exciting guy. He's a great poker player. He has an interesting story. He just doesn't have a very exciting personality. So there's only so much you can do with him. He's like very calm and reserved. That's that's always the way he's been. This is really a guy who's let his results do the talking, not someone who has succeeded based upon his gregarious personality. And I'm sure when you've watched him on TV, you've noticed the same thing. He's just kind of like this quiet, calculating player, not a boisterous guy. Like he's, he's not like a John Robert Balland who's very memorable because of his personality. This is a dude who's memorable because of his poker accomplishments. And after that, he's been memorable for his legal issues involving his play at these Baccarat games where he had that partner who could figure out the down cards from the errors in printing on the backs of those cards, where he had lawsuits involving uh, two different casinos, one in the UK and the Borgata here in the US, and he lost both of those. So we've talked about that over the years, and that's been the big story with him over the last several years, and that's also been what's kept him away from the World Series because uh, he knew whatever he won would be seized by the Borgata because they had like uh, an $11 million judgment against him. In fact, the last time he played the main event, it was in 2019, he played very poorly and basically just chunked it off really fast because he his his heart wasn't into it. He just uh, he knew that anything he won was going to be confiscated. So he just, I don't even know why he played. So people are wondering, since he's settled with the Borgata, which is after that, sometime after that, I forgot when it was, I think it was last year, he settled with Borgata, so that he doesn't have to worry about his assets being hidden anymore, he doesn't have to worry about his winnings being seized. He actually did have a World Series win at a different event that was seized by the Borgata. So he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. So people wonder, is he coming back to the World Series? And is he going to be more visible again? And the answer is yes. He did say in that interview that he will be coming back to the World Series. I'm not going to play that part either, but he did say that. But I, I will play you some parts where he talks about himself, because that's what I found more interesting. Not about, is Phil Ivey playing the World Series this year, or is Phil Ivey going to uh, be playing in Bobby's room again? Uh, that stuff, 
I mean, I guess it's mildly interesting, but I wanted to know more about Phil Ivey the man and his history and his family and his personality, just, just stuff that you may not have known because he's usually a man of not many words, but he's a very, very big figure in poker. So I will say in that sense, the interview didn't disappoint. You actually got to learn a lot about Phil Ivey. And, you know, props to Joey and uh, Thomas for getting this done. Props to them for getting this interview up, getting Phil Ivey to do it. And to my knowledge, it's the first time that's ever been done. And props to them for putting together a lot of good questions. So we got to learn a lot about Phil Ivey. So as I said, it wasn't a super exciting interview because Phil Ivey is a very low-key guy. But if you just watch it, you, you pick up a lot of information about him and his life that you may not have known. So I'm going to play you some clips from this, and then I will pause to talk about it. And if you want to find this, it's very easy to find. It's on Joey Ingram's channel. It's called Joe Ingram One, exactly as it sounds, Joe Ingram One, the Chicago Joey's long-running channel. And it's called Phil Ivey Conversation Poker Life Podcast. Or if you want to just go on to YouTube and type in the search bar, Joey Ingram, Phil Ivey, it'll be the first result. It's uh, 58 minutes and 43 seconds long. We're not going to play anywhere near that amount of it. But if you want to watch the whole thing, which I recommend, if you have an hour, just go watch the whole thing. Don't just take the little clips and play in here. Then do it. And I'm going to play you here starting right, from the... I'm going to play from the 2.15 mark, 2 minute 15 second mark, where Phil Ivey talks about the pandemic and how it had an effect on him. And believe it or not, Phil Ivey feels that the pandemic was a positive for him because he learned to change some things in his life when he had a lot of time to himself. I mean, it was, a, it was an incredible thing. And um, it allowed me to just get back in touch with like... You know, uh, myself, my family, you know, reality, you know, I started doing a lot of yoga and meditating and just, um, you know, um, getting things back in order mm -hmm. and um, allow me to recognize, you know, what's important and what's not. And, um, you know, uh, put a value on things and um, put a certain value on things that like are important to me, like, you know, my mental health and mm -hmm. um exercise and family mm -hmm. and a lot uh, of that links together too yeah and um it's really liberating to know like what's really matters mm -hmm. you know and it's like uh, i'm in a really good place in my life mm -hmm. right now and it's uh you know i'm really happy that's awesome man it's good yeah. to hear i mean i think a lot of people out there you know a lot of people out there really care about you as well too you know what i mean you've been around poker a long time they care a lot about you so it's good for you to hear that and people to kind of see that about you because you know, whether you like it or not, right, you're one of the faces that a lot of poker players grew up with and see on, saw you on TV all the time, playing high-stakes poker. Now I mean, you're I, me feel old. No, I mean, I was 44 years old, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm 35. I'm getting kind of old. I started playing when I was 22 years old. And, uh, you know, a lot of us in that generation, we grew up watching these rail heaven games on full tilt poker. And obviously, you were a mainstay in the game. You're playing a hold'em. You're mixing PLO. I'm like, how the fuck is this guy playing PLO and Holden at the same time against six tables, sometimes three tables, playing two opponents? Isildur's in the mix, getting crazy. So a lot of people grew up with you, but a lot of people don't know. You know, there, there was that, like, 
after Black Friday, a lot of people didn't necessarily get to, you know, some people made content, some people went to private games, some people disappeared from the, the poker spotlight altogether. And you kind of, you know, kind of came and went a little bit, obviously had some issues over time with certain things and kind of stayed out of the public eye. So I think it's real refreshing for a lot of poker fans out there just to hear that, you know, you're doing great or you're feeling good or you're feeling good about your life or you feel like you're in a good spot with yourself. Yeah, I am now. It's been a hell of a, it's been a, hell, it's been, it's, it's been a hell of a ride. But, um, yeah. So it's interesting that he said that he just kind of started meditating and that he had some time to reevaluate his life. And you heard Joey Ingram mention some of the stuff he's been through recently, which is a reference to the lawsuits about the edge sorting. But what's weird is through the entire interview for the hour they have this. And they recorded more than this. I, it was probably longer than an hour because you see, some, you see some clear edits in this. So my guess is that they went through it afterwards and maybe took out some stuff Ivy didn't want in there. I'm just guessing here. Or took out some things they just didn't like or edited the stuff that was uninteresting. So it was probably more than an hour that Ivy sat down with them. We end up seeing 58 minutes of what was left. But there were definitely edits there. But you'll never see in that 58 minutes a single mention of the lawsuits, which is weird because that's been a huge story. That's been the biggest Ivy story of recent times. So how can you go 58 minutes of a, with a ton of topics they get to without even asking about this? So I know from seeing previous content that Thomas has done, and Thomas was uh, the one putting together stuff for Doug Polk. A lot of the Doug Polk content, uh, Thomas was behind that in some way. I know Thomas definitely would have wanted that in there, just knowing him. And I have to imagine that the reason it's not there is Ivy didn't want it there. Ivy probably said, do not ask me about the Borgata. Do, do not ask me about Crockford's. I don't want that stuff mentioned. That's a condition of the interview. You can't mention this stuff. So what are they going to say? No tough luck. We're going to ask you like... If Phil Ivey's willing to sit down with you for a long-form interview, then you do it on his terms. Otherwise, he says no. <laughs> You've got to do it on his terms or the interview doesn't happen. So I'm not even blaming them for this. It's just kind of weird to watch this whole thing, and this is never directly referenced. That's the closest we get to it about the stuff he's been through recently. So I'm going to move up here to the 7-minute uh, 30 mark where he talks about a few things from his earlier life situation so do you feel like poker was maybe an escape for you from maybe worrying about all the other things that that kind of world has to give you i think that yes i think that my first real addiction to anything was poker and you know um and i used poker as an escape from reality for many years you know like i played from the time i was 18 19 years old till about 32 you know i played every single day almost mm. you know and wow, many yeah. many 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 hours and you know you know i basically I, I i spent those years that people uh mature and grow up i spent them at a poker table <laughs> you know what i mean so i yeah. never really grew up i never really dealt with any emotion never really dealt with any uh you know past things that you need to deal with in order to like evolve and like to grow mm -hmm. you know and um you know so, but as you get into the work and you start working on yourself, what I realize is that everything that I thought about myself, mm -hmm. well, most things I thought about myself 
and how I saw myself, it mm -hmm. was quite the opposite. Mm. That's interesting. If you think about Phil Ivey, he was into poker pretty much his entire adult life. In fact, he was playing before he was 21. And you'll hear a discussion of that shortly when I play the next clip after this one. I'm going to finish this clip before I go there, but that'll be the next clip after this one's done. Is about his early poker play, even before he was 21, when he was known as No Home Jerome. He's saying that his early entry into the poker world and his immediate success that prevented him from ever growing up, that he was kind of stuck in a perpetual state of like late teen, very young adulthood because he found poker at that time and he pr pretty much stayed the same guy throughout and he didn't go through a lot of things that other people go through that allows them to mature. I'm not saying everybody in that situation would go the same way, but he's claiming about himself that he didn't get to mature because of just jumping into poker at such a young age and never getting out of it and just that being his whole life that he had a view of himself that others saw very differently and that only recently has he realized that he needs to change in some ways. Now, I wonder if he's referring to his marriage. He married his high school sweetheart and there was a divorce like 10 years ago, like quite some time ago, he got a divorce. I think it was about 10 years ago. I think Full Tilt, which existed then, agreed to pay his ex-wife like $10 million, I heard was the rumor, that Full Tilt actually foot the bill in exchange for her not seeking anything from him. Something like that. So I had heard rumors about him that let's just say he wasn't the best husband. I won't go into detail. I'm sure you can guess, but I, I heard rumors that he wasn't the best husband. And that's what led to the divorce. I wonder if that's what he's referring to here, about never growing up, about being selfish and things like that. I wonder if that's what he meant. Because he talks again later about relationships and that he wasn't very good at relationships. And he meant all relationships, not just romantic ones. But I wonder if Phil Ivey now looks back on his marriage and has some regret. Maybe he wishes that he was a better husband and never got a divorce. Because this was a girl that he was with in high school when he was a nobody. Just a regular kid in high school. And now he's not with her anymore. And maybe he looks back and says, crap, I should have made this work. Now, the truth is it's very hard to make high school sweetheart marriages work these days. People are just changing too much. I always recommend people don't get married before they're 30, or otherwise it tends not to work. But if you marry your high school sweetheart, you got to be mature. You got to be sure that you are mostly done maturing and also that you're going to stay the same person and that the person you're marrying is going to stay the same person. And if you can't say that with a high degree of certainty, you shouldn't get married at a young age. The thing that's better about getting married after 30, with both parties being over 30, is that you have a good idea with who that person's going to be and who you're going to be. And then you're not going to have the issue where a divorce occurs because one or both people ends up changing. Or one or both people decides they're too young to be stuck in this. So anyway, I wonder if Ivy is looking upon those days with regret rather than looking at them with bitterness. 
It's very possible. Let's go on and listen to the remainder of this little segment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and um, so, so yeah, some come to mind specifically when you, when you look back and you sort of start to think about those things? Um, I thought I was a very, I, I thought I was a very uh, unselfish person. That one really comes to mind. You know, I thought I was very unselfish because I would, you know, take care of people with money. You know, mm-hmm. I would take care of my family with money. I would take care of friends with money and this and that. Blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, I was very selfish with my time. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I never really, um, I was selfish with in relationships. Yeah. I was selfish with people that I cared about as far as like, you know, doing what I wanted to do and not sacrificing what I wanted at any point to for other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that came out with, you know, the, the, the work that I did. Yeah. And it was something that I need to work on still on a daily basis. Yeah. So that's exactly what I was talking about here. You heard him talk about the relationships. And I wonder if he regrets a lot of the way he behaved when he was younger. And what's very interesting is he says at the time he thought he was unselfish because he was very generous financially, that he gave money to a lot of people that he cared about and thought, okay, well, I'm giving the money. So that means I'm I'm a very generous guy. I'm not a selfish guy. How could I be selfish? I'm giving these people money. And then he says, you know what? I was selfish with everything but money. So (laughs) I actually was a selfish person who was just generous with money. And you can be both. And he's right. You can be. So it's introspective of him, you know, provided that he really believes this and provided that he's really changing. That's that's very introspective. And that's interesting for him to say. Like, we've never seen a Phil Ivey like this before. We've never gotten stuff like this out of him. That's a hard habit to break. I think a lot of times you think about what makes me a successful poker player. Oftentimes it is being selfish with your time, yeah, selfish with your energy, with your thoughts about what you're thinking about for poker-wise or Maybe you're analyzing hands, you're analyzing a situation. You obviously got to spend time playing as well, too. To I mean, if to. you want to get really, really good at something, you need to be. You need to be. There's a certain part of you have to. You have to give up, and you have to be selfish and kind of self-centered and kind of like you know put all your atten- energy and attention into it. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Especially yeah. if you want to be, you know, great. Yeah, and that's something I hear from a lot of poker pros. I've experienced it myself, where. The dedication to playing poker can interfere with other parts of life. And then if the people in your life aren't on board with it or don't completely understand it or aren't willing to have that going on and have you unavailable to them, that uh, it can be very hard on relationships and all kinds of relationships, not just uh, romantic relationships. It can be hard on uh, on your kids it can be hard on your friends when you are just engrossed in poker and spend a lot of time on it he was saying there if you want to be great not just a winning player not just someone who supports themselves but someone who really wants to be one of the very top players you've got to really thrust yourself into the whole thing and eat sleep and breathe it and probably travel a lot too if you want to be in the on the tournament scene or want to play in some cash games that may not be local at the very high stakes, like I know he did, and that it's very hard to have both. And I've heard that from people. I've even heard from just regular poker grinders about the toll it has taken on their marriage, on their family, on friendships. And 
then some of them say, well, maybe I'll just date someone in poker. <laughs> then that has a whole different set of challenges. I actually chose never to attempt to date anybody in poker. Like if somebody was peripherally in poker, then sure. But I'm talking about like a poker pro. I really was never interested in dating a female poker pro. In fact, that was something I wanted to avoid because it has its own set of challenges. And Phil Ivey didn't do that to my knowledge. But I'm just stating here that there's some challenges to the poker lifestyle, especially people who are very, very dedicated to it, that some people don't realize from the outside. In fact, there are some who attempt to normalize their lives by actually making a schedule. And this works really more for cash games than tournaments, but people come up with like a grinding schedule where they'll actually have like work hours that they're going to go play the game from this hour to this hour on these days and not go other days. And they'll actually leave at a preset time or very close to that preset time. I've seen people who are regulars like at the Bellagio get up from a great game at a certain time because they want to go home and get up in time to be with their family or to be with their spouse or be with their girlfriend, whatever it is. And I've seen that before. And in fact, when I started to notice that was happening, that people were actually trying to keep a regular schedule playing five days a week or six days a week for specific hours, I took advantage of this by showing up outside those hours. I would show up at the Bellagio at 2 a.m., And not only would the game often be shorthanded, where I'm better at compared to the typical person in the game, even compared to other pros, so not only am I better at shorthanded, but also I would lose a lot of the good players that were there earlier that went home. So I actually would show up specifically to avoid the players who were trying to keep normal hours, and I'd be the one who'd stay up all night and play. And uh, in my own relationship, I I don't want to make this about me, this is really a Phil Ivey segment, but I just want to mention my own relationship I explained everything about the poker play. And I was explaining that I'm one of the responsible gamblers, that I'm a gambler who makes money, that I don't gamble in bad spots, that I'm very careful not to chunk off my bankroll, and that I'm very careful to be in good games and stuff like that. And and, and she understood And she knew I had a number of years of history of of it already, so it wasn't a new thing that I was just trying out. And she believed me, but she also knew that there were some things that came with it, you know, going to the World Series and uh, sometimes going to the card room all night and staying up very late at night playing online. And, uh, you know, not everybody would want this. There there are some women who would not want this with a long-term boyfriend or husband. I mean, I guess it's okay if it's someone you're just dating for fun for a short time or just casually dating, but there are women who wouldn't want this. So this is compatible with some people and not with others, and it just depends what what's most important to them and what they're willing to be flexible with. So I understand all this, and I never even threw myself into it to the extent that someone like Phil Ivey did. Phil Ivey was much more dedicated to poker than I ever was. And there's others who put a lot more time into it than I ever have. I understand what he's saying. Right. So, you know, um, that's what I did. I, you know, I just kind of went, I just gave up life itself 
and put all of my attention and energy into poker. And um, again, I had great benefits from it mm -hmm. uh, financially and, you know, like whatever, like, you know, winning tournaments and things like that. Mm -hmm. But eventually I paid a price, yeah. you know. It's like, you know, you, 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 you pay a price when you don't take the time and, you know, um, work on yourself. Mm -hmm. Eventually you just hit a wall. I mean, not everybody, I guess not everybody, but you know, I did. Yeah. What do you think that wall was? Is it a certain time, certain occurrence? Um, no, it's not, it's not a specific yeah. uh, event, mm -hmm. you know. Um, pretty much I started really working on myself. I didn't really like the, my behavior. I didn't really like, you know, my reactions to things. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the things that I was doing. And, um, you know, luckily I have a, some people who really care about me and were able to, you know, let me know what the they were able to tell you they would tell me yeah, I, first, I, you know, yeah. I fought it you know you push it away nah get out of here like you know yeah. well, Bob, but eventually like if you get you know for me I got told it enough it was time to do something about it that was interesting too he said he didn't like his reaction to things maybe he was too short tempered I don't know something along those lines maybe and he didn't like some of the stuff he was doing I heard rumors that he went to strip clubs a lot I don't know this for a fact, but I heard those rumors. I know he was also doing some big-time gambling and not really positive EV gambling. I actually saw an example of this. I actually saw an example of his reactions, too. I think this was uh, in '09 when the Lakers were in the finals, but they didn't win against uh, Boston. 08 or 09. I forget which year. I know they ended up winning in 2010. But... Uh, one of those years, like 08 or 09, the Lakers were in the finals, and supposedly Ivy had bet $2 million on the Lakers. And he's he's been the front row in Lakers games. He's a Lakers fan, apparently. But he bet $2 million on the Lakers, not, not because he had any kind of uh, positive expectation uh, sports betting strategy here. He just liked the Lakers and bet $2 bucks on them. And uh, the game was on at the World Series, because the NBA Finals took place during the World Series, typically, because it was in June. Not this year, but most years in the World Series uh, of poker, it's in June, and so is the NBA Finals. So the NBA Finals were on, and Phil Ivey was watching, and obviously he was very unhappy. And this is like a 1,500-limit Hold'em event, so I was there. I wasn't at his table, but I was near his table. And he's watching the game, and it's not going well, and he knows he's probably going to lose $2 million. And here he is in this $1,500 limit hold'em event where even if he finishes first, he's going to win a small fraction of that. He'll probably win like 10%, yeah, 10% or whatever. So he's real pissed. And he's in a really bad mood. And one of the poker news guys who I knew personally came up to count his chips, which is what they do. They kind of, they, they try to stay out of your way, the poker news guys, but if you're someone whose chips they're counting, they'll, they'll kind of get behind you and look at your chip stack and without asking you, without interacting with you, they'll, they'll try to count it. Sometimes I'll even help them if I'm not doing anything. If I'm just sitting there. I'll say, hey, oh, I have this much. And they say, oh, thank you, and write it down because it makes their job easier. But anyway, you don't have to do that. You're not expected to. They're, they're supposed to be just kind of away and, and not bothering you. So none, the guy wasn't bothering Ivy. He's just kind of like standing behind him trying to count his chips. And Ivy is just getting more and more pissed. He just doesn't want anyone near him. He just wants to sit there being pissed about how the Lakers were doing without any slight disturbance. So the guy behind him kind of felt like a fly on his back. So finally he blew up the guy. He says, 
will you fucking get out of here? Will you just get off my back here? Like he, I forgot the exact words, but he yelled at the guy. Like, why are you standing so close to me? Get off my back. Stop standing so close. You know, stop standing right behind me. I forgot the exact words, but he blew up on the guy. <laughs> so the guy just said nothing and ran off. But uh, he told me about it, and I saw it. I was there at the event, and I saw Ivy yelling at the guy. And I felt bad for him. He was just trying to do his job. But maybe that's what Ivy is talking about, that he thought back to moments like those. And yeah, of course, I understand why Ivy was upset. He was losing $2 million, and he did, the Lakers lost that game, and he lost $2 million, if, that, if that's what he really bet. That's what I heard. I, I didn't get confirmation with certainty that he bet $2 million on that game, but that's what I was told by the uh, poker rumor mill at the time. So yeah, I understand why he was in a terrible mood seeing that happen, but uh, you can't take it out on innocent poker news workers. So he probably looked back on things like that. I'm sure there were a number of things over time where he snapped at people and he thought about, hey, you know, I've become too much of a degenerate and I need to fix this. I need to become a better person. So yeah, props to him again for for that, for that type of introspection, especially at a later age. He's, He's not discovering this at age 25. It looked like much later maybe even just during this pandemic, that he came to discover this about himself. What was that change like, as you mentioned, balancing? So let's uh, go up to the next segment here. Is it uh, the 1358 mark, where he talks about his love of gambling and his days in Atlantic City before he was 21, when he was known as No Home Jerome, and he even dispels a rumor. So where did uh, where did the, the love of the gambling come in? Right with the prop bets, with uh, with uh, you know craps or with man, golfing I, or man, where, where I, man, I, I always loved gambling. Like you know that was like really my first real love. Is like I, I love to gamble. You know I started off gambling at a very young age on the street shooting dice. You know, mm-hmm. um, and you know I would go to like little like home casinos and you know go to little places and play poker and i'll just travel all around playing pokers poker you know new jersey new york and um you know some maybe not the most safest places i've been to during that (laughs) journey but you know i didn't really view it at that time as yeah i didn't really look at it at the time just the way it was back then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh you know kind of people a lot of people ask about no home jerome right it's kind of your old nickname with the id and and sleeping on the beach or sleeping outside like when you think back to that time like it wasn't before he answers that i want to explain what joey's talking about you may or may not know this story phil ivy was playing in atlantic city before he was 21 i think it was at the taj mahal which is no longer there and he claimed his name was jerome and he claimed that you know, he was of age. I don't know what age he's claimed to be, but he claimed to be old enough to be playing there, and they never ID'd him. So he said his name was Jerome. And they called him No Home Jerome because uh, I guess there was only one bus back. I don't know why he didn't drive, but uh, there was only one bus back to where he lived that ran at night, and if he missed the bus, then he had no way back. So what uh, the rumors were was that many nights when he would play too late to get the bus that he would go under the Atlantic City boardwalk and sleep there. So that's where he got the name of No Home Jerome, that he's basically sleeping under the boardwalk and playing poker, and that's all he does. Some even thought that he really did have no home, that he really was like a homeless poker player. Even though he had money, he was doing very well and winning, that he never bothered to get a place to actually live. So 
that was the rumor about him. And then when he turned 21, he introduced himself under his real name. He said, hey, guys, my name's not really Jerome. My name's really Phil Ivey, and I just turned 21. <laughs> so I, I guess he could have been banned from the room for having played there before. But at that point, he came clean and said, I'm 21 now, and my name's really Phil Ivey. So that was the rumor. And here's how he addresses the whole thing about sleeping under the boardwalk by saying, yeah, that story is not totally true. So let me tell you the way it really happened. And then, you know, you know, I, I think that kind of get stretched a little bit far. You know, like I, I did sleep outside a couple times mm-hmm. after missing the bus back yeah. and not having any money. That happens. You know, yeah, so that does happen. You know, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, it's a free bus you get back. So if you miss that bus, you have to wait till the next day. Right. So you, you know, need that money I, for the I, hotel I, there. So, so you're like, I got to tell, you know, I, I never slept where it was cold out. It was, the, it was summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I slept outside underneath the boardwalk and, you know, and, um, yeah, a couple times. Yeah. It, 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 when you look uh, back on that, do you feel like that? Uh, any lessons you take away from that time in your life that don't miss the bus? Don't miss the bus. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just, that's actually really good advice because I know a lot of my degenerates out there who play poker. They go to like uh, some of these casinos from Chicago to the Majestic or Horseshoe, and they take a bus to get there. They lose all their money playing or gambling, and then they they can't get and home. And so then, you, then you're stuck there. Yeah, then you're stuck there. You got to find a friend to come there and Uber someone to yeah. borrow your money. You know, it ain't it ain't a comfortable position to be in. You know, you know how many times I drove back from Atlantic City after I got my car and like pretending I'm putting uh, money in the toll booth because I ran. I don't even have the money to put the money in the toll booth. Thirty five really? cents. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. I see. I don't know about that part because he could have just not had the change. He's he's thirty five cents and. Uh, I don't believe you can throw paper money in there. It says coins only, from what I remember. I, I'm not someone who lives in that area, of course, but in my time driving there, I seem to remember it said coins only. And I, I would find this challenge, not because I was broke, but because I didn't have change on me. So I, I have a feeling that's really what happened. He's exaggerating a bit that he was so broke driving home, he didn't have money on him for that. But I, I do believe that he wasn't homeless and that he wasn't always sleeping under the Atlantic City boardwalk and that he was doing it in the summer when the weather was nice outside. So I do believe all that and I know how these stories can run away. You may wonder about Phil Ivey's family. You haven't heard much about that in the past, right? What's the story with his family and how did they feel about him gambling from such a young age? With kind of that point in time early on in your career, I heard you mention that uh, you know no one real supported you playing poker. And I remember, I think a lot of people I talked to, myself personally, my parents absolutely hated that I wasn't going to cut school, that I wasn't going to get a job, that I was going to start playing online poker on poker stars, right? Mom's like, what the fuck are you doing with yourself? Like, why would you do that? And I've heard you mention that your grandpa was supportive of you playing, but your parents weren't supportive of you playing at all at that point in time. No, they didn't. They didn't like the fact that I was, they, they just, uh, they just put poker with gambling. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um. I'm not even saying that they were wrong to not even support it, really, right? You know, like, yeah. I mean, most people uh, don't really make it that, that play poker, so. Right. Um, yeah, and that's something that people sometimes don't understand. They say, why don't you support your kids being a poker pro if you are one? And that's the answer, that most people don't make it. Not always from lack of skill often from lack of the right demeanor for it. Because you need several elements to be a successful poker pro long-term. And really, talent at the poker table is not even the most important thing. Now, if you have no talent at the poker table, you're also not going to succeed, even if you have all the other aspects. But you have to have talent at the poker table and then a lot of other responsibility-related attributes 
and temperament-related attributes that if you don't have, then you're going to go broke. So a lot of times, even if you have this and you manage to be a long-term winner in the game and hold on to the money, there's a good chance your kids won't, or there's even a chance that you feel the lifestyle is too stressful and you don't want that for your kids. So that's why a lot of times poker players will not encourage their kids to play professionally, even if they think they have the ability. And uh, so Ivy's saying, hey, you know, my parents actually were right to frown on my choice of what I did, even though it ultimately was successful. You know, maybe they, they probably were giving me the right message. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably they, they, may, they may not have delivered it, you know, the right way, but right. they probably were giving me the right message. And my grandfather was just like, you know, he knows, he, he knew how stubborn I was. And he said, well, I know you're going to do it anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and support you, you know. Yeah, so he knew that even if he, no matter what, right, you're going to do it. So there's no point to say, like, don't do it when you already know you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, was already, I was already in too deep. Yeah. So your, your, your dad was a boxer, a competitive boxer? Or he, he? Boxed some, he, bo- he, he boxed some. My father went to the Air Force. Mm-hmm. He was an air, uh, air traffic controller mm-hmm. in the Air Force. And um, we had a very, uh, our relationship was very combative mm-hmm. for many years, you know. And um, when I was, I was around 25, 26, we kind of started getting along. And then, you know, he passed away like, like four or five months later. Damn. So, you know, just as we were kind of getting along and get, kind of getting to know each other again. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he passed away. Yeah, that's pretty sad for Ivy. It sounds like that, uh, in fact, to me, that his attraction to poker may have even been kind of an act of rebellion. That just he wants to go do his own thing. And poker was attracting him. And, uh, of course, he didn't care that his parents didn't like it. But almost like he wanted to do something unconventional because his parents, uh, especially his dad, that he wasn't getting along with him. And then his dad didn't like his choices, what he was doing. And they had big arguments about this. And even though Ivy was doing well, that his dad was still giving him a hard time. And they just really didn't get along. And he heard what he said, that even though his parents were right, that they didn't communicate it the right way, which means that he felt that they were very nasty with him about this and uh they that he's okay with them being against him being a poker pro but that they didn't handle it well is basically what he's saying and that he and his dad just over this and many other things were just never getting along and always uh fighting with each other and in fact he didn't get to know his dad very well nor did his dad get to know him very well because they talked so little and finally when he was in his mid-20s they came to terms maybe because ivy had been playing for a number of years and was successful. Remember, Ivy is uh, 44 now. So if you go back to when he was 25, 26, we're talking about the early 2000s. And by then, of course, Ivy was already a big name and was doing very well. And so probably his dad realized that Ivy made the right choice in his career and probably came to terms with it. And they started talking and they started getting along. And very sadly, his dad died. He didn't say how his dad died. And he didn't say whether this was something that was expected or if he just abruptly died of something like a heart attack or stroke, but uh, that his dad died like within four months of when they started to get along. So on the bright side, he did get to make things right with his dad before his dad passed away. On the downside is that finally he had a good relationship with his dad for the first time maybe in his whole life, or at least since he was a little boy. And then uh, he doesn't get to experience that. So most of the time that he remembers with his dad was negative, and just when it became positive, he had four months and the dad was gone. So that's, that's pretty sad. Mm. Mm. So how did that impact, I guess, you know, your poker, at the peak of your career at that point, right? You're you know, doing you, really well. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, it was it was tough. Again, you know, that was one of the things I never actually really uh, at that moment I didn't really know how to grieve it. Yeah. You know, so I kind of just pushed it pushed it down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's something I just pushed down and pushed away. Yeah. And um, eventually, I got to grieve it. Yeah. So it was it was nice to kind of let that go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel bad for anybody who loses a parent at a young age, even if not a kid. But like mid-20s is a very early time to lose a parent. I feel fortunate that I'm 49 years old and both of my parents are still alive and healthy. And it's too bad that not everybody gets to experience that. Some because their parents just had them when they were old and it's just very unlikely the parents are going to live that much longer after that. But uh, also sometimes it's because a parent dies early. And I think that's what happened to Ivy's dad. I don't know for sure, but... uh, kind of sounds like it wasn't expected and his dad probably wasn't that old so i I sometimes think about it i sometimes think about wow like i think about how much i would have missed with time with my parents if either one of them had died like say 25 years ago and like I, i still feel like i'm nowhere close to ready to deal with that happening even though i'm at an age when a lot of people uh have lost one or both parents in fact, my parents, by the time they were my age, uh, my dad had lost uh, both of his parents, actually, by the time he was 37, and, uh, or 37, 38, I guess he was 38 when the second one uh, passed away, and then my mom lost her dad at a young age, like in her early 30s, and uh, she did have her mom till she was in her 50s, but really, th- like they, they did not have the experience of having both parents to an age like this. So I'm, I'm glad I do. It helps my parents weren't that old when I was born. They weren't super young, but they were in their 20s. And I think about it sometimes with my own child, who is almost 40 years younger than me, that I hope that I get to live deep into his adulthood. But the truth is, the odds are, when he is the age I am now, I probably won't be around because I'd have to be in my late 80s by that point. I hope I make it till then, but uh, there's... Some factors working against me, and the chances are that I won't. So anyway, that's that's sad for Ivy. Let's move on to the part where he talks about alcohol. Did Ivy have an alcohol problem? I didn't know much about it. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he did, but it looks like, according to him, the answer is yes. You know, that poker me, 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 me and alcohol have parted ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had a we had a great relationship for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm on a, let's say, a much needed break. Yeah. 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 What age did that happen? Because I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, thinking about couple, this for myself. A couple years ago. Couple it's years just, ago. It's just, it's just, um, it's just much easier to, to uh, you know, being sober is just a much easier more effective life for me. Mm-hmm. So that's just a choice that I make. Yeah, easier to be disciplined, easier um, to be mentally all there, mindful, because when you get drunk I mean, just, or anything just, like just that. A, I mean, just every area of my life has improved since I stopped drinking. Yeah. 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 A lot of people out there might need to hear that, right? I mean, maybe that's holding them know. back in some of these areas of their life. Yeah, maybe. You know, I mean, you know, poker so. and partying kind of go hand in hand, you know, like, you know. They do. I, I think, mean, I think you look at the way you just look at the way you just look. <laughs> look like you got some good memories here. I got some great. Yeah. I I wonder what made him do this. He's not one of these guys like Gavin Smith who just like would always have a drink next to them at the table. 
Because like Gavin Smith, when when he would play poker, and, and apparently this had nothing to do with his death, by the way, but uh, when he would play poker, he would be sitting there with a drink right next to him, like from the very start, and he'd be very like loud and boisterous, and you could tell he's drinking. Ivy wasn't like that. I don't even know if I've even seen Ivy drink at the table. But it's possible, you know, when he would go out, that he would drink a lot, and then he would do things he'd regret. Who knows? So, whatever it is, about two years ago, he claims he just completely stopped drinking. Now, he didn't say he'd stop permanently. He said we're taking a break. So at the very least, he decided to stop drinking for now and apparently was drinking for a long time and just decided enough is enough. So I guess this is part of the whole process of introspection, which I guess didn't occur during the COVID lockdown because he said it was two years ago. But sometime fairly recently, he decided that the drinking days are over, at least for the moment. Here's Ivy discussing how he likes to play deep stacks. You you love Just, the deep stacks, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, how do you how do you process that feeling when you lose a 400, 500 big blind deep pot? You start 400, 400 big blinds effective. You lose a big pot to someone. You felt like you played the hand perfectly, and you know you might not see that size pot back for. You know, a little bit of time. Does that really impact you? I, or I just like, it. whatever. You love it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, sick, yeah, dude. yeah, I do. I love it. I love it. I mean, especially like, especially. Oh, my God. You're so sick. Especially if you haven't done anything wrong, right? You like, you played the hand good. You know, then it's just one of love those it. things. Yeah. So you're like, what, what, what's going through your mind? I mean, like, you, okay. I'm like, like you now know we're I mean? going or what? What are, you, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, oh, sometimes I may just quit. You know, it just, oh. depend, it just depends. But, you know, like, okay. it depends on, like, the situation who's still there and like a lot of times you know you can't quit certain certain situations you can't quit in um but you know i just shouldn't you know like just like kind of like you know if you enjoy winning you have to kind of appreciate the fact that you're going to lose sometimes mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think it just makes it much it's a much easier game and much better experience yeah i mean that's true he was saying here that if he loses a huge pot, if the game isn't that good, then he gets up and leaves because he just feels like he's not in the right mindset to keep playing. If there's a fish in the game, then he keeps playing. Now, this, of course, is only true for no-limit or pot-limit games where you can lose a massive pot. Where you're playing a limit game, even a very high-stakes limit game, this isn't true because you're not going to have any monster pot that is session-changing. There's going to be some bigger pots that are much bigger than the others that will take a yeah, number of pots to win back what you had before. But you're never going to have one pot that makes or breaks the session or that can turn a great session into a bad session. That doesn't exist at limit poker, even high stakes limit poker, because the high stakes limit poker, every pot's going to be big. So Ivy plays a lot of limit poker. He plays a lot of mixed games. That's not all he plays, but he plays a lot of limit poker as well. So... That doesn't apply there, but he does play No Limit also, and that's what he's talking about there, that if he loses a huge pot like that, that he'll sometimes just leave, and sometimes he will just keep playing if the fish is there. All right, I'm going to play you the final clip here. All the clips I've played were in the first half of the interview. The second half I found less notable to play. He talks about his involvement with Poker King and other stuff that uh, not really worth playing on here. But I will play the portion where he talks about the big game they played against Andy Beal. Andy Beal was a banker who liked to play very high-stakes poker. And what he really liked was heads-up limit hold'em. Now, this was like in the early 2000s. 
and Limit Hold'em was a very big game in cash games. No Limit was not very big yet. So the game that was going most often in card rooms in the early 2000s, and in the 90s for that matter, was Limit Hold'em. So Andy Beal liked Limit Hold'em, and he wanted to play very high-stakes Limit Hold'em, and he wanted to play 50,000, 100,000 Limit Hold'em, which meant that the blinds were 25,000, 50,000, and that the first two rounds of betting, the pre-flop and flop betting, will be 50,000 and multiples of that. Every time there's a raise, it would go up another 50,000. And then the turn and river, each bet would be a multiple of 100,000. So you can imagine how huge that game was and how huge these pots were. So no poker pro at the time had the role for that. So what they did is they formed something called the corporation. You may have heard about this. You may have read about this in in a a book that was written about this type of thing. I think uh, the one that was, uh, was it something, the banker and the suicide king? Forget the first uh, word of that. But it was was that book by uh, Jim McManus, I believe, that was, that mentioned this game. And this was known as the corporation game against Andy Beal. The corporation was a group of poker pros who pulled their funds together in order to be able to afford to play Andy Beal. Because no one pro could afford this game. And this is what he wanted to play. What they did was take turns playing heads up. And the problem was Andy Beal studied, I mean, he didn't have these training videos and stuff like that like they have nowadays, but he studied as well as he could how to get better at Limit Hold'em. And Andy Beal was not a dumb guy. He was a rich banker. He was someone who had the ability to learn how to get fairly good at Heads Up Limit Hold'em. And they underestimated him. So a, a number of these players got clobbered against him. I think even Jen Harmon got clobbered against him. They were playing with this shared money, this pooled money, this corporation money, they called it. It wasn't a real corporation, though. They called it a corporation because it was them putting their money all together. And they were getting clobbered by him. And then Phil Ivey was brought in to play him. Let's hear what happened there. So about this, uh, about back in the day, right, the whole corporation, where you played the rich businessman, Andy Beal, the, the pool of players in Vegas got together, played this guy. He was kind of beating them down. And then you came in and uh, helped these pros not go, not go busto back in the day. Is that I, sort of how? I, 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 didn't, I wasn't thinking about helping anybody not go busto. I was thinking about it was, a good, opportunity, it was you know, a good opportunity to uh, play someone who, who isn't a professional. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just I'm grateful to, ha- to have had that opportunity. It was like a great experience. I mean, obviously it worked out. Right. Right. But, you know. What were the stakes I mean, for I was, this guy? I, was I don't know how old I was, 27, 28, yeah. you know, and I'm playing, you know, 50, 100,000 blinds. And, you know, that was like, I mean, you know, and I got off to loser right away. And Andy was tougher than I thought he was going to be. Like, mm-hmm. I know they had played and they had lost him or whatever. But I don't know. I had in my mind that he was going to play a certain way. He didn't play anything like how I thought he was going to play uh, when I got when I sat down. I wasn't one back then to. Um, I didn't want to listen to anyone's opinion back then. Mm-hmm. You know, like now I may talk to there's a few guys I may talk to and listen to their opinion on poker because a lot of guys are just really talented. They know what they're saying. Right. But back then, like certain people's opinion and the way they kind of uh, viewed poker, I looked at poker. Uh, much differently than than most people back mm-hmm. then. That's an interesting way of saying that he didn't think they were that good. He was saying that 
a lot of these people in the quote corporation, he probably didn't feel were all that great at limit hold'em, and that he thought that Andy Beal may have had their number, and that their beliefs on how to beat him were not correct. So he was saying that he didn't even want to hear from them how they felt he should play Andy Beal because they all tried and lost, and that uh, he wanted to just come up with his own strategy. I would say almost everyone, you know. Um, so it was very difficult for me to kind of like uh, get advice from them. So I didn't get to, so I didn't really get the layout of how Andy was playing from. I told him oh, I don't really want to hear it. Yeah, you know. Let me figure it out. Let me just kind of just play him and then kind of like figure out what I see. Mm-hmm. And so when I got in there, he was like, you know, three bed and four bed in every hand. I was like, oh. <laughs> this guy's like, bringing was, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, he, was, he definitely had no fear, Andy. I mean, he was like very challenging. Yeah, that was his strategy. He figured he was so rich and the game was so high that if he just hammered it with super aggression, that the pros would all be intimidated because the money's so big, they just couldn't play back at him like they normally would if it was lower stakes they were used to. At these type of stakes, he just felt that it would intimidate them and give him an advantage, and it looked like that was working. And Ivy didn't expect that coming in, but once he saw it, he had to adjust to it. And then at the end, I end up, I end up running really, really well. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, it's 500. People, one th- people don't usually talk about these. You know, in these heads-up matches, when you win, yeah. you still have to run well. You know, like kind of like, you know, like, you know, we're playing 5,100. Like, you know, and 50,000, 100,000, 50, you know, how much so, money you got in front of you? So, um, 10 million, I think we started with, you know, yeah. but it's a hundred bets and limit, yeah, limit poker, you still yeah. have to run well, right? You know, so, you know, I'm glad I won. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to see him admitting that is true. It would be much easier for him to say that he came in, he figured out what Andy Beal was doing. He developed a counter strategy and he just stomped on him. But he's saying, yes, I did all that, but I needed to run well also. So I ran better than Andy Beal. I ran really well. And something I want to say as a Limit Hold'em player who has also played a lot of heads-up Limit Hold'em, including presently, that running well is really the main thing that you have to do to win Limit Hold'em heads-up unless your opponent really sucks. If your opponent really sucks, you can run worse than average and still win. If your opponent doesn't really suck and you run badly, you're going to lose. There's no way around it. And if a maniac, if a very aggressive player runs badly against you, then you're going to clobber him. You're going to absolutely clobber him. And I've been on both sides of this. I've had it where a maniac just keeps hitting hand after hand after hand, and I not only can I never fold against him, I find myself re-raising him with weaker holdings and then losing. And sometimes I'm re-raising him with a very strong hand, and he gets there with some unlikely bad beat, and it's really frustrating. But at the same time, you can run up money very quickly against these maniacs when they just keep firing, 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 and you, and you just uh, have them every time. Or you call them down with ace high, and every time you're good. So he's saying here that he ran well. He ran a lot better than Andy and that that was a big factor in why he won. And that's good that he'll say this because Andy's not going to come back and defend himself at this point. Yeah. yeah. How much did you, did you end up beating this guy for? Um, 16 million. 16 million? But you know that already. So right, I mean, yeah. you asked me yeah, like, I mean, okay. Nah, you know, the people love these kind of answers like that. They love the, they love the dollar. Everyone's asking me, what's just, the you biggest? You're just laying it up, right? I'm just setting you up, Kate. That's what I do here. Okay. I set people up for some good answers sometimes. What's All right, I'm going to stop that right here. 
And that'll be the last thing I play. You can watch the rest of this. It's called Phil Ivey Conversation Poker Life Podcast on Joey Ingram's channel. Very interesting stuff there. And uh, the Andy Beal game stopped happening because Andy wasn't happy about the selection of players against him in this game. He actually published an open letter in Card Player that was calling out these pros and basically calling them chicken that they weren't uh, sending out their weaker players against him. He uh, so, so what happened was uh, he decided that uh, he didn't want to play Ivy in the future as much as he did. So he wanted to be able to uh, choose of this corporation who he was up against, something like that. Because he didn't like the fact that they were choosing who he would play. And he didn't want to be up against Ivy and, and the best limit holding players there. He felt like he was going to get crushed. So he published an open letter that they were cowards, that basically they're pulling their money together, but only putting him up against the very best limit holding players and the rest of them are afraid to go against him. So that was the end of that. Yeah, the name of the book was The Professor, the Banker, and the Suicide King. That was it. Just came back to me now. That was the end of those games because they couldn't come to terms. And he did make a lot of kind of unreasonable demands, but that, that was the end of that. So it was an interesting interview. I, I would definitely uh, recommend you go watch it. There's a lot more to it than what I played, and it only takes an hour. You can just have it on in the background when you're doing something else like you do with this show. There really isn't that much to see in the interview. Like, if you see the first minute, you've seen the whole thing. It's really an audio video. It's it's an audio interview in video format where they're sitting there talking. So there, there's nothing. There's no clips that are shown. There's nothing printed on the screen. It's just them sitting there talking. So unless you want to see Ivy's gestures or whatever, which he's not all that expressive, so you're really not missing much. You can get a good idea of the video element of the interview just by looking at the first minute and watching Ivy there. And they're just kind of picturing that in your head for the next hour. And I'm saying this because I know a lot of people find it easier to listen to audio than to watch video. In fact, I do. There are times that I really wish that certain video shows I watch were more audio friendly to where they're not printing things on the screen and they're not showing you things that are important to see. In fact, that's why a lot of people like this show to pass the time or to have on in the background because you do not need to see anything. It's only audio. You can listen to it when you're driving, when you're playing poker, even in bed, falling asleep, when you're hiking, whatever you might be doing. Some people listen as they work. And you do not have to look at anything because there's nothing to look at. So I wish more shows were like that. I don't like having to watch as well because it takes away too much attention. But this one you can. This interview you can because it really is pretty much just audio with them just talking. Okay, I'm going to take a break. We have a lot more left. In the chat room, CGen says, every single super successful pro poker and blackjack player I know sees a shrink regularly. Well, you know what? I'm one who does not. 
I only saw a mental health professional when I was having these issues in 2018. And that was a psychiatrist. And that was because I was having chemical issues with my brain. And once I was improving, I uh, stopped seeing the psychiatrist. And in fact, I haven't been back since. But yeah, there's a lot of people who do seek forms of uh, therapy who are successful poker players. And there's a lot of successful gamblers, not just poker players, as he mentions, who do have a lot of psychological issues that they need to seek help for. And some even seek their own help in a bad way through substance abuse. So that's sometimes not pretty what goes on behind the scenes. And a lot of times the problems they complain about, I can relate to having been part of this for all these years. So we'll be right back. And guess what? I have a surprise for you. I recorded a new ad for Eric Benzamokin. After all these years, I decided it was time for an update. So here it is. Then we'll continue with the rest of our long agenda. On October 1st, 2020, I got some really bad news. I was being sued for $330 million over something I said on Poker Fraud Alert. After I calmed down and regained my composure, I knew I needed an attorney to help me, and I needed a good one. I've been singing the praises of attorney Eric Benzamokin for years, and I decided it only made sense that I practice what I preach. So without hesitation, I retained Eric to defend me. I was about to see firsthand if he was really as good of an attorney as I've been claiming all these years. Seven months later, it was over. The case against me was dismissed, and instead of a judgment against me, I had a $27,000 judgment against the guy who filed the frivolous lawsuit against me in the first place. I can now say with complete confidence that hiring Eric was a great decision. He's hardworking, thorough, knowledgeable. It seemed like he always knew the right move to make. Everything he advised me was 100% correct, and now that it's over, I can tell you there's not a single thing we should have done differently. He hit this one out of the park. Now, Eric has moved on to defending the poker community and small businesses around the globe from the greedy clutches of PayPal. They've been unfairly freezing and confiscating money from their customers. We've talked about it on this show. PayPal hasn't even been giving anyone a chance to explain themselves or appeal the decision. They just freeze your account and they take your money. This practice has gone on for years and now Eric and the Benzamokin law firm are standing up to this Goliath and they're fighting for the little guy to get their money back. World Series of Poker legend Chris Moneymaker and many others have retained the Benzamokin law firm to help fight against PayPal. If you've been victimized by PayPal, if your money's been frozen, if it's been taken, contact Eric right now at info at eblawfirm.us. That's info, I-N-F-O, at eblawfirm.us. Now, do you have another legal issue which you think might be heard in California or a federal court? Contact Eric. Maybe he can help you. Do you need to file a bankruptcy? Eric has loads of experience in that area. Do you need arbitration or mediation? Eric can do that as well, no matter where you are. So contact him, info at eblawfirm.us, info at eblawfirm.us. He's a really nice guy. He's really knowledgeable. You've heard him on this show many times where he always has the right answers to any legal question we ask him. It's amazing. I trusted Eric. It worked out great. Now you can too. Eric Benzamokin and the Benzamokin Law Firm, info at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. 
We're going to talk about Prahlad Friedman. We talk about Prahlad Friedman every so often on this show. And some of you might wonder, why do I bother to talk about Prahlad Friedman? He hasn't been relevant in poker in a long time. I mean, he probably still plays, but he's not like a star in poker these days. We're not really seeing him much on the tournament circuit. And he was more of a uh, 2000s figure in poker. He hasn't been that prominent since then, maybe since the early 2010s. So why do I still talk about him? Well, first of all, he's got a social media presence where he just says really stupid things. And that's good for some entertainment. And we talk about it on the show, have a few laughs. But the real reason why I talk about him is because he's such a hypocrite that it's irritating to watch. It's actually, yeah, you can laugh at him, but it's kind of irritating. Because this is someone who is a lifelong, very left wing, limousine liberal, hippie type who really wants to believe that he cares about the little guy. He cares about the oppressed. That even though he's a wealthy man, he cares about you, who might be much wealthier much less wealthy than he is. That he cares about people being exploited. He cares about racism and sexism and homophobia. He doesn't want to see anyone oppressed or hurt or harmed. And that's why it didn't make sense to me why someone like this would have signed with UB in 2010, two years after the UB cheating scandal, Why would he sign with them and promote them as a safe place to play? And that's exactly what he did. And people came to him, including Daniel Negreanu, who was once friends with him, and said, hey, Prahlad, there's not new ownership there. They're pretending there is, but there's not really new ownership. These are the same owners who cheated everybody, and you're promoting them. Like, what do you think they're going to do now? They're going to be honest now? Of course not. They're going to cheat people again. And they did. In 2011, when they got busted, it turned out they had stolen all the money on deposit. And they were broke. So they cheated people all over again in a different way. And Perlot had been promoting them. Yeah, that was the old UB. This is the new UB. Yeah, they, they donated to charities of my choice. So they, they good. They good. And he had this obnoxious, like, faux ghetto accent, which was so contrived because he was just a, a rich white boy who grew up in a rich family, a rich white Jew. He, he wasn't at all what he presented in any way. It seemed like he didn't really have the strength of his own convictions. The only sign that he did was in the 2000s, he did not take any sponsorships with any sites prior to UB, claiming that he did not want to represent any corporations because corporations are evil and they exploit people. And even poker corporations, he cannot support. Well, okay, I mean, that's a little bit weird, but okay, at least it seemed like he had some principles and was giving up money in order to do that. But it seemed to me like as soon as he hit a downswing... He not only represented a corporation, but he represented the most evil corporation in poker, which was UB. And he knowingly did so. But up until now, that was only a theory of mine. And it was based upon poker table ratings, which had kind of a a semi-complete version of observing cash games, where it would try to track how players were doing. And you could look it up, but it had flaws. It would miss sessions. So... He didn't always get a whole picture. I remember looking at my own stats on there, and there would be times when I'd be on a downswing and it would miss some of it. 
There'd be times I'm on an upswing and miss some of it. So sometimes it wasn't accurate, but it was mostly accurate. Generally, if it showed I was winning, I was winning. If it showed I was losing, I was losing. Well, poker table ratings showed Prahlad on his Prefontaine account losing about 800K on poker stars in 2010. And very shortly after that, he signed with UB after they had given him a refund. Remember, he was one of the biggest victims on there of the cheating. So he was victimized by the cheating. It was well known that he was one of the most high-profile victims and that he had been cheated for a ton of money, maybe over a million bucks, but uh, he never said what he got back, but he really was one of the biggest victims on there. And so not only did they pay him something back that he never disclosed what it was, but he also was representing them, claiming that these are new owners, that these are good people, they're not going to screw anybody. And of course, you saw what really happened. And everybody knew it. It's not like this was a shock. Everybody was telling Prahlad, watch out. I was even telling him. And he didn't care. I remember Negreanu got pissed about this because he kept trying to tell Prahlad and Prahlad was dismissing it. So my theory was that Prahlad was a spoiled rich kid his whole life and that he was used to living an upper-class lifestyle. And he was obsessed with the hills over Malibu. And he wanted to live there. He wanted to keep living there. He wanted to keep buying expensive things, driving an expensive car, just living like a rich guy. And once he went on this big downswing, he could no longer do that. And poker was getting harder. He was on a downswing. He had shot through most of his bankroll. Maybe his parents weren't going to give him any more money. And he had to find a way to keep this lifestyle going. And UB, which had just refunded him some money, some six-figure sum of money, I assume, that they offered to him that if he would also represent them, they'd give him a lot more money. And that was my theory, that it was because of that downswing on poker stars that he decided to abandon all of his principles and sign with UB. And this was really damaging because here you have the biggest victim on UB who's telling everybody, no, it's okay to come back. Look, I lost more than any of you in this scandal, and I th- I'm saying it's okay to come back. Plus, look at me. I'm, I'm Prahlad, the man of the people. I, I care about everybody. Would, would I be promoting this if I didn't really believe in them? It was very convincing. I mean, not to me, but to the average poker pro, not the average poker pro, the average poker recreational player. This was very convincing if you knew about the scandal. So if you didn't really dig deep into it, if you didn't know further details about everything going on at UB, if you just heard there was a scandal there with whole cards and that he was one of the big victims, if he's inviting you to come back, that sounds pretty good, right? So I really felt that was damaging and people got hurt by it. Now, yeah, many, many years later, like fairly recently, people got paid back, not because UB paid back, but because the government fund that they got from poker stars from buying full tilt, there was some money left over. And even though they said they wouldn't be doing this, they ended up paying people who got cheated on UB. But also these people had to know about it. They had to submit the request. And many years later, most of these rec players had no idea and they probably never got their money. So this is really bad and really damaging and it hurt a lot of innocent people. And Prahlad had a hand in it. He didn't do any cheating, but he led the lambs to the slaughter when he knew better. He knew what was going on. He knew it wasn't new owners. If he didn't, he should have. Everyone's telling him it's not new owners. Why doesn't he do some work into looking if there really is new owners? Why doesn't he ask them for proof? 
So ICE did it because he needed the money, didn't want to ask questions. And he justified in his mind, ah, oh, they say they're going to do charity. They're going to donate to charity. It's a good thing. Like he, he talked himself into believing. He talked himself into believing he wasn't a bad person to accept this. But he was. He, he decided his Malibu lifestyle was more important than sticking to his principles, that it was okay to screw other people as long as he can still live in the, the hills of Malibu and keep in action. And that, that was my theory. But that was only my theory. I never had proof that this is what happened, other than seeing what was on poker table ratings and just kind of assuming it. Well, I have my proof now. And the proof came from him. This is the first time he's ever admitted to this. Now, first of all, something else weird I haven't reported yet. There is a woman on Twitter named Fernanda Basio, who kind of resembles his ex-wife, but isn't his ex-wife. I'm talking about his second ex-wife. Remember, he was married to a D. Luang. She was older than him. She was an Asian woman older than him who played Limit Hold'em. And they got a divorce like in the early 2010s. And then he married this much younger girl from Brazil. And they had a kid together. And then uh, they got a divorce. And that was pretty public on Twitter and pretty embarrassing for him. They had fights on Twitter and eventually a divorce on Twitter and a lot of really embarrassing stuff. But they've been apart for a number of months now, at least. But uh, this is really weird. I didn't mention this before. It wasn't worth a segment by itself. But on May 24th, Fernanda Basilio, who is F-E-E-H Basilio, that's B-A-S-I-L-I-O 21, F-E-E-H Basilio 21, tweeted, you are and will always be my best choice, my everything I love you. And he tweeted back, I love you more. And there's a little video of them kissing in bed. And then she puts that she's married on her Twitter profile. So Prahlad might have gotten married again <laughs> to a woman that looks kind of similar to his previous wife. That's kind of weird by itself. She's also younger than him again. I think she might even be from Brazil. Like It really looks like almost like a copy of the previous wife. Very bizarre. But putting that aside here, this segment's not really about this new wife. Putting that part aside, this is what he tweeted on June 9th. This is referring to uh, people pumping cryptocurrencies on Twitter, people who are trying to say that uh, certain cryptocurrencies are great to invest in, and then just doing it to get their pet cryptocurrency pumped up. And so he was calling them out that they're dishonest. So he tweets on June 9th, if you only tweet bye, 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 even when you know a dip is coming, it's painfully obvious you are just trying to pump up your coin. Gonna unfollow dishonest accounts. So, okay. I mean, he's right, but he shouldn't be the one saying that. Like, he's lost the ability to say that after representing UB. It's like very obvious to anyone who knows his history. So sure enough, person who goes by that Pope, who I think is Pope on 2 plus 2, he tweeted back, but signing with and shilling for UB was honest. So, of course, Perlad wasn't happy to see that. But whereas normally he just ignores it, he decided to answer this time. He said, everyone makes mistakes, bro. Want to open up about mistakes you've made in life? Which is a stupid answer. Like, Pope isn't saying, hey, I'm perfect, you're not, you suck. He's saying, you're being a hypocrite here. You selfishly signed with UB and shilled them when you knew they were crooked after the cheating scandal with the same owners. And then they did cheat everybody a second time. So after you've done that, you've lost your ability 
to call out others for doing dishonest things or pumping dishonest things online. That's exactly what you did with UB in 2010, is you pumped UB online when you knew what they were. So instead of saying, yeah, I did, um, that was stupid, I, I apologize, I really regret it, and uh, now I'm trying to call out others who are dishonest, and I, I, I really hope that uh, they can learn from it too. Like, that would be the best thing he could say. Instead, he's like, yeah, everyone makes mistakes. You perfect? You ain't perfect. Yeah, you ain't perfect, so what have you done with life? Like, it, it's, it's such a stupid answer. You don't have to be perfect to criticize this. He, he has still not apologized for this. So then uh, Willie McFML, who is a listener to the show and poster on Poker Fraud Alert, he responded back. So he said, he made a great point, though. Glass houses, bro. And then Perlad wrote this. So in order to complain about anything, you have to be a perfect person that's never made a mistake. I hope you never complain about anything for your life, sir. Also, when I was with UB for only three to four months, I actually believed what I was saying. Wasn't a lie. And so... Willie said back, not saying you can't move past that mistake, but you can't get mad when other people remind you of it, which is totally true. Like you, He can move forward, but he's never apologized. He has never even admitted this was a mistake till now, from what I've seen. I've never seen any public admission of this. And he has really just been very arrogant about this and gets mad if anybody brings it up. So Willie's saying, look, you've got to own it. You've got to... Not be pissed when people say it, especially if you're calling out something similar. And then Willie also said, you complaining about a pump and dump is pretty egregious given how everyone but you knew UB was shady, which is very true. (laughs) UB was kind of a pump and dump in a way. Different than these these cryptocurrencies, these junk coins that he claims people are are shilling. But it's kind of similar that he was promoting something that was shady and likely to result in people getting cheated, result in people losing their money. So he's saying this is really hypocritical. Then, well, he said, you even threw up UB gang signs. So then came the big admission, and he's never said anything like this before, but this is really interesting. Perlad said back to Willie on Twitter, it's on June 10th now at 4.34 p.m., he wrote... You get offered one million a year for three years to wear a hat, and you see what you do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You get offered one million a year for three years to wear a hat, and let's see what you do. So Perlad is saying, it's right there. He was offered by UB a million dollars a year for the next three years to represent them. That that's what happened. And Willie said back, how much of that $3 million did you get? And put the laughing emoji. They made a fool of you and you let them. You made your bet. Now, these tweets are still up. And you can go look at them on Prahlad Friedman's account. It's uh, Prahlad, P-R-A-H-L-A-D, Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. But there's some tweets that are gone that Prahlad had written back to Willie and then removed. But fortunately, Willie captured them and sent them to me, so... I posted the screenshot of those too. Perlad also wrote to Willie, you like to hate. I remember you. Hope you can become perfect so it's more justified. So it's this whole thing like you can't criticize me unless you're perfect, which is so stupid. Nobody's perfect. So what? Nobody can ever criticize anybody else unless they're perfect? Like what? And then he also wrote, and again, this is gone too. I don't get mad. UB was the worst two times over. 
It's regretful that I was ever involved. I needed money at the time, and no other site would offer me a penny. Pretty hard to turn down three million for three years. Hmm. I needed money at the time, and no other site would offer me a penny. Hmm. Now, I don't believe no other site would offer him a penny. This is before Black Friday. And I'm sure PokerStars would have signed him as a pro because he was still fairly known and well-regarded in poker. Remember, this was right after the 2000s were over, where he was pretty big. But I do believe that PokerStars was not going to pay him a million bucks a year. Full Tilt was not going to pay him a million bucks a year. He wasn't that big. So UB, who was desperate for someone to shill for them with credibility, was willing to commit a million bucks a year to him to get him the biggest victim of their cheating scandal to say they're okay. Now, he wasn't with them three years, so he didn't get that three million. I don't know how much of that first million he got. He wasn't even with them a year before Black Friday happened, so I don't know how much of that million he even got. But that doesn't matter. He agreed to promote them for three years for one million a year. And he said, I needed money at the time and no site would offer me a penny except for them. So while he's saying it's regretful he was ever involved, which by the way, he deleted that tweet. So right now all his tweets still don't say anything like that. But he needed money at the time and no other site would offer him a penny. Okay. I mean, yes, others would do this. You're not the only one in the world, Prahlad, who would have accepted this money. I mean, there's a lot of people in poker who would have taken one million a year for three years to promote UB. A lot of people would have done. But these people are not on Twitter sanctimoniously telling everyone how moral they are, how much better they are than you, and how much they care about the people, how much they care about humanity. If you are going to take a million dollars a year from a known scam site and promote them anyway because you need money, then you have lost your ability to criticize anybody else. It's not a matter of not being perfect. It's that you have taken a million dollars a year, which probably you didn't even get that much of it, but you made an agreement for a million dollars a year to promote a scam site. Now he says, oh, I, I, at the time I believed what I was saying. Bullshit. I don't believe it because everybody, including me, I can say this because I was one of them. Everybody was saying, Prahlad, we will show you why UB is still shady and we will show you how the old ownership is still involved. And he did not want to hear it from anybody, even Daniel Negreanu. If you know Negreanu, ask him. Ask Negreanu about his conversations with Prahlad. A lot of people have these conversations with Prahlad. And Prahlad would not budge because he needed his million dollars a year for his high-stakes gambling and for his Malibu lifestyle. So he didn't want to hear it. He kept his eyes closed and his ears closed. He did not want to know the truth. He remained willfully ignorant. This was not like, this would be a good excuse for like a celebrity outside of poker who was recruited by UB and signed with them and had no way to know this was going on because they just wouldn't know to research such a thing. Where still you could say they should use Google and look it up, but at least you could say, well, it would make sense why they don't know. But Perlod, he knew. And if he didn't know, there were tons of people screaming at him that they wanted to show him. Tons of people who said, Perlod, let's just show you. Even very politely, including me. I wasn't coming at him like, hey, Perlod, you, you big scam supporter. Let me show you why you're an asshole. Like, I wasn't doing that. I, I came to him very politely. In fact, he was even on a show 
that I did prior to this one, and we we had a very friendly conversation on there. He he said something stupid on that show too. Remember, where I asked him, Prahlad, how do you know that they refunded you the right amount of money? They won't sh- they won't send anyone the full hand histories. So how do you know that what they sent you as a settlement was the exact amount that you were cheated out of? And he said. Well, they they send me so much money. I like I couldn't imagine it being more. You know, they just just so much was sent to me. Like, how could it even be more than that? <laughs> how does that make any sense? Because they sent you a large figure that there's no way you could have been cheated more than that large figure. Like he wasn't saying he got overpaid. He was just saying like he knew he got cheated for a very large amount of money, like a six figure amount of money at least. So that he claims they sent him. A six-figure amount of money. He's like, oh, that's a lot of money. Well, it's got to be right. They wouldn't send me that much if it's not right. Well, of course they would. <laughs> of course they could underpay you. But the truth was, and we just found this out now, on top of that, they offered him another million. I don't know if they paid it up front or if they were paying him month by month. I don't know how much he ended up getting, but they offered him a million per year for three years, plus whatever refund they gave for the cheating. That's why he was okay with it. But he said he needed money, and he did it because he needed the money. Okay, well, there goes your ability to look down upon those who do the same thing. You can no longer be Mr. Man of the People, Mr. I care about humanity, Mr. I care about the oppressed, because you helped oppress people. You didn't help to oppress a particular race or sexual preference or religion, but you did help to oppress people financially who could not afford it. You helped a company scam people. And you knowingly did so because you refused to listen to very knowledgeable and credible people in your industry who wanted to show you the absolute proof of this. These knowledgeable and credible people wanted to come to you and told you this and actually show you the evidence as to why you were still supporting the same ownership that cheated everybody. And you refused to look. So you did not believe what you said at the time. You may claim you did, but you didn't because in order to believe what you said at the time, that would mean you actually researched it and were willing to listen to others who were willing to respectfully present it to you, and you were not. And I know this because I was one of them, and I know this because Daniel Negreanu was one of them and said so. You've really lost your ability to posture on Twitter. You can pretend to be against racism and sexism and all that all you want. You can act like the male feminist of the year, but it doesn't matter if you knowingly helped you be rip everyone off in the early 2010s after they had already cheated everybody in the 2000s and then they did cheat everybody a second time people you had brought to the site you had put your stamp of approval on it and you knowingly ignored respectful and respectable people in the community who wanted to show you you have lost your moral standing you've lost your moral ground to lecture anybody but there you go that was the first time he ever did it First time you ever admitted this. So I no longer have to theorize. And my theory was correct. What do you know? The reason I theorized this and the reason I ended up being correct was because he really did turn down money from poker stars and other sites in the 2000s. He really did. He could have had more. So at the time when Perlad was doing well at the tables and had a lot of money, he was able to stick to his principles and say he doesn't want that dirty corporation money because he doesn't need it. 
yeah, more money would be nice, but he was doing so well that he was willing to give it up because he was able to live the lifestyle he wanted. It was when the lifestyle he wanted couldn't continue. That was when the problem happened. That's when he sold out. And that is the true way to judge someone, not just how they behave during the good times, but how they behave during the bad times. It's kind of like how you judge friends. If friends are only nice to you when you have something that they can benefit from, when everything's going well for you, and when you might be doing nice things for them, or when having association with you can benefit them, uh, the way you can see whether they're really friends is when you start having hard times, if they're there for you or if they kind of disappear. Similar here. Rich, doing well at the tables per lot, turning down corporate money, doesn't matter if struggling per lot will take evil corporation money so he can stay rich per lot. So interesting to see how money can corrupt people, even ones that are very, very arrogant about how that they're not like this. Especially someone who rails about corporation and corporate greed. You'd think that him of all people would watch out not to become that. He, he became everything he claimed to hate. It's pretty amazing. That is why people still give him a hard time. He still doesn't get it either. He's really convinced himself because he has to do these mental gymnastics in order to look in the mirror. So while he regrets signing with UB, in hindsight, he has done the mental gymnastics that he really believed what he was saying. He really believed it was the new UB and everything was fine. And then they turned out not to be, and he's like, oh, man, they tricked me. That's, that's kind of fucked up. I, I trusted them as the new UB. I trusted them as about, about charity and goodness, and that they, they, were, they were bad. They were bad. They, they tricked me. They tricked me. That's too bad. I wouldn't have done it if I knew. Yeah. Hey, why are you trolling me? If I knew, I wouldn't have done nothing. Like, <laughs> it's like, hey, Prahlad, what about how we tried to No, 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 I, I didn't know. But, but we tried to No, no, I didn't know. But we, we wanted to tell you that. I, 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 did, I, I had no way to know. No way. No, nobody, nobody, no, no one, no one, no one. How could I know? How could I see the future? I don't, I don't, I don't got a crystal ball, you know? Like, I, I don't got a ball I can look at and see if they're going to cheat everybody in 2011 when I'm telling you 2010 to go play there. But, you know, for a lot, we, we told you, I, 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 people say lots of things. That doesn't mean it's true. But it was true. I, I, we didn't know that. We, we, we didn't have any proof. Well, actually, we did have proof, but... I, 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 how did I know? How, how could I know? Don't talk about it. If you, are you perfect? You, you, know, you ain't perfect. I, you know, I, I, I saw you jaywalk the other day. I saw you jaywalk. I saw that, that, that sign that said, don't walk, and you walked. You walked. So, you know, how can, how can you say that to me? If you walked when I said, don't walk, and I said, play when you said, don't play. It's the same thing, you know? One says, don't. One says, do. We all do it. We're human. We're all human. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Matt Berkey has created some drama where it really shouldn't have existed. Landon Teese and Bill Perkins are still playing. Landon is currently ahead. He's uh, right around where he needs to be at the moment for number of big blinds per 100 ahead, but they have a long way to go. Won't bother really covering that. That's not all that interesting. I'll, I'll tell you if anything interesting happens with that, like, if someone has like a, a huge session or something. I mean, there, there was a pretty big session actually that Tease had, but that's not really the point of the segment. The point of the segment here is that 
Matt Berkey created some drama with this whole thing. I want to tell you what happened here, and it shows you how sometimes you can't buy into all the hysteria, and something that looks bad on the surface actually isn't all that bad. So, so quickly to recap here, they played a third session. Remember, uh, Landon was down after day two by almost 80K, but then he won 158K in the third session, so he was up 98K. Then the fourth session, he lost 45K. So they had played 1,679 hands. This is as of uh, June 7th. And overall, Landon was up uh, 53.7K. He was up about eight big blinds per hundred. I, I don't know if they've played since then, but whatever. Like, this has got a long way to go because they got to get all, all the way to 20,000 hands. And they've only got... Uh, 1,679 hands done by June 7th. But the more interesting thing that happened was on June 5th. And of course, this is prior to the session that was uh, on... uh, This is prior to the third session, I believe. Matt Berkey, who is a backer for Landon Teese here. I don't know how much he's backing him. I heard Galfon's involved in backing this too, but... uh, Tisa said that he's playing for about 10% of himself in this 200-400 no-limit match, heads up against Perkins. And Berkey was... I don't know why he was chatting with someone at ACR support, but ACR is where the match takes place. And this is what Berkey was uh, saying. To, this is what happened. Is uh, he, I don't even think he expected this... Uh, Someone at ACR, I don't know how this cha- this even got started, this chat, but someone, uh, I don't even know where this chat was, but someone at ACR named Mel wrote this to Berkey. Hi, two quick questions. Do you have any further information on the start time for tomorrow? That is for the start time of the next wave of the match. And is there any sports book you know of that offers betting on the challenge? We're thinking of putting a wager on. And then somebody named Andre, who is uh, involved with on Berkey's side here, said, uh, we do not have any time confirmed, but we're told 3 p.m. And this is extremely worrisome from my point of view. I have huge red flags going off that the operator of our match is putting on a bet of one of the players. Can you explain why that would be worrisome? Mel asks. And then... Berkey writes back, security of your site when it has a betting interest? And then Mel writes, poker is rigged? Question mark with a smiley face. Okay, sure, I understand. So, okay, let's stop right here. Uh, several things wrong with this conversation. <laughs> I mean, this, this Mel person's an idiot and uh, like they, they should have taken some care before writing something like this. So I understand why Berkey and this Andre guy were alarmed by this. Because basically this Mel at ACR is asking, hey, do you know any sports book that wants to take bets on Deese versus Perkins? Because we want to put a bet on this. When he said we, I think they're talking about ACR, that the company is going to put a bet on this. And then this Andre guy is like, wait a minute, hold on. Wait, you, you want to place a bet on a match taking place on your site? And then... Mel's like, well, okay, what's wrong with that? Can you explain why that would be worrisome? And then Berkey's like, security of your site when it has a betting interest? And then 
instead of saying, oh, yeah, you know what? This does look kind of bad. Okay, never mind. Sorry, we weren't looking to do anything like that. I'm really sorry. Yeah, this is a terrible look. We won't do it. And still, instead, Mel types, poker is rigged and puts a smiley face like he's joking. Well, it's not a laughing matter at this point. Like, it's... You don't say poker is rigged like that when they're worried that maybe ACR is going to rig it if they bet on this. So I understand why this is a bad look. I understand why initially this got Berkey a little bit riled up because he has some of his own money on the line. He has probably a lot of his own money on the line backing Landon Tees here. So then Andre said, that's a gigantic conflict of interest. I'm extremely serious. That's not okay. And... Then Berkey says, uh, I don't mean to speak out of turn here, but as someone heavily invested in this match, I don't feel comfortable with it being played on a site that's wagering the outcome. Mel says back, no worries at all. We're just floating the idea here. Thanks for the outcome. (laughs) We're just floating the idea. Never mind, guys. You know, you don't like it. We won't do it. Okay, no problem. Like, Like, then so Berkey gets pissed. No, no, Mel. Floating the idea is enough concern for me to attempt to pull this from ACR. And then Mel clarifies he meant thanks for the input, not the outcome, but whatever. Uh, I have a responsibility to the investors to let them know this is occurring. And then Mel says, I absolutely understand. I'm just exploring ideas that have been posted on the Twitch chat. I understand your involvement, which is why I'm doing the right thing and bringing this to your attention before planning any further steps. So there's no need for concern here for any party. And then Andre, who again is someone associated with Berkey, says, I think your actions have accomplished the exact opposite, to be frank. And then... Phil Nagy got involved, and he says, we're not offering odds on the match. If someone thinks it's rigged, then they're welcome to play somewhere else. No sweat off my back. To rephrase, people are asking us where they can book some action. And then Matt says, that's not at all what was stated above, because basically Berkey's saying, you're not asking where other people can bet. You're asking where you guys can bet, which is true. That is what they were asking. So then... Phil Nagy, who again, who's the CEO of ACR, says, obviously I could have a line out in a few minutes and IMO that would be worrisome. And then Nagy says, well, fair enough. The last place we would do is ask something like that with any malicious intent would be here. Okay, so that's the biggest point in Nagy's favor. That if ACR was going to do something really shady, if they were going to wager a lot of money on this match and then rig it for whoever they wagered on, the last thing they would do is go to Berkey and this Andre guy and go, hey, uh, where can we bet on this? Because we, we want to bet somewhere. We want to put a little money on this and, th- and then rig it. Like they, w- they would never telegraph this. If they were going to bet on it, they would find out from someone other than Berkey <laughs> where, where the match can be bet on, if anywhere, which I believe poker shares you could do it. But I'm sure they could find out without having to consult Berkey. I'm sure they could just Google it or read poker forums or whatever, and then they could play some kind of big bet as big as they could by proxy and then rig it. If, if that's what they were looking to do, they would never ask Berkey where they could bet on this. This is just like a dumb thing that someone wasn't thinking about when Mel asked this. So they were, I, I guess in some Twitch chat, people are going, oh, where can we bet on this? And then I guess Nagy wanted to just bet on it and have a little fun with rooting for someone for the outcome, even though it's on his own site. But it's a bad look, I admit. But I believe that was totally innocent. Because if it wasn't, they would not have telegraphed like this. They would not have asked the backers of this match where they can bid on it. So then Andre says, the problem comes from a conflict of interest. It's like recusing yourself if you're a judge. I hope you can see from our view. 
We don't even know which way you would bet, but we have to maintain the challenge's integrity and protect ourselves and the other parties. I don't think it's malicious and you're actively saying you're going to change anything, but at the same time, we're trying to produce a system where it can't even exist. Well, but it can exist. if It's actually better that they do say it than, than actually bet and not say it. So I, I would say, rather than we're worried, is that this just looks bad. This is a bad look for everybody involved here. Let's just not do it. Like, you guys shouldn't do this. It's a really bad look for everybody and for the whole match. And then Phil Nagy starting to get uh, irritated here. He, remember, he said earlier that it's no sweat off his back if they don't do it there. So he wasn't even looking so much to promote ACR. Phil Nagy's like, you know, take it or leave it. You can have your match on my site, but I don't really need this. So if you, if you want this out of here, then take it. Just go. <laughs> so Phil says, just saying I've gone out of my way to remove as much Rish, I don't know what he meant by Rish, as possible, and I may overreact or take offense when asked questions like that. Andre says, uh, I don't think you're being malicious or you're saying you do anything or we're implying that you're going to do anything. What we're looking for is an environment where nothing can exist and there isn't anything in the system that could slant one way or the other. Well, that's stupid. It could slant one way or the other. They could just decide they like one guy better than the other. They could say, you know what? I hate Landon Teese's uh, attention whorish attitude on uh, Twitter. He annoys me. This little this kid annoys me. I'm just going to rig it for Perkins to win. Or, you know what? Perkins throwing his money around to be relevant in poker, to have people notice him and his own rich guy attention whoring, that's kind of irritating. And Landon is kind of charming, this, this white-eyed kid, even if he does like attention. At least he's like a white-eyed kid, not just some rich guy trying to throw his money around to get attention. So F him. We're going to rig it for Landon. Like they can easily do either of these without any financial incentive and without either of these players even knowing. I'm not saying they are. I don't think they're rigging anything, to be true, to be honest. I would be very surprised if anything was rigged here. But I'm saying that, yeah, anything could happen on ACR. It's unregulated. They, they can do whatever the hell they want, and we'll never know. So it's kind of a dumb thing to say. We want to with nothing in the system that could slant one way or the other. Now, good luck with that. So Phil Nagy says, I get where you're coming from, but a little bit of the doubt would go a long way is all I'm saying. And then so Berkey says, that's an insane stance. Andre says, we're looking for brutal objectivity. So then Phil Nagy says, so I've been a bookmaker for 20 years. And then Berkey says, I'm sorry, but it's not like there's full disclosure in online security. And the fact that an operator is not impartial is a massive breach of integrity. So Phil Nagy says, and with enough money on the line, anything could be corrupted. One of the reasons I don't have a line on it. So he's saying that he could have set up his own odds on the match that people could bet on, but uh, he doesn't want to give the look that they may care about the outcome this way, so this way they're not setting one, because they don't want accusations that people bet one way or the other, and they slant the match that way. Phil goes on to say, there's not a book on the planet that doesn't lay off action from time to time. And what he means by that is, if a very big better wants to bet on a game, there are some books that do not want to risk that much. So let's say someone approaches a sports book, a, a big whale who likes to bet big and a customer they like to have, maybe even a, a losing better. But while he usually bets, say, uh, 50,000 max per game, which the book is comfortable with, he comes and says, I want to bet on this particular game. One million dollars. And the book is like, shit. If he beats us here, which... He could do, you know, like if it's a spread bet, it's pretty much 50-50, which side's going to win. Uh, he's not going to keep betting this over and over. 
And so he could really get up on us, and it's going to take a while to get it back. Yes, we have the odds to beat him, but he's not normally betting this much. We feel uncomfortable here because we don't normally take this much action, and it'll take us a long time to win this much back. So what they will sometimes do is what's called layoff action, where they will actually go to other books and bet the other way in order to... And yes, they pay the, the juice by doing this to the other books, but they will actually, without telling the customer... They will actually go bet back the other way, so their exposure to this is much less. And that's what Phil Nagy's saying. I, I don't know how it's that relevant here, but he's saying that uh, every book lays off action from time to time. He says, that being said, no, as a company or personally, we have any skin in the game. Uh, uh, I'd bet, is betting on the final table on GG a, a breach? GG poker, he's talking about, happens weekly. I don't know who's betting on the final table, but he's saying that. So in short, no, we're not looking to get massive action or any for that matter. Or if you prefer, we don't tell people where they can. We will not point anyone in the direction. And for what it's worth, if a match could be rigged, I wouldn't be involved in that software. So just let me know what I would need to do to get a little credit, and I'll do what I can. So, okay, Phil didn't handle this the best. And this Mel guy said stupid things at the beginning. I don't Actually, Mel could be a girl. It could be Melissa, but whatever. This Mel person, maybe it's a gender-fluid person, maybe Male is, is a person who's neither male nor female. You never know these days. But anyway, whoever this male is started off phrasing this very poorly, and they really should not have even asked this. I mean, it just, I didn't know what they were thinking. Like, I agree this was like an inappropriate thing to ask, and I agree ACR should not be betting on this themselves. I don't even think ACR should be leading people to bet on it elsewhere. But if they say, hey, you know, uh, people keep asking this, is there some other site that's taking bets? It's, it's not the worst thing for them to say, oh, yeah, we heard PokerShares is doing bets on this or whatever, but as long as it's not associated with them in any way, it's really best just for them to stay out of it, to say, we don't know, you can look it up yourself, but we don't do it, and it would be a conflict of interest, so we, we're not getting involved in that. That's really the best answer. But okay, that's not what they said. There's one thing to look bad and say something kind of inappropriate, it's another thing to actually be shady. And this isn't shady. This is just them coming up with a dumb idea. And I don't see any problem with Andre and Berkey saying, no, don't do this. This is a very bad look. And this is a huge mistake. But I felt they overreacted. Now, I think even they felt they overreacted and very quickly. So this tweet from Berkey was at 9.47 a.m. Pacific time on June 5th. So then there was a follow-up tweet. The follow-up tweet, remember the first one was at 9.47 on June 5th. The follow-up tweet said, after much deliberation, much deliberation, (laughs) both sides have agreed there's minimal downside to continuing the match on ACR, but also that this information should be made public for the betting community to ensure full transparency. The match will continue as planned at 4 p.m. today. So remember, much deliberation. So how long did the much deliberation take? Remember, they they posted the tweet, the original uh, set of captured messages at uh, 9.47. How much time did it take to deliberate? How much deliberation was there? 12 minutes. They posted the follow-up after much deliberation at 9.59. (laughs) <laughs> 12 long minutes of thought and they said you know what 
after much 12 minutes of deliberation, we've decided, yeah, that's no big deal. <laughs> what? What? So if after 12 minutes you decide that this is okay, why are you making a huge deal about it? Like, I can understand saying, hey, this happened today and we decided it's actually okay and we still trust ACR, but just to let everybody know, we had this conversation, here it is. But to act like you're all bothered here, like he, he wrote, a concern of integrity was brought to us yesterday. And then 12 minutes later, after much deliberation, both sides agreed. Now, I think what might have happened was that this actually happened the day before, like Berkey was saying, and that they took a full day to decide. And then he posted them together, these two tweets, like 12 minutes apart. But it kind of looked like they decided this in 12 minutes. So I think they probably didn't decide in 12 minutes. Just It just has that appearance. But the problem was this was created th- – this was – presented as if he was really concerned about the integrity. The first tweet is that concern of integrity was brought to us yesterday and then posted it. And then after much deliberation, we decided to continue. That's the wrong way to put it. You got to put it like this was brought up yesterday and we got a little alarmed. After further discussion, we decided that while this was a bad look, we don't believe anything malicious was going on and we've decided to go forward. But here, for full transparency, here's the conversation. I think he would not have gotten much criticism then. Another problem was that they that, that he also made a, another post of some screenshot of texts with Phil Nagy with Phil's cell phone number in it. <laughs> so then someone said, hey, Berkey... Uh, Phil's number's in there. Did he mean to expose Phil's number? And he's like, oh, shit, and deleted it. Now, I think that was an accident. I don't believe that Berkey did that on purpose. I think he just hastily threw that up there. Chance Cornuth responded, pretty sure if there was any rigging going on, they would have already have tons of money down, and this convo would have never taken place. 100%. 100%. That's why he should not have overreacted. Now, a lot of people were not happy with Berkey in this whole thing. A lot of people felt that Berkey was overreacting, that he was acting like a douche, that there was no reason to post this whole thing if they already came to terms here and everything was fine, that it was worded poorly by Berkey, like they were so concerned about this. And a number of people were criticizing Berkey over this. And uh, someone even responded, I forgot who it was, but someone even made a separate tweet thread saying, in Berkey's defense, like, why are all of you calling Berkey a douche over this? He was very reasonable here. And then he got responses like, no, this was okay, but Berkey's just a douche in general. (laughs) So I don't think Berkey was way out of line with this. Like, I totally understand why he was concerned here, but I just think he didn't handle it well either. And I think you don't post this thing getting everybody to panic if you're going to keep it on ACR. If you're moving it from ACR, then definitely you post this. Keeping it on ACR, I think maybe you don't even post this. But if you do, you've got to make sure before you show the screenshots at all that you've decided you trust ACR enough to continue. And he doesn't really even say that. He just says there's minimal downside to continue on ACR. Minimal downside? Like That's not very confidence-inspiring. How about while the idea was bad, we just think it was 
it was innocent. We think they just wanted action and they didn't realize how it would look. And after further conversation and consultation with Perkins and with Teese and the investors that we've all decided that we trust ACR enough to continue. Something like that. I'm not saying they have to kiss ACR's ass, but this didn't come off well. This was really much to do about nothing. So it's one of these things where the initial alarmed reaction is totally fine. And I would have thought the same thing. Like if I was backing land in here and I saw that, like, hey, where can we bet on this? It's a site which actually runs it. I go, wait a minute. Why why do you guys want to bet on this? Like that looks kind of weird. Like uh, why do you even want this? This is bizarre. It'll be a terrible look. Like I wouldn't like seeing that. But then I, I would stop and think what Chance Cornuth said that if this was really a rigging situation, they would just quietly hammer tons of money on it and say nothing. Probably do it through a proxy that wouldn't be able to say it was Phil Nagy betting tons of money, but just some third party that works for Phil that people don't know works for Phil, puts a bunch of money down on one side or the other, and then they rig it for him and no one ever knows better. So maybe he could have like a bunch of people doing it so they don't run into limit problems. Get like 15 people to do it. I'm sure where ACR runs in a foreign country, I think it's in Costa Rica, or something. I'm sure they could find lots of people to place bets like this for them. Lots of runners. So if ACR wanted to do this, they totally could. So you have to think of it that way. Sometimes what looks the most suspicious actually isn't suspicious because it would be so obvious if anything were to happen. And sometimes what doesn't look suspicious at all can be very nefarious. A lot of times these type of things happen where you wouldn't expect them to happen, not where the person telegraphs that it could totally happen. So that is something you have to think about here. And Berkey should have thought about this before panic posting this, which apparently he had a day to think about. Now, would it be easy to actually rig this? I don't know how easy, but could it be done? Definitely. Could definitely be done. You give me access to the ACR code and let me modify it the way I want without too long of a time. I don't know how long I had to spend on it. I had to look at their code and the way it's structured, but I could easily write a routine for that match only to rig it one way or the other. Easily. And I could write it to where it'd be very hard to detect. Where, of course, I wouldn't... Let's say I wanted to rig it for Landon to win. I could rig it for, like, to choose a random number and then, like, between, say, 5 and 15, and that uh, every hand, the whatever number it picks, like, let's say it picks number 8, the random number, that that'll mean that uh, on the 8th hand from now, that that will be a rigged hand, and that we're going to specifically deal these cards, not, re- not use a random deck, but to specifically deal these cards with this flop, this turn, this river, and rig it to where a lot of action is going to go in and Landon's going to win. And then let it play normally for a while and then pick another random number. So you can't even see like on every 15th hand that something big happens, but that I, but that it regularly does happen, but just not in any pattern that can be discerned and just deals them preset cards. There'd be no way to tell. There'd be no way to tell if it were rigged or if it just happened to fall that way. Now, if you had it happen too many times, where every time it's uh, Landon gets this incredible cooler, 
then it would start to be odds-defying that this could happen so often it would always be on land inside. But you can even write in some hard-coded hands where it goes to uh, Perkins just to make it look better, but where most of them go to Landon. But you could rig it enough to where by the end of this whole thing that uh, Landon ends up winning. You could even hard-code all the all the hands. You could even... I mean, it'd be worth it for a lot of money. So you, you could even decide in advance every card that's dealt. But if you don't want to put in all that work, you have a lot of random ones in there, you can have a few uh, rigged ones in there. And it's very hard to tell. It'd be impossible to tell. And it wouldn't be that hard to do. And anyone says, oh, no, this couldn't be done, it's very hard, uh, bullshit. I can tell you as a software guy, the answer to that is bullshit. But I'm not saying ACR is doing this. I'm just saying it could be done in theory. But they wouldn't announce it. They wouldn't say, hey, where can we bet on this? They would be doing the opposite. They would never bring up betting. In fact, they would be saying, hey, no, we're, we're not, we're not going to help anyone bet on this. What are you guys talking about? This is where the match is. That, that would be the posture they take if they're going to do something like this. They would be taking the exact opposite posture than, hey, where can we bet on this? We have people wanting to bet. We may want to bet. Where can we bet? Like, they'd never do that if they're going to rig this. Berkey, again, has pissed some people off. Now, there were some who agreed with him. It wasn't like a universal bashing of Berkey. There were a number of people who were saying ACR handled this poorly, that this Mel person was a moron, that Phil was acting unprofessional. It was kind of all over the place. I saw some Berkey bashing. I saw some uh, ACR bashing. So it was mixed. I saw some people who weren't bashing either side, but saying that uh, Berkey was overreacting or that ACR was uh, not handling this well, but Berkey was overreacting. So I've I've seen a number of takes on this. So I, I won't say that there was overwhelming sentiment that Berkey was being a douche, but there were some people who felt that. And there's just some people that Berkey just kind of rubs the wrong way. He just kind of comes off as very arrogant and holier than thou, and some people don't like it. Uh, Berkey hasn't done anything bad to anybody. He's, he's never scammed. He has not hurt anybody, to my knowledge. But some people just don't like his personality. The funny thing was there was a question someone put out. I forgot who put it out. But a question someone put out, who is the nicest person in poker? Certain people immediately came to mind. And I'm talking about like people you'd know, not just some random recreational player. I'm like, like who's a known or semi-known player who would be considered a very nice person in poker? And some names pop into my mind. Uh, Kev Math, who listens to this show, he's definitely a very nice guy. Definitely one of the nice guys in poker. Uh, Mark Gregorich is another nice guy in poker. Phil Galfond, even though sometimes I think he might be a little passive-aggressive, uh, he is indeed very easygoing and calm, and a lot of people feel that he's one of the nice guys of poker. And I wouldn't argue with that. So these would all be good answers, and I saw some other decent answers there. I even saw some mentioned... Uh, the owner of uh, Card Player Lifestyle, not Card Player, but Card Player Lifestyle, who appeared on the show once, uh, Robbie Straczynski, that he's one of the nice guys in poker. And yeah, Robbie is a very easygoing and positive guy. So I can understand that answer. Uh, anyone who criticizes others or gets involved in controversies or, or argues with others doesn't qualify there. And that includes me. I was not named there. I wasn't expected to be named there because... I don't come off as a nice guy in poker. I, I come off as a trustworthy guy in poker. 
I come off as a decent guy in poker, but I don't come off as a nice guy in poker because I will speak out about things that I disagree with. I will argue with people. I will express strong opinions. I have certain people I don't like and they don't like me. So I wouldn't expect that a lot of people would name me as a quote, nice guy in poker. But yeah, like you have to have a certain very easygoing, non-confrontational personality to be one of the quote, nice guys in poker, like the people I named. But Matt Berkey, <laughs> laughably, someone actually said, hey, I'm really surprised that Matt Berkey hasn't been named. <laughs> and the person was serious, too. And someone's like, are you kidding me? Like, he's, he's always bashing people he doesn't like. like what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I'm not even trying to criticize him here because I also bash people I don't like. I do that on this show. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that he definitely doesn't qualify. Like, I, I totally don't see how anyone sees that. Just because he does his little uh, training videos and seems like a, a cool dude on there, uh, that doesn't mean that he's a nice guy. That just means he's putting on a demeanor for his videos. But you just read his Twitter, you're not going to come away that he's one of the nicest guys in poker. you got to be kidding me. I mean, really, I, I don't think he qualifies any more than I do for that title. Okay, so moving on here. Here's a topic that was suggested by Kev Math, speaking of him, and it's a good one, and I meant to cover, but then I didn't list originally, and this was brought to my attention by Kev Math. Hey, what about this? I go, ah, I forgot this. Sorry about that. By the way, uh, Brandon is not going to come on tonight, kind of due to my choice. Not that I don't want him here, but... He likes being here for the Vegas topics, and we still have a lot of topics to do. We have like like nine topics left or something. I'm not even kidding. So we're going to be doing this for a long time, even though the show's been going a while. And we're just not going to have time to sit there riffing back and forth about Vegas stuff. We, we just don't have time this week. It's a very busy week for topics in poker and gambling. So I told him that. And, you know, he, he likes talking about the Vegas stuff. So this just doesn't interest him as much to talk about things like Matt Berkey and this Next topic about this guy on party poker. Like, this just, Brandon's kind of burnt out on that over the years. So he comes on in the second half of the show to talk about the Vegas stuff that he really enjoys. Uh, but as far as Sharif, the Nigerian scammer, I'm not sure where that's going. So I'm going to ask him for that. Maybe we can do that towards the end. Anyway, UK recreational player David Afework, that's A F E W O R K, David Afework, showed up on 2 plus 2 to claim that he got disqualified from the WPT 500 event on Party Poker after winning 160K there. And he claims the disqualification was erroneous, that he was accused of something he didn't do. He posted on 2 Plus 2 on June 7th as Dev Plaza, and he apparently registered an account just for this, he called the thread WPT 500 event number 24 winner disqualified help me. Hi, my name is David Afuk, and I recently won $160,000 on uh, Party Poker. It was my biggest win ever and the most amazing moment of my life. However, today I received an email from Party Poker telling me that I have been disqualified. They believe I gave my account to a third party, which is just complete rubbish. I had played on my account on my Dell laptop in the room I'd been living in for months. My girlfriend, who has no understanding of poker, was the only person that saw me throughout the time of the tournament, and I was completely alone for 99% of the time. 
I imagine this third-party nonsense comes from the fact that I've been living with another poker player for the better part of seven months, so they see we share the same IP address or whatever, but I'm completely transparent about that, and I don't want to hide that. Uh, no one has ever had access to my account other than myself, and that's a 100% guarantee. The truth is I played the tournament and I won. It's as simple as that. And to see how party poker have taken things is just the biggest disappointment ever. And I, I'm just at a loss for words. Making it to the final table with some good players and then to come out on top was just wow. I played better than I ever had, and uh, I also had the luck needed on, my, on the way. Even the final hand liked to crack aces with the flesh on the river that come on... Or when I took out Jamie Staples, who had king-queen suited, and flopped a two-pair, and I flopped the flush with a ten-six of hearts. Like, everything was just going for me. So, so much that after the tournament, I whacked off 2,000 pounds of my winnings onto roulette and got it up to 18,000, but they've taken it all away. Either way, when I lost a few thousand pounds in the weeks prior, I never saw any concern for party poker t towards me or my account, because there's no reason to. Now there I won, and I won big, and they don't want me to win, as clear as day. Anyhow, the reason I'm reacting here on 2 plus 2 is because I need the support of the community, and I don't know how else to capture the community's attention. I've already contacted the UK Gambling Commission to inform them about what's happened, as well as making the initial steps to take legal action. Has it ever happened to anyone before? If you feel compelled to get the word out, I'd greatly be appreciated. I'll keep those who are interested updated along the journey, because it's going to be a long one. Tally how pip-pip, let's get on with it. So that was uh, David A. Fork's initial statement on 2 plus 2. So let's unpack this here. Something that is questionable right at the beginning here is that there's a roommate who also plays on there. Uh-oh. How come it seems like whenever there's a, a story of I got screwed in such and such way by a corporation, there's always a roommate involved that you've got to contend with in figuring this out. Like, I'm staying at the Rio. I had 30000 in my safe. I came back to my room and it was all gone. Well, who was staying in the room with you? Well, yeah, I had a roommate, but he's a totally cool dude and trustworthy. He didn't take it. Is it possible he had the combination? Uh, yeah, he had the combination, but he wouldn't do this to me. <laughs> you know, like, it's always a roommate. It's never just like a dude by himself that comes back to his room and all the money's gone. And if it is, then it turns out he's staked. It's never his own money. It's always he's staked and the staker's money got stolen. So there's always some other factor there that really makes you doubt the person. So right here we've got that his roommate also plays, plays from the same IP, it's been seven months, and that he's afraid that they're suspecting the roommate played for him. So, okay, like, what if he really did win legitimately and they just went and looked up and said, hey, we see two accounts and we think they're both you, so we are going to disqualify you? Or what if it's that his roommate also played the tournament and they think he multi-accounted? Or what if they were looking at the play styles and they decided that the play styles more resembles his roommates than his? So there could be a lot of things that are going on here that he's not talking about. Chicago Joey posted in the thread, said they didn't give you further reasoning as why they suspected someone else was using your account? That's a good question. Like, the, the guy does not explain in that whole story what actually was the reason they claimed they disqualified him so this was pretty intriguing and i knew this is going to be something that uh could go either way but honestly from reading that initial post i was thinking that probably we're going to find out soon enough that the guy really was doing something he shouldn't have been
Because that tends to be the case here. These days, there are not many false, positive cheating accusations in poker where someone gets disqualified like this when they did nothing wrong. Occasionally, yes. Usually, no. Usually when someone is disqualified for multi-accounting or something along those lines, just about every time they turn out to be guilty. Or when tough questions are asked of them, they disappear, which means that uh, the community saw through them and their story fell apart. So he responded to Chicago Joey the following day. Hi, Joey. Apparently you're the person to help sort this mess out. So he was very excited that Chicago Joey got involved. because, like, uh, Chicago Joey has such a big audience that sometimes you have a problem and, and whatever you feel is screwing you won't help you. And then Chicago Joey takes over and brings this on his show. And then it shames whatever organization that was screwing someone into doing the right thing. Like, like Bet Online had this happen where there was a bad beat jackpot situation we talked about where someone was screwed out of it and then Chicago Joey got involved and all of a sudden Bet Online did the right thing. So then he also responded to this person named uh, Chuckamuck. And Chuckamuck wrote, one question to the original poster. Can you confirm, do you know whether or not your roommate played in this tournament also? And Dev Plaza said back, Thanks for the support, and he 100% did not play in the tournament. All right, so that, provided he's telling the truth, there's no concern that there is two accounts in that tournament from the same IP. So that at least makes it a little bit better. Then he posted an update, and this is the last thing he posted in the thread. He had four total posts. The original post, the answer to Joey, the answer to Chuckamuck, and the answer to, then he just made a general post answering himself. Thanks for the support, everyone. I've spoken with a few people in the industry, and apparently Party Poker's decision was based upon conclusive evidence. I'm currently trying to find out what evidence that is, because I would like to know myself how I conclusively gave my account to a third party. I'm still open to settling this out of court, but Party Poker have not responded to my attempts at contact. If I did something wrong, I wouldn't even pursue this, but I ran like God, and I managed to win. I'll drop everything and publicly apologize to Party Poker if I've made some mistake, which I'm unaware of, but I just want to sort out this mess. That was at 7.12 a.m. Pacific Time on June 8th. Well, right now as I record this segment, it is 3.30 a.m. on June 12th. And, hmm, it's been almost four full days. And there's been no further posts by Dev Plaza, who made the account just for this reason. Made four posts in the first day. Since then, there are five more pages of approximately 100 posts on 2 Plus 2, and he's gone away. He stopped answering. So that is a little bit suspicious that he just went away like this because the guy just got stiffed of 160K, according to him. You would think that he would be right on that thread and be very active. I mean, I'd be reading that thread 24-7 and answering everybody and trying to get the community worked up because there was interest in this. There were six pages so far on 2 plus 2, which isn't as active as it used to be, but it's still got six pages going, of people very interested in the situation who probably would like to help him, including, as even he acknowledged, Chicago Joey. And yet, we're not seeing him being particularly enthusiastic about any of this. He was happy to see Joey in the thread, but then he's not really answering anybody anymore. So either he is making some progress on this with party behind the scenes, or this is getting a little... uh, too concerning to him that people are are probing what he might have done wrong. A person named I'm Stoic, who has 25 total posts on 2 plus 2 and registered five months ago in January, posted this. 
I find it funny that you're acting all innocent. I know people in the department that flagged you, and they have proof that you had help during this game. You were either account sharing, meaning getting someone to play for you and splitting profits, or you had someone in the room telling you what to do. When you take party poker to court, they will show evidence, and you will have to pay thousands when they win this case, and you'll have to cover their legal fees. Just drop the charade. Now, I'm stoic, whoever this is, does not present any proof that he's really been talking to people at the security department of party poker. So he could just be making this up. And he's not like a well-known person on 2 plus 2 that wouldn't be lying. This is a guy who registered five months ago. Nobody knows who he is. He's made 25 posts. So he didn't just make this account to troll the guy, but he has only been around since January. He's only made 25 posts, including this one. So that is something that we have to consider, that this could all be BS. And on 2 plus 2, this has actually happened a lot where someone appears in a thread and claims to have knowledge of the controversial issue going on and it turns out they're just messing around. So that could easily be the case here. Or maybe this I am stoic is just trying to get him to admit to something by pretending to have connections to party poker. So I wouldn't put too much stock into this, but it is interesting that the guy disappeared, that David Afork disappeared. After four days, he still has not reappeared. And that is a little bit strange. And he disappeared long before this post by I'm Stoic. So it's not just the I'm Stoic post. I do wonder if they went and looked when an account that was a recreational account and was uh, consistently losing, maybe at low stakes, maybe just it didn't seem to show any kind of poker skill, sat down in this event and played pretty well and spanked all the good players there, including Jamie Staples, and ended up winning the whole thing for 160 k So maybe they audited it and noticed some discrepancies in the play style. For example, let me just give you an example. Uh, let's say whenever this guy plays, he does a lot of limping preflop. Let's say he's a limp donk who just limps a lot when he enters pots unless he's got a big hand and doesn't care about his position. He's always limping in with just anything that looks okay to play. He's just limping in. And let's say in this tournament he won, either the whole time he wasn't limping or once he got deeper, he stopped limping and started open raising and bet sizing like a pro. That would be weird, right? Like how would someone suddenly come up with the skills to do all this? How would they suddenly lose all their bad habits when they get deep in a tournament? So it may have been something like that. It may have been an investigation that originally got started because there were two accounts on that same IP, which may be their standard procedures whenever someone wins a lot of money that they check into these things automatically. And then they saw there was this other player. And then they said, hmm, well, let's just make sure that this player was the one really on the account. And maybe they looked and maybe they noticed that this guy's roommate played a lot more like he played at the end of the tournament than he did. And they put two and two together and figured it out. I'd love to know more about this roommate. Remember, in the first post where he mentions the roommate, he writes, this third-party nonsense comes to the fact that I've been living with another poker player for the best part of seven months, so maybe they see we share the same IP address, but I'm completely transparent about that and don't want to hide that. So he's just another poker player. So is he with another recreational player who plays poker? 
or is he living with another pro? Actually, I guess this guy, it kind of seems like he's a recreational player. He doesn't even directly say he's a recreational player. It kind of seems like that's what he's implying. That it's the most amazing moment of his life. It's the biggest win ever. He's he's not even saying that he normally plays well. He says, I played better than I ever have and got the luck needed. This really kind of sounds like what a recreational player would say. That he's just kind of inspired, actually played well this time, and also got lucky. That kind of seems like what he's saying. I mean, I really get the idea from reading this that he was a recreational player who won it. And indeed, I've never heard of any pro named David A. Fork. I'm not doubting that's really his name. I probably is his name, but is it possible that he has a roommate who's a poker pro and he's just a recreational player and that he was part of the way through and running well and then he started getting worried against these good players who are still in the field, people like Jamie Staples, and he's like, ah, oh, bollocks, I, I really want to win this thing, but I don't quite have the requisite skills to get all the way through. How am I going to deal with all these chaps here? Just um, raise, raise, raise. I just, oh, I just feel like I can't contend. Oh, well, I do have this roommate who's rather good at the game. Um, um, excuse me, um, Niles. Niles, can you come over here? Um, if you could uh, give me a bit of assistance here, I'll kick you in some 10% of whatever I win. Uh, I, I've got this far, but I don't quite know what to do. Um, c- could you sit with me and uh, give me a bit of advice? Could be like that. And then Niles tells him to stop limping. And to bet size this way, and to check behind the flop when this comes, and pretty much Niles directs the whole thing. And then at the end he says, Niles, we've done it! We've done it! Uh, if I were a homosexual, I'd kiss you, but I'll just settle for telling you thank you very much, and I'm going to give you 10%, and we've done it. We've done it. I'm so tickled pink with my decision to have you sit next to me here. Oh, it's quite a relief. Quite a relief. We've uh, we've done it together. The power of cooperation. The good thing is they don't have cameras here, so they'll never know you helped me. Oh, bollocks, they suspended me and won't pay out. Oh, what do I do now? What do I do now? It could be something like that. But I have a hard time believing that Party Poker just took his money because he has a roommate. A lot of people who play on these sites have a roommate. I'm not saying most do, but this is not the first time someone's won a tournament who has a roommate. So if the roommate did not enter the tournament, which I believe, because I I think he would say otherwise, otherwise he would start to explain that. Like, if he wanted to hide the whole roommate thing, he would just say, I don't have a roommate. He just would leave that out. So the fact that he says he has a roommate, but the roommate didn't play, it's probably true. Probably true that his roommate's account didn't play, at least. So clearly, Party Poker does seem to be suspecting that somebody else used the account, and I have to imagine this by playstyle. Because he said he was in his living room playing on his de- his own Dell computer, which I believe. So they obviously couldn't tell that he was in a different location. He must have been at home. So since Party Poker can't spy on who's sitting in front of the, co- the computer, and since with his computer playing, the only way to tell it's somebody else is if there's somebody else physically on his computer or advising him what to do that very much deviates from his play style. And that's really what makes me think he's a recreational player that got some help. And he figures there's no way for anyone to know that because he was uh, doing this just with someone physically doing it or telling him on the phone or whatever it is. Or maybe someone operating the mouse, whatever it is, as long as it was from his own computer in his own home, 
he's thinking, how could anyone ever know this? It's not like there's a camera on him. So I think that's why he feels he can pull this off. One other clue here is where he says, I played better than I ever have and also had the luck I needed along the way. Well, all right, he played better than he ever have. That may be a clue because that may mean he was getting help. That may mean I'm normally not very good, but uh, I had someone helping me, so I played better than ever. That, that may be kind of his way to explain why he suddenly got better in this tournament. Just He was inspired and played well. Now, I will say you can get inspired and play well. I've had it happen to me where I'm running well, and then I start to kind of see things better, have more confidence, uh, have the balls to make certain moves I may not want to make otherwise, and then they work and I feel even better. And I'm not playing reckless, like I'm just kind of seeing better when to make the bluffs and when not to, and when to put the money in and when not to. You're just feeling good and feeling confident, but not overconfident. So like, yeah, you can play your best sometimes when you're running well. It can sometimes be a running well causes playing better. Just like running badly can cause playing worse in various ways. Running well can sometimes cause playing better. I've seen many times when I'm playing that when a fish is running well and winning a bunch of consecutive pots, that's when he's actually least likely to play a marginal hand. That's when his raises start to mean the most if he's won a few consecutive pots. That's when he's much more willing to fold the Jack-7 offsuit when you're raising from the button and he's in the small blind. Because they think, hey, I've just won a bunch of money. I don't want to give it back with Jack-7 offsuit, so I'll toss it. Where normally he'll, he'll take a call there and, and see what he flops. So, like, it could be that, but it also could be that he was playing better because someone was helping him. But Party Poker thinks for some reason that despite him being on the same computer and same IP, that it wasn't him. And I will say that there's only so much better you can start playing. So if you're playing like a fish and just lucking into doing well, and in the middle you just become a new guy and just start killing it, then, and making all the right moves like a pro would make, then you're having someone help you. And I, I've seen this before when there's been account switching or account sharing where someone just abruptly becomes better. <laughs> That's because there's someone on the account who isn't them. But I, I think the fact that he's disappeared is showing that uh, he's a little less encouraged by this than he hoped he'd be. I think he was hoping everyone would just jump on his side. Uh, for example... And this is, again, uh, after his last post, but not that long after his last post. This was on June 8th at 8.25 p.m. Pacific. Someone named uh, C said, One important detail that people seem to be missing is that he said his roommate is a poker player, not a poker pro. So rec-like play, his recreational player, uh, on the final table means nothing. My best guess is these two are rec players who shared an account for a while, and while it's possible that... Uh, the original poster, meaning David, was playing in the tournament. Play patterns were likely inconsistent with the earlier ones. Rec players, I know, do that all the time and don't even realize it can get them banned. I mean, that's possible, but I have to think it's more likely that one's a lot better than the other and that he got the friend who's better to take over or advise him. And I really get that for I was playing better than ever. That really where it makes me suspicious. Some people are focusing on 2 plus 2 on his talking about how he was playing roulette after there after that and won 16K pounds playing you know, that he put 2K on roulette and, and turned it into 18,000. 
there's something else that someone brought up on 2 plus 2, which is an interesting theory. Probably not it, but it's something to think about. So when an AKU win, the same day June 8th posted, from the phrase whacked 2K on roulette, which is kind of weird because usually whacked 2K would mean that you lost 2K. Instead, he put 2K on roulette and ran it up to 18K pounds, that is, which is more than dollars. Christopher Mitchell would be proud of this. But he says, from the phrase whacked 2K on roulette, I wouldn't be surprised if this is someone who may have self-excluded his account at some point and made a second account, probably thinking he would never get caught. Party also has two other skins, B-Win and Coral. Gambling operators check everything now. I know of people who've been banned from a site after a merger and their responsible gaming teams pulled their data to see a self-exclusion. I guess that's possible. I guess it's possible that the roommate is really just a second account for him that he made in his roommate's name after he had self-excluded. So I guess it's possible, but I, I still think it's more likely that he was a recreational player that had his better roommate help him out. Maybe his roommate came home in the middle of the tournament and he's like, oh, you, you must come over here and see how I'm doing. You must, you must look at this. And uh, maybe even his roommate was the one who volunteered to help. Maybe his roommate's watching him play and go, no, 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 no. You, you, you don't limp here. You don't, you don't limp under the gun with 9-7 with suited. Like you you got to fold that. Or if you must raise it, don't limp under the gun. Like and That's always how I've played. I'm, I'm doing quite well here. No, 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 no. You're not going to beat all these crushers here if you're going to do that. Like you gotta, let me show you here. Let me, let me help you out. Like it could have been like that. I'm just guessing at all this stuff. But I would be surprised if we had the facts here and still came to the conclusion that this guy was totally innocent and falsely accused. Now, you may wonder what happened to the 160K. He doesn't have it anymore. So what happened? And is it possible that this is all made up because this should be a troll? Well, no, because remember, Jamie Staples was mentioned here. Jamie Staples actually finished third. So Jamie Staples did confirm that he got the extra money to take him to second, that after the tournament, he got a notice that they disqualified the first place finisher and that he got extra money to basically make him the second place finisher and this person in second got the first place money. So definitely this happened because James Staples verified that he got the extra money. So the story's not made up. The winner of WBT 500 event number 24 on Party Poker was indeed disqualified. So I believe that this was him trying to get the community support. And maybe he thought that this wasn't going to run into as much scrutiny as it did. And I've seen this many times before. I talked about on this show that some idiot came on to 2 plus 2 to complain about Bovada and thought he was going to get all the support in the world. And this guy said that he got his account banned because he withdrew almost everything from his account. And then coincidentally, his girlfriend signed up new and got a deposit bonus and then was playing the same stakes he was before. <laughs> yeah, not suspicious at all, right? <laughs> and then when people said, hey, it looks pretty obvious that you switched accounts and played under your girlfriend's name so you could get this deposit bonus. And he's like, what, what, you think that girls can't play poker? What kind of sexist are you? What, just because it's a girl, you don't think she can play the limits I do? No, but it's obvious what you're doing. It's obvious what you were doing there. And you got caught and, you're, and you expected everyone to just stupidly go along with it and, and be outraged at Bovada for it. So there's a lot of people who come out there with complaints and then when the they start having trouble answering the tough questions, then they run off. And it kind of looks like what happened here. 
Because a lot of times they just think that everyone will be so outraged on their behalf that they'll shame the poker operator into doing what they want. And they don't realize that these people on 2 plus 2 are so familiar with the industry and with all these tricks people pull to multi-account and everything else that like they immediately start picking it apart and, and figure out what really happened. So, so many of these end up going in a way where they realize the person's not telling the full story and then they just run away. But really one of the most telling things is that he's gone. So either parties decided to work with him, which doesn't make much sense because they already awarded the extra money to Jamie Staples and this other person. Like they, they already awarded this 160K to others and they're not going to take it back from them. So either party's just going to have to eat it and give him the money back or they're pretty certain they did the right thing. And if they're certain they did the right thing, you would think that he would be pressing really hard, especially with Chicago Joey taking interest in the story. This is exactly what he wants, is Chicago Joey to do a, an expose on this and shame party for it. But it kind of seems like that this is more detailed than he hoped it would be. And now he's afraid this is going to hurt him rather than help him. So he's probably now just thinking, oh, bollocks, you know, this. I expected these people on 2 plus 2, I, I expected them to just get on the bus and say, all right, all right, um, Party Poker has stolen this poor man's money and uh, please refund it to him. But um, they're asking me the questions which I don't prefer to answer and I didn't expect that I'd be getting an inquisition like this. And uh, well, maybe the UK Gaming Commission, maybe they'll be a bit more thick about the matter and uh, they won't quite uh, ask these things that these nerds in 2 plus 2 want to know. So, you know, I'm just going to let it go with them. I'm just going to let the Gaming Commission handle it and um, hope that they are not... Um, Quite as diligent. Tally ho, pip pip, and let's get on with this um, bloody refund. My guess is that he never gets his money, and my guess is that he probably did break some rule. 775 Fraud 55, 775 372 8355 is the number. If you want to text me, that is the same number. 775 372 8355. We still have a lot of topics left tonight. I may have to take a second break eventually because I don't even have someone to talk with me here. Trader Ruski may come around soon enough, but I don't even have a co-host by my own choosing, actually. So let's move on here. I want to talk about, not for very long, we've covered this topic a lot recently, and it's probably been talked about more than it deserves, but the whole Sean Perry thing, I, I mentioned that he won a tournament last week and I mentioned how card player didn't cover what he was accused of. Remember Sean Perry was accused by Daniel Coleman, a very major poker pro that he scammed him for seven figures and he explained it all. He didn't just say he scammed me for seven figures, no details. He explained it all in very much detail and then handed the baton over to others in poker. Some of whom weren't even friends of his to say, yes, we analyzed it, and it really looks like Sean is guilty here. So this looked fairly credible. Now, Sean hasn't given his side of the story, and the evidence was only presented by Daniel, so there is some chance that there's some things we don't know and that Sean was actually innocent. But from what was presented by Daniel, it doesn't look very good for Sean, and Sean has not responded to this. But Sean has continued playing poker and seems to be doing pretty well at these tournaments. And while I did see one publication refer to Sean as a, quote, accused scammer, card player didn't touch it. And now Pocket Fives is not touching it 
So when Card Player did the write-up for Sean Perry's recent win, they didn't touch it. They talked about Sean Perry and uh, his recent history in poker and his win and the tournament itself. They did not even mention once this explosive accusation against him that was backed by various well-known poker pros that had analyzed the whole thing. So I would think that would be worth mentioning. They don't have to take position. They don't have to worry about getting sued. They could they could say that Daniel Coleman said on Twitter on this date that such and such happened and said that Perry did this to him and such and such other people came out to support it. And Perry has not commented on this. They can say that. That's not making any kind of statement about Perry or making any kind of assertion about him. That's saying that Coleman said this about him and that others were backing it up in poker. Because that's true. That's exactly what happened. They don't have to take a position, but they're choosing not to, which is weird. So first card player wouldn't take a position on it. And now we have uh, Pocket Fives doing the same thing on a podcast. And at first I thought that he had appeared on this podcast, but he didn't. This is a podcast from June 8th. This is hosted by Lance Bradley and Donnie Peters. Lance Bradley, formerly of Bluff, and Donnie Peters, uh, formerly of uh, Poker News. So these are veterans of poker media, and I'm very surprised that they didn't bring this up. If you're going to talk about Sean Perry, and here they're not just giving like tournament results. Here they're discussing him as a poker player and the way the community is reacting to him. So how, how can this be left out? I mean, it's one thing for a card player to leave it out of a tournament write-up. But for the Pocket Fives podcast to talk about him and his personality and the way the poker community is seeing him and his future in poker and not mention this is insane. So this is what they wrote on an all new episode of the Fives Poker podcast. Lance and Donnie return to bring you all the biggest news from around the world of poker. No, you're not. You're you're leaving a big part of the news out. The U.S. Poker Open 2021 has returned after a year away, and so far the healthy fields have reflected the appetite for high rollers to get playing in live events. This includes Sean Perry, the polarizing pro who seems determined to play the part of heel with brash claims at the table and a willingness to put himself out there. I'm going to play you a little piece of this here. Their podcast is 38 minutes, unlike mine, which is like 338 minutes or longer, probably longer tonight. Here's just a little snippet of them talking about him. Maybe they're not great on TV and they, they might lack some little uh, out there personality traits that the previous generation was uh, in large supply of. Like, honestly, if, if Sean was at your 1-3 table, you would despise the dude. But having I mean, him on sure a TV table, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and, and there are a lot of young players in this in this field. I mean, you joked about Steve Zolta being young, but there's a lot of guys that are like on the younger side, which I'm kind of surprised to see. Um, I guess like Brock Wilson is probably at the top of the list just with all of the success that he's been having recently. But do, I mean, do people know who Brock Wilson is compared to Sean Perry? Like I'm going to say no. I mean, it's just not that, not that Brock isn't probably awesome and, and a really good player and all that stuff, but his personality doesn't lend itself to getting out there in the spotlight like Sean does. I mean, Sean's talking about how fast he's driving cars. He's wearing crazy colored flowered shirts. Like he's about to hit the club right after he busts the tournament. Like he's gambling big, like all this sort of stuff. So like you, like you said, he's standing up in the middle of a tournament with probably the top 50 poker players in the world yelling about how like he's the best player in the room. Like it's the whole thing is just wild. Okay. Good points. You're right that he has a very obnoxious personality that he seems to be playing up for attention. 
and that this might be entertaining for the viewer in televised events, you might want to watch someone like that more than just watching a bunch of boring but good players playing their very best poker, but not saying that much and not really being that interesting. Okay. I mean, this is how Phil Helmuth somewhat got to be known, also because he was getting very good results, but also because of the whole poker brat thing he does, where he constantly whines and, and makes arrogant statements. So Sean Perry is kind of going along those lines, and they're saying that it's easy to dislike him if you're playing with the guy, but maybe it's interesting for the viewer, especially since this current crop of top players, they aren't that interesting to watch on TV or on streams. Okay, it's worth saying, it's worth discussing, but what about the big story about Sean Perry that Daniel Coleman, a high-stakes poker pro, is accusing him and Sam Soverell of teaming up to screw him out of seven figures, and then people like A.E. Jones are coming out and saying, yeah, I analyzed the data, and it looks like this 100% happened. Like, that, that just occurred on Twitter. Isn't that worth mentioning? How can you not mention this? If you're going to be discussing the merits of a Sean Perry in the high-stakes poker and tournament world, how can you not mention this being part of it? It's not just about him being a jerk at the table or being arrogant. I mean, this is, this is a big accusation against him. Yes, it only involves one person, Daniel Coleman, but it's a pretty damn big allegation. And, and what a lot of people may, might not understand is like when you get a Sean Perry at an event, at a table, on TV – not only does he grab the spotlight for himself and he's going to, if, if the WSOP main event, uh, if Sean Perry gets on a TV table, he's definitely doing everything he can to grab that spotlight, right? That's a big part of this. But when he grabs that spotlight, he allows it to also shine on the likes of the Brock Wilsons um, and, and guys like that, that maybe we haven't heard of, that maybe don't have the outlandish personalities, but that's when we get to hear their stories too. So there, there is some wind to it outside of just getting Sean. It's getting that spotlight drawn onto other players of that generation. So um, again, if he's at your one, three table and you're, you're okay, this isn't even true. If Sean Perry is acting outrageous at the table, all you're going to remember is Sean Perry. You're not going to remember other people at the table who are good, but quiet. Unless Sean like gets into some sort of argument with them, but you're not going to go, wow, I never noticed this other guy at the table until Sean was there with him. No, it's the opposite. You're more likely to notice the quieter guys at the table who just play well if there's no one distracting you. But if you're distracted to by this outlandish personality who's brash and arrogant and full of himself and doing everything he can to get attention, then you're not going to pay that much attention to the quiet guy who just plays well. So that's not even true. I, I just think, I think it's weird that they won't cover this. And I don't know if it's because of the fallout from Mike Postle suing people that poker media is now a little skittish about saying anything that someone is uh, accused of scamming or cheating. They're afraid they're going to get sued, that even if they know they can win, they don't want the hassle. Like, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's fallout from the Postle lawsuit that all these organizations now just don't want to touch when third parties say that somebody else is scamming or cheating. Because, look... Uh, I wasn't in Postle's game, and I got sued because I talked about it. So maybe they're looking at things like that, and they say, we don't want to be sued. We don't want Sean Perry suing us, so we're just not going to mention it. But I'm, I'm just mentioning what Daniel Coleman said, and I'm being fair. I'm saying I, from what P. 
people are saying and what respected poker pros have analyzed, it doesn't look good for him. But we haven't heard his side, and I'd love to hear his side. And maybe when we hear his side, we'll think differently. But he won't present it for whatever reason. I don't think he'll ever present it, is my guess. I also don't think that Daniel Coleman will ever do anything about it. <laughs> I think maybe Sean Perry is making the right play. <laughs> That's the funny thing. is I, I mentioned this last week. If Daniel Coleman's not going to pursue this other than bitching about it on Twitter and then dropping it, and then this could just be dropped and not talked about much again, then Sean Perry has done the absolute correct thing by not responding to it. And Daniel Coleman just kind of seems like the type who's just going to let it go. He even kind of indicated that in his conversation with Haralabob. I'm not going to let this affect me. You know, I'm just going to I'm still be a good, trusting person. You know, whatever. You want to do this to me, you can do it to me, but I'm still going to trust people. <laughs> it's not like he's saying, I'm going to go after Sean Perry. I'm going to make sure I'm going to follow him to the end of days to make sure he pays me back that million bucks. No, he seemed to be saying the opposite. So maybe Sean Perry's doing the smart thing here. Here's somebody who hopefully does the smart thing fairly often. Trader Risky, thank you for joining us. What's happening, Jeff? I'm happy to have a co-host. It's a very long show, a big agenda, and uh, my throat's starting to hurt. It's not good. So still have a lot of stuff to talk about. It seems like every time I get past the topic, I go, oh, crap, I still have like so much. It's like I'm not even making a dent when I get through a topic. Looking forward to listening to the first part. Yeah, and I, I look, I, I've been... Uh, watching this week just so many things happening and I go oh my god how can so much be happening in a week like really this really feels like three weeks worth of topics I feel like I haven't been on three weeks with all that I have to cover it's crazy well it's probably reflective of everything going on in the world you know as things get better everybody's you know doing doing a lot of stuff fast so yeah I think it's a combination of things I think you, you're partially right that it is people returning to playing poker and all that but it also just some random things happen that just happened to be this week, like the thing with Prahlad Friedman responding to Willie McFML. Like that didn't happen to be that didn't have to happen this week. It just happened to that's when the conversation broke out. So there's a lot of stuff that I took interest in that I wanted to talk about. And I, I guess I could have tabled some of this till next week, but watch like next week there's gonna be like nothing to talk about. I could see it. But all right, uh, I I want to talk about this whole thing with John Ram at the PGA tournament and the sports book thing. Have you heard about this? I have not, I have not, but I've been just heads down to work the last few weeks. Okay. So. Well, this was interesting. This had a little bit to do with COVID. In fact, a lot to do with COVID. But John Ram was at the PGA tournament, and what happened was that he ended up withdrawing in the middle of the tournament because of a positive COVID test. So at the end of the third round, he was at minus 18. He had just shot an 8 under par, so he was minus 18, 18 under par overall, and had a 6-shot lead at the end of the third round. The live odds on betting on him to win the whole tournament was minus 1,200 at bed MGM Sportsbooks. So very, very likely he was going to win overall because of that 6-stroke lead he had, and he was just shooting so well. But... He had to withdraw after that round because he tested positive for COVID. So sportsbooks wondered what to do about it. People had bet on him, and uh, it really sucked for them that the guy who was 
very, very likely to win, had to withdraw because of testing positive for COVID. It's not even like he just decided to quit playing. It's just he had to withdraw with the COVID thing. So the sports books were trying to figure out how to handle this because, of course, someone else ended up winning. So what they did was certain books decided to pay all of the bets as winners. So they, so like DraftKings put out, with John Rams' withdrawal from the Memorial Tournament, we will, paying out, we will be paying out all bets as winners. And then PointsBet, another book, said they're going to be paying out any bet that was made before the tournament began. I mean, not live bets, but uh, anything before the tournament began on John Ram as winners. And he, you could get, you got twelve to one on him if you bet right before the tournament started. William Hill said that all bets on Ram would be paid out as winners, and they put in the release. Mobile bettors will see the payout in accounts within forty-eight hours. Those wagering in person, cash tickets can start starting on Monday, June seventh, at a William Hill Sportsbook. FanDuel called it a bad beat payout and paid out all straight bets on Ram as winners in in, uh, 24 hours from when it completed. And they also paid out any other bets on him, like top continental European player bet, top 5, top 20, top 30, top 40, and a prop bet on whether Ram or Bryson DeChambeau would would finish better. BetMGM said they would pay out both bets before the tournament and live bets on Ram as winners, and also the top 5, 10, and 20 bets. However, Westgate, which is a very influential book in Vegas, said that they would not be paying out the Ram bets as winners. They said the house rules state that a ticket is in action once a golfer starts the round. Circa, which is a big book downtown in the new hotel there, They've decided also that Rom is a losing bet. Now, had Rom withdrawn before the tournament, then it would have been very clear that you just get your money back. It's a canceled bet. But they said that as soon as a golfer starts any round, that he's considered a player in the event. If he withdraws from the event and never plays, then you get your money back. But once he plays, once he makes even one stroke, that's it. it the, the action's on. So I can understand that position. Uh, Trader Ruski, what do you think is fair here? You think they should be paying out the Rombets as winners? But of course, they have to pay out the actual winners winners, so they ended up losing money on this, any book that pays as winners. But uh, would you think that they should pay these as winners or should – I'm not saying what's good customer service. I'm saying what's really fair. Is it fair to pay this as a loser or to not pay it? I mean, I would not have had a problem if they paid it as a loser, called it a no bet just because that happened. Um, I, you know, I think what they did is just like, I can't, I haven't heard so much about gambling on golf. It's like a great PR move. There'll probably be a lot of action reflecting. And that's what I think is the reason they did it is for PR. Let me just say one other thing. I'm sure they looked at it and, you know, I'm sure there were some like tons of action on this guy. Right. So it was probably kind of a less, not too painful thing to do, I'd imagine. But I just have no idea how much action's going on this thing. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, I know that some of these books didn't have that much action, but some of them probably had some. I, I'm not sure. 
And he uh, w- one option, as you said, that I'm not really seeing was done anywhere, was just canceling the bet. I'm not sure why that wasn't taken as a middle ground. I would be happy if this got no action. And in these NFL prop bets, for example, that I would make, sometimes someone would barely get in the game and then they'd get injured. And if you have the under there, you're thrilled because you get like an automatic win. As long as they played at all, then you win. And if you have an over, you get screwed there. But that doesn't mean it should be canceled. However, if I did have the over there and I thought I lost because the guy was in the game for 30 seconds and got hurt and they said, we're going to cancel this bet, I'd be thrilled. In fact, let's say it was a different situation. Let's say it was kind of more similar to this where I have an over on an NFL prop, like for rushing, and the guy is very likely to beat it because let's say he's uh, like one yard off of covering after the first quarter, and then the second quarter he gets hurt and he says, shit, for sure he would have rushed one yard by the end of the game. He only didn't because he got hurt. And I go, well, that sucks. I lose. And I hear they're canceling the bet. I'd be thrilled. I think that's like charity. They're giving it to me. So I don't know why there weren't more books just canceling it if they want to do something nice. But again, you said PR. I think that's the best explanation that it just sounds a lot better that they are paying it as a winner rather than canceling it, that everybody was pretty much counting their money after three rounds and that to actually get it as a winner when they thought they lost just makes people feel so good. However, there are some people who don't feel that this was a good thing. And I saw some editorials about this that people posted on Twitter that actually bring up uh, a good point. So Steve Ruddock, who used to post on Poker Fraud Alert as steve he hasn't posted in a long time. I don't think he's really a forum participant anymore, but he wrote an editorial on bettingusa.com and he wrote, the John Ram situation highlights how free money from sports books comes at a cost. And he said, John Ram was on his way to posting his sixth career PGA Tour win this past weekend. Ram held a six-stroke lead entering the final round of the Memorial Tournament, but was forced to withdraw after testing positive for COVID-19. Ram betters went from excitement to misery and back to excitement as most U.S. sports books decided to grade Ram bets as winners. Setting aside the should Rom have been permitted to play the final round debate, these decisions are becoming commonplace in legal U.S. sports betting market, and the implications go well beyond the usual sharp money versus recre- recreational better discourse that is taking place on sports betting Twitter. There is a responsible gaming component at play, and while I've seen several columns and Twitter takes discussing the responsible gaming aspects of the incident, I haven't seen anyone hit the nail on the head. This isn't about making recreational bettors happy or creating expectations that all bad beats will get refunded. The real problem this creates is at the margins. First, these instances aren't usually paid in site credit, or these, these instances are usually paid in site credit, not as a bona fide winning bet. I have no issue with the latter. To its credit, this is how at least one sportsbook paid round bettors, but the former is inviting a hornet's nest of problems. The reason being is it forces bettors to place more wagers, and with most of these bettors having round in the neighborhood of 10 to 1 odds, these subsequent bets are likely to be bigger or more numerous than what the customer typically places. So he's basically saying that now they're going to have a lot of money in their account that they can't withdraw until they cycle through, because this is uh, sportsbook credit, not uh, money they can immediately withdraw. So since they're getting 10 to 1 odds or better, 
that they're going to have a lot of this money. They have to bet. He says, for most people, that's not an issue. But for people in a stage of a gambling disorder or in the early stages of their betting life, it's the opposite of what they need. For example, imagine a first-time bettor deposits $50 into their sports betting account and places a handful of $10 wagers on various events at the odds around 100 to 1, including ROM. All these bets are likely to be losers on a typical weekend, and our new sports better will have a good think about betting in the future. One or two bets comes through on a blessed weekend, and the initial $50 deposit turns into 150 or 250 Our hero now has a choice to make. Cash out their initial 50 and bet with house money next week? Leave the entire balance in the account for future bets? Cash it out and consider yourself lucky? But what, when paid in site credit, our new sports better didn't win any money, and their ability to choose disappears. They've won the gift of having to place more bets whether they want to or not, with what they are likely to view as found money given the circumstances? Or what about the seasoned better that is growing disillusioned with sports betting and for whom the RAM withdrawal would have made the last been the last straw, the bad beat that caused them to quit betting? Maybe a legitimate RAM win would change their mind and they keep betting. Perhaps they will still stop anyway. Who knows? But by issuing site credit, the sportsbook takes the choice away. Second, grading losing bets as winning bets due to a force majeure changes the reward system of betting. That is a system that shouldn't be tampered with considering the addiction risks associated with gambling. It skews the customer's thinking of how often they will win money, possibly leading to increased betting activity, riskier betting behaviors, or both. This is particularly true with new bettors who have even more significant impact if the bets have long odds. Think of it this way. Ten, ple- ten people sit down to play a winner-take-all poker tournament for the first time. The one that wins is highly likely to want to play again, and it will take many subsequent losses before they are truly comprehending the variance at play. That's an issue, but it becomes a far more severe problem when site credit enters the picture. Imagine if the poker tournament also randomly paid another person as if they won, with the caveat that they would have to use that money to enter 10 more tournaments. This person is not given a choice, and it provides the house with 10 more opportunities to let the customer taste victory, which is a big reason people keep gambling. The, quote, lucky player isn't necessarily returning because they enjoyed the experience. They're returning because it's required to claim their prize. So that's Steve Ruddock's take. Some others posted takes on Twitter, as Steve mentioned, that it also creates a false expectation that gamblers will feel that every time an event happens that isn't really related to the sport, just kind of like a bad luck event that causes their bet to lose, that they're going to expect to be paid. And that this is going to get customers angry in the future when they don't, or that it might make people want to keep betting because they feel like they're protected from this, that they feel the only way they can lose is if the players don't perform rather than some kind of other event like uh, an early injury or illness that, that knocks them out of the game early. So Steve and others who are journalists in the industry aren't very happy with this. They feel that between the false expectations and the being paid in site credit, which I didn't even realize until I read Steve's article, that there's some responsible gaming issues at play. Now, thinking about the site credit thing, yeah, it could be a problem, and there's something Steve doesn't mention that I think is a bigger problem with site credit. If you know you have to cycle this through in order to withdraw it, and if you kind of see it as found money that you didn't expect to get, you may want to place bigger bets than usual and then become accustomed to betting that much. So I I don't know how many times they had to run it through. Probably once, but let's even say it's just once. So let's take his example, but make it even more. Let's just say someone put in $50 to bet all on ROM, and they figure, okay, you know, I can lose $50, whatever. And then 
they think they've won it at 12 to 1. Then they didn't win it. Then they find out that, yes, they do get it, but they only get $600 site credit they have to cycle through. Well, this might make this person want to put $600 on something that they just hope wins, maybe like a spread bet that they figure is about 50-50 to win or not. And if they win it, well, now they're going to have 1200 You may say, okay, that's great. And they can withdraw the whole thing. But hold on. If they have 1200 in there, are they going to be satisfied betting $50 per game? They may not be. They may think, well, screw that. That's going to barely make a dent in this whole thing. That's barely going to, I can go on a, I can win 10 in a row. I'll only get $500 more after that. That's kind of crappy when I've just made 1200 so fast. So yeah, I got to start betting more. I got to start betting minimum 300, 400 per game. And then they'll lose that pretty fast because almost all sports bettors lose in the long and medium run. And then they will redeposit and they go, you know, I, I don't want to go back to betting 50. I just bet three and 400 is exciting. I'll do that again. So I could, that's the biggest problem I see is that because it's paying at a higher rate, it's not paying even money, but they're going to be getting 10 to 12 times of what they bet back in credit that it could make them used to play, placing big bets feeling like they're really not risking anything. That's why they're willing to give it a shot because they're they're basically playing with found money that they can't cash out until they actually bet it. And they may not want to grind out 12 bets to get that done. And then they get used to betting that much and then they can really bring on gambling problems. That is the biggest problem in my opinion. Even And then the secondary problem, like the people on Twitter were saying, is that it could create a false expectation that all things like this will be covered and then when they're not, it pisses people off. And I, I've seen this before in many aspects of life where a generous act becomes something that's expected and then people get pissed off when it's taken away from them. It's kind of like sometimes uh, I've seen businesses that are trying to get people down there just repeatedly offering a coupon, a pretty good coupon, like $5 off 20, things like that. And, and people see the coupon and they go, wow, this is a good deal and they come. And then the business prints the same coupon again the next week and people come back. So they, they have these regular customers that keep coming in presenting the $5 off coupon for $20 worth of food and they've got a loyal customer. And then after six months of presenting this coupon every single week, it's gone. They stop presenting it. Customer comes in and says, hey, I can't find the coupon. Yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Well, the customer feels weird. They're like, well, wait a minute. I, did, I got to spend $20 for this food now? I was getting 15 before? Like, that's just like a... It's like a 33% increase in price. You know, screw that. I'm not coming back here. So sometimes you can screw yourself by presenting something generous to the customer because they start to expect it. Even if they may have become a customer otherwise had you not offered it or had you offered it as once. So yes, this is being only offered once, but it, it, it may be establishing a pattern that people are going to get irritated with. They say, well, why, why in that case did you guys cover it? In this case, you don't rather than just saying, hey, this just is part of gambling. And had you bet on Rom's competitors, you would have gotten lucky and won. So you just happen to get screwed by it this time. Maybe next time it's going to benefit you. That's all part of gambling. It's a random element of gambling. People can understand that. In fact, people can even say to themselves, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, maybe next time I will have the guy that's saved. Or it can, it can give you hope if one guy is way ahead and you go, hey, remember that Ram guy who was totally going to win and then he got COVID? 
Like, hey, we're still alive here. We have the guy in second. He's way behind, but maybe he has a chance in case the first guy doesn't complete for whatever reason. So people will have more hope in sweating their bets. Like, it's not necessarily a bad thing that, that these things happen every so often for for the sports betting industry. And as, as Steve wrote, that people start to get used to things in sports betting that things can happen beyond their control, which just are so irritating they don't want to deal with it anymore can actually push away problem gamblers. If the problem gambler feels that they just have to start picking better, if they just have to adjust their strategy a bit, and then maybe they can be they can be a winning sports better. They just think a bit differently about it next time, that they can win. Then they might keep plugging away at betting on sports. But if they start to feel like there's a lot of aspects out of their control, they may say, you know what, this this is frustrating. I'll never be able to beat this because stuff like this happens. So, F it. So I, I understand these points. So, with that said, Trader Risky, now how do you feel about them paying the bet? You still think it was uh, a good thing overall, or you think this is something that uh, could be bad for the industry? I, I mean, as far as it being bad, I don't I thought the argument was crazy when you first started reading the article. But I, you know, but I, they thought they made some good points. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know how we can hurt that much. I mean, as far as like giving credit and having it run through, I think that's kind of bullshit. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think they should if they if they don't want to go as far as giving it in full money, people can cash out. I think just cancel the bet then. I think that's the best way to do it. Is just say we're canceling it, and this is this ended for a reason that we weren't expecting it would end. So we're just going to be nice, and uh, even though it should be a loser, we're going to cancel it so nobody loses. And I think everyone would have been happy with that. Totally. I I think that would have been the best solution if they are going to throw a bone to the sports betters. I do agree that there's some issues with this, especially because of creating the expectation and the thing with the, the credit that could possibly cause some responsible gambling issues. And, and I'll say this, a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to win in sports. The The house juice just really gets you. Bet after bet after bet has house juice to it. And then there's the additional component to how people tend to bet on the wrong side because sometimes what looks like the obvious bet is actually kind of a trap. And sometimes they'll set lines that look good to the public, but in reality, you should be going the other way. So a lot of the public has a very hard time with that. A lot of the public likes to bet on the favorites, the, you know, the good teams, the obvious winners, and then they go, how did I lose this? So I'm not saying it's always right to back the underdog, but if you are always betting favorites, you're not going to be a winning sports better. I mean, almost all sports bettors lose over time. Not even that much time. Now, if you want to do it anyway, just for fun, that's okay. But just know when you're betting on sports that it's very hard to beat long-term. And you have to know that before you do it. You have to know that people doing this are going to be losing money. And the question is, are they losing money they can afford? Or are they losing something that's reasonable that the entertainment they're getting out of it is worth it to them? And there's, there's some in both areas there. There's some people who bet responsibly on sports and they'll bet enough to where it means something to them, but if they lose, it's not going to be devastating and they they just want something on the game to en- enjoy it more but it's not going to matter in their life that much. 
but then there's others who really get it out of control. And uh, I, I know someone like this. Well, I know several someone's like this, but there's one, someone I'm thinking of in particular who one downside to when I talk to this person is that they all they want to do is talk to me about sports betting and then they want to ask me to put action on games for them. And like, it's just like, I, that's not really why I want to talk to them is, is to uh, involve myself in their sports betting habit. And this is a person who has harmed themselves in their, their personal life with all the sports betting. It's no one anyone here knows. So don't, don't try to guess who it is. It's someone you don't know. But it, it's someone I got to know in Vegas who's not part of these forums. And, uh, you know, I, I like the guy. Very nice guy. He just has, has a bit of a sports betting problem. He admits it, too. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, like, I'm about to text him. and go, oh, I wonder how he's doing. I go, oh, I'm afraid he's going to, like, just go off about the sports betting and, and want me to place bets for him. And I go, you know what? I'm not, I, I don't want to message him. Like, it kind of drives me away from messaging this person. So there are some people with real big sports betting problems. There's, there's people in poker who've lost their role betting on sports. It can be a problem if you aren't sure. If you don't know why you have an edge in sports, you don't have an edge in sports. That's the simplest way I can put it. When I say if you don't know why you have an edge, I mean specifically what you are doing to give yourself an edge over other sports bettors compared to the average sports better. If your answer is, well, I just know a lot about such and such sport, that no, that's not going to win it for you. It's not going to win it for you, I promise. Even if you're like a great fantasy sports player, you could be a great NFL player, uh, fantasy player, a great fantasy baseball player. That does not mean it's going to translate to sports betting. There's some association, but that doesn't always translate. So you have to know in the context of whatever you're betting, why you are a positive expectation sports better. If you do not know that, if you can't clearly state why, then you're not one. Now, there's some people who think they are and really aren't. There's some who could recite something to you that would sound very good, but then in reality it just isn't working or used to work and doesn't work anymore. But at least those people have some kind of reasonable method to where they have thought about it and have thought about what sets them apart from others. But most people just fire. Most people just think, hey, I know about sports. Or I have a feeling about this or that, and they just fire. And you can do that, but you're just not going to be a winning player if you do that. All right, moving on here. We have an update on Dennis Bleeden, the embezzler. This is someone who won a WBT event at Commerce. And unfortunately, he was embezzling money in order to fund his gambling. A lot of it, too. And he was arrested for it. So Dennis Bleeden, who won the 2018... LA Poker Classic, which is a WBT event for a cool million bucks, was sentenced to 6.5 years in federal prison after he was uh, convicted of uh, embezzling millions of dollars. I heard it was $22 million. He uh, did this from Style Hall Inc., which is... Apparently a digital company. I hadn't heard of them. It sounds like like a trucking company, Style Hall. But Style Hall is actually a digital company. And he pled guilty to wire fraud and aggravated identity theft for embezzling $2.7 million 
from 2015 to 2019, and that he did so by wiring company money to his personal bank account, which he then used to gamble and buy cryptocurrency. He laid out his side of the story in a 15-page letter to the judge, uh, Andre Birat Jr. of the Central District Court of California. He said that he was very addicted to gambling and that he wanted to become a known poker pro and he wanted other poker players to respect him. He felt that he earned that respect after he won the LA Poker Classic. He, his letter was handwritten and it's kind of hard to read. I'm looking at some of it here. Uh, I'm trying to decipher the handwriting. Your Honor, I am submitting this letter with the intention of giving you something on who I was, who I am, and who I'm capable of being. I also want to, the best of my ability, explain what led to the events, the crime I am being prosecuted for. It is not a full explanation, as I am still learning about myself daily, but it is when I have spent the past 18-plus months uh, something with my rabbi, my counselor, my therapist, my, I'm not sure the next word is, and others in my something community that I have the strongest respect for. I first would like to give you a history of my upbringing and how it uh, molded gambling as a central component to my everyday life. I started gambling at an incredibly young age, perhaps even younger than I can remember. At the age of three, my father taught me how to count using the game of blackjack, and my brother and I would spin the divide, the dreidel for chocolate to gold coins. Come on. Should we play the dreidel game at Hanukkah that counts as gambling? I wouldn't go that far. In middle school, I recall playing Pogs and something else at recess where the winner would be co- uh, the winner would collect the Pogs or playing cards from the loser. At the time, I was not even sure I was aware I was gambling, but the competitive nature of winning in order to receive something or losing and having to get, give something was instilled inside of me. So the, anyway, he, he writes about this whole thing basically... Uh, saying that he just got caught up in the whole thing and then embezzled to uh, keep it all going. The first sign that I showed for problem gambling was when I was involved, when I was introduced to online poker. It was around the age of 17 and he needed credit cards to deposit. I, without permission, took my parents' cards and deposited money. I initially lost, then did it again. It it created a lot of animosity with my parents, and they canceled the cards and hid the new ones, so I had to find other ways. I found prepaid debit cards, and I don't see the rest of that. Uh, Anyway, at the end of the whole letter here, which, again, is 15 pages, I'm aware that you did not know the person I was then and do not know the person I am today, but are judging me based on the crimes I committed. I am hopeful this letter was able to give you the background on all three of these things. I am a work in progress, and that's how I'll always be for the rest of my life. Thank you for your time, Dennis Billiton. So, um, he was in high school when the poker boom occurred in the early 2000s. He said, I was obsessed with idolizing these individuals and declaring I would one day be like them. He said that uh, it was in college that things started to get out of hand. He started using amphetamines and became dependent. And he got a degree in accounting and finance from Ohio State. He relocated to Los Angeles in September 2013, got the job with Style Hall, only made 65000 a year. He said, I was spending most of my paychecks gambling, 
plus taking out high-interest payday loans. Those loans ended up totaling around 50000 but I knew I could not ask my parents for help again. And a friend at Style Hall was apparently helping him out, but he continued to gamble recklessly. That He made a large amount of money in cryptocurrency and then entered the high-stakes poker community. So I guess he actually did make good money at one point from crypto. And then he said, I joined multiple online groups with some of the best players in the game, and for the best, first time in my life, I felt I was on the way to fulfilling a childhood dream. My desire to belong with these guys would inevitably be one of my biggest vices, as I would go to any end to continue to climb and show them I belong. To me then, appearing to be successful and elite was more meaningful than being either. And then, apparently he claims that he started embezzling when cryptocurrency had one of its crashes. And he said, uh, being so deep in debt with no way to pay, I just felt I needed a larger bankroll to make everything right. My plan was to take some money, gamble, pay off my loans, and then put back the original amounts I took from Style Hall without ever being detected. The amounts I stole increased exponentially, and the speed at which I stole increased. By the end of 2017, he had stolen $2.2 million, And then a few months later, he had that uh, million-dollar win. He said... This, looking back, had a huge impact on me mentally, and there's no doubt an accelerant in my gambling. I was now outwardly vi- validated within the poker community and for my peers for being a professional gambler, so I did everything I could to keep that reputation alive. My desire to belong was so strong and misguided that I believed playing in the largest possible buy-in games would make me more accepted. I was being invited to new private games where millions of dollars were on the table at a time, and my bet sizing for online gambling increased to at least hundreds of thousands. I think he didn't realize why he was being invited, by the way. <laughs> It wasn't because they were accepting him. They were accepting his money. (laughs) I mean, I I believe some of this explanation. I think he stole because he had a gambling problem and he just decided that uh, he's going to do this to keep it going. I'm not excusing it, though. I mean, stealing is stealing. And apparently he kept gambling after being caught and confessing to his crime. He was still... Uh, gambling and and, uh, claimed he owed a loan shark 800k and uh, he was arrested in his hotel room when he actually went to go play the World Series of Poker in 2019, the last live World Series of Poker they had the the FBI actually came and arrested him in his hotel room at the World Series, I don't know if it was at the Rio but that's when they got him Wow, I I I can't believe they didn't like wait till he was sitting down at the table. <laughs> that would Has have been there funny. been anything like that? I don't recall anything. Um, you mean people getting arrested at the table? Right, where they basically are in the middle of a hand, and then all of a sudden well, they the, get pulled up. There I was just, one. In all my years, I don't think I've ever seen that. There was one, but it didn't get much publicity. I don't know why it didn't, but one of the cases where someone killed their parents for an inheritance to play poker with, one of them got a lot of attention. This Ernie Shearer. But there was a second one. I don't even know the guy's name. An Asian guy at Commerce who played 200, 400 limit. I'm sure it's someone I played with before. When they said his name, I didn't recognize it, but I don't know everybody's name there. But anyway, they the, the police showed up while he was in the 200, 400 at Commerce, the 200, 400, 400 limit hold him, and arrested him for killing his parents. Like right at the table. They just pulled him off the table. Oh, the, that, that's right. Wasn't there a uh, 60 minute or not a 60 minute? No, that was the other guy. Hours or something that, was, that, was, that was Ernie Shearer. He was not arrested at the table. He was arrested. Oh, right. He was the guy that drove to the Bay Area or something and killed his parents. Yes, or, yes. Or and, drove and, to Vegas. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't even know what happened to the Asian guy. I don't know if he got convicted or what happened to him. Like that, For some reason, that wasn't a big story, but the Ernie Shearer one was. Now, the Ernie Shearer one had the interesting twist that they solved the case because he was 
dumb enough to stop at a state line Nike store and purchase some of the stuff uh, that he committed the crime with, and they figured it out, and uh, then that was his undoing. But uh, I don't know. But that Asian guy, he was arrested at Commerce in the 200-400 games. They actually came and arrested him there. So that's, that's the only one I know of where someone was actually like pulled off the table for a previous crime they committed. Uh, now, Dennis Bleeden is not an old guy, as you would guess, him uh, being in high school during the poker boom. He is only uh, either 31 or 32. And he went to his first Gamblers Anonymous meeting at the end of September uh, 2019. He was already in uh, jail by this point. And then I, I guess he's Jewish because he got involved with uh, a Jewish group that um, I, I guess he got bailed out. I'm surprised they granted him bail for this amount of money that he embezzled. But he got bailed out. He got treatment with uh, Bet Teshuva in Las Ve- in not Las Vegas in Los Angeles, and he actually moved in as a resident in January 2020. And he said, uh, "I'm so remorseful." And I'm not the same man as I write this today. I'm fully aware that some of the decisions I made are unforgivable. I take full responsibility for the crimes I committed. I absolutely do not blame or try to excuse my actions on my addiction or believe my addiction alone warrants a downward departure in my sentencing. I'm in full acceptance of whatever prison sentence I'm given, and I vow to make the best of my time inside. I mean, that's the correct thing to write there if, if you actually want to get a lower sentence. So instead of posturing that you deserve a lesser sentence because you're the victim of a gambling addiction, you say, yeah, I was addicted and that's what made me do it, but if you want to sentence me a lot for it, I understand. Because that really makes it look like that you are taking responsibility and that you're not even expecting them to forgive you at all for this, and that actually makes you more of a sympathetic character. Now, there were some people that sent letters to the judge that were supportive of him. The people who worked at the facility, this Bet Teshuva, sent uh, supportive letters that he had completed the program and that he was uh, making progress. And uh, they said that he meets with a weekly addiction counselor, a spiritual counselor, and a therapist, and a case manager, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Janet Markowitz, the senior alternative sentencing associate there, said, I will add Mr. Bleeden is not the same man who entered our program over one year ago. And the rabbi there, uh, Michael Akiba, said that uh, he's the spiritual counsel of Bleeden and also sent a sentencing letter of support. Today, Mr. Bleeden is able to honestly admit that the person I first met at Beit Teshuva was not much different than the man who'd been gambling and in jail prior to the beginning of process of recovery. Today, he can state that he was selfish, arrogant, egotistical, and manipulative. He admits that it was not just about gambling, it was about much more. It was a life problem, and I wasn't conscious of any of this. Mr. Bleeden has begun this work and realizes that today his recovery is a lifelong process and that he harmed many people along the way. He states to me that he's in acceptance of whatever the court would decide. Uh, he was ordered to pay... Uh, $22 million in restitution. So even though he only confessed to a crime of embezzling $2.2 million only, but I mean, compared to what he embezzled, yes, but he's actually going to owe Style Hall $22.669 million. Good luck in ever having that lifetime. <laughs> There's not many people who could pay restitution of $22.699 million in their lifetime. I mean, who, who would even earn that much money in their life, except for a small percentage of people. 
So I, I don't think that he's going to be able to pay that. I wonder what they're going to make him pay, like at what rate he's going to have to pay. I also wonder who would hire him to be an accountant after this. Like, would you, would you want to hire him? I, I don't care what program he's gone through. Like, would you, would you ever hire him as an accountant? I guess maybe you can find some no. sympathetic person, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I have to imagine that he, at the moment, feels remorseful. I think these are probably sincere statements he's making, that he realized he screwed up. He realized he let it get out of hand. He realized that he wanted the credit from the poker community of being a great player and that he was getting a lot of excitement out of that and excitement becoming one of them and being invited to their games and that that motivated him a lot. And looking back on it, he probably says, yeah, I I screwed up big time. I wonder if I've played with him before. I, I see pictures of him at the World Series of Poker. I wonder if I've played with him. I know I probably haven't played with him in cash, but I guess I could have played with him in cash, too. I don't know if he played Limit Hold'em, but I wonder if I played with him at the World Series of Poker. There's no way he played Limit Hold'em, trust. I mean, if he was in the poker boom in high school, I can't imagine. Not too many of them fell into Limit Hold'em, I think. Yeah, uh, he cashed in three events, and uh, none of these are ones I cashed in. He cashed in the 2016 Colossus, which I believe was not the first year of the Colossus. No, it wasn't. It was the second year. So yeah, I, I cashed in the first year of the Colossus. But the, or no, actually I didn't. I never cashed in the Colossus. Never mind. Um, the 5K No Limit in 2017, at this point he was already uh, embezzling. <laughs> Hence the buy-in going way up from the $565 Colossus. And then the 1500 uh, No Limit Holden Bounty in 2019. I, I did actually cash in that, but not, not in 2019. So... We were never an event where we cashed at the same time, and those were his only three caches in the World Series. So I probably didn't play with him, though I guess it's possible he could have played with me in an event that uh, he didn't cash, and I was at his table, where either neither of us cashed or I cashed and he didn't. But he, he just wouldn't have been memorable otherwise. Like, he's just some dude who's around 30 years old. Like, I don't think I would have remembered him, just some normal white dude. Like if, if he was a hot chick or something, I'd remember him. Or if he had some uh, unusual look, I might remember him. But not just some 30-year-old white dude. Like, there's tons of them. I don't know. But I don't think the six and a half years is enough, given the amount that he embezzled. That's a staggering amount of money, $22 million. So if you embezzle $22 million, you've caused such harm that I think you should get more time in prison, even if you kind of let a gambling addiction take hold of you and you did a lot of stupid things. You still caused $22 million of damage. I mean, I have to imagine the style hall is going to really struggle now with $22 million gone that they were supposed to have. Like, there's really a lot of damage from this. I mean, nobody physically got hurt, but there was a lot of damage from this. So as far as sentencing for this type of crime, because of the magnitude of the money stolen, I would think he, the 10 years at least he should get for this, maybe more. I mean, this is just a massive financial crime. And you don't, even if you have a sympathetic reason, which is only a semi-sympathetic reason, it's not like he stole this because his grandmother needed cancer treatments. This was to, this was to feed a gambling addiction. So while you can understand how this can happen to somebody you also have to say they, they have to know that 
stealing from others to fund a gambling addiction is wrong. It's very clear he knew that and chose to do it anyway. And as far as these treatment things, I, I don't think that should really affect sentencing. I think the person taking responsibility for what they did can affect sentencing, where if you believe they're being sincere that they know they did wrong, you can give them some sympathy and knock some years off, but there's only so much you can forgive here. And I don't think this should get something like a life sentence because he didn't actually harm anyone physically and there was only one company that was a victim, though employees of the company may have to be laid off or whatever, so more than just one person probably victimized here, but it it wasn't like a uh, Bernie Madoff who also did this on a larger scale. But still, when it's $22 million to only get six and a half years in prison, I mean, that's not a piece of cake, six and a half years, but I would think given the amount, I would think that he should get more than that. That's just not enough of a sentence, in my opinion, for that kind of theft. And if I if I own that company, the guy who stole twenty two million only got six and a half years. The problem with six and a half years is you you can basically get out and and, and be mostly the same person, at least as far as the way you look in the stage of your life. So you you you've lost some of your life, but you you really can return to life. And aside from having to deal with the consequences of your reputation, uh, it's not like he's going to get like oh man I. I, I lost all my youth in prison because I did this. I mean, yeah, I, I got out of prison al- alive, but uh, boy, it sucks. I, I, I came in a young man. I'm getting out a middle-aged man or an old man. Like, he's going in at like 32. He's going to get out at like 38 or 39. So yeah, like, he's basically coming out in the same stage of his life, which kind of sucks. He's got to spend six and a half years there for him, but it, it's not a crippling amount of years where he just really looks back and says, wow, I lost a lot of my life to this. So h- how do you feel about the six and a half year sentence? Hey, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know. First, I mean, I'd like to know what he could possibly get out at. Because if he can get out in like half the time, then I definitely think it's bullshit. But if he, if he serves the whole six and a half years, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's about right. I mean, would you pay 22 million to get, I mean, would you take 22 million to give up six and a half years of your life? Um, right. Yeah. Well, that, that's if somebody gave that. That's a good question. If you would you spend six and a half years of your life in prison, I I wouldn't because it it's still enough of my life and being in prison so unpleasant that uh, I still wouldn't take it for that. But there are a lot of people who would. A lot of people would gladly do six and a half in prison to get twenty two million. Uh, but but he's not, he didn't get twenty two million. He he chunked it off. It looks like he probably has very little, and whatever he has is going to be gone. He's got to give back to Style Hall. But still. Style how lost twenty two million. That's the problem. They, they, this is twenty two million. They're not going to get back, and this really affects them. Now, on the plus side for him, is this is someone unlikely to reoffend in this way. I'm not saying he's going to live a crime free life and that he won't pull some kind of financial crime or fraud again. But I I don't think he's going to steal twenty two million or even have the opportunity to again. And it is possible that he learned from this. It is possible that he will not gamble again. And this, if if you want to look at someone who is who has a chance to get out and be a different person, I will agree that he has a lot more of a chance of this than many other crim- criminals who pretty much their whole life they've been committing violent crime after violent crime, and you know it's just a matter of time until they do it again. So this was a one-time thing he did over a period of time. 
and he didn't have a criminal history prior to this. So you could say, well, okay, this was a kind of long-term crime and it resulted in a lot of money stolen, but there's a okay chance that'll come out and not commit crimes anymore and just kind of return back to normal. But, and also he may not have the opportunity. It's not like he was robbing banks, you know, like he may not be put in a position he can never do this again. But still, he caused the damage. So I, I just, I've always been a believer that if, if someone causes a lot of damage in some ways, it, at some point you got to say, there's only so much we can do as far as extenuating circumstances or motive for it or them realizing their mistake and reforming. They've still caused enough damage. They've got to get a stiff sentence. I, I'm, I'm just a believer in that, both with financial crimes and with violent crimes. And I think this one was a little bit too light. That's my opinion on this one. How how long was it, Jeff, over the period they stole the money? It looked like a few years. Uh, it He ended up pleading guilty, as I said, to this uh, $2.7 million theft between uh, 2015 and 2019. So I guess... I, I, I'm a little confused because he played he pled guilty for only embezzling 2.7 million, but he really embezzled 22 million. But I, I would think that that 22 million all came during those four years. Just maybe the technically the guilty plea was only for 10 percent of that or so, which is kind of weird. But maybe that's what happened. The prosecutors actually asked for eight and a half years, plus three years of supervised release, and. He didn't get as much time, obviously, but uh, they didn't even want 10 years. They were looking for eight and a half years. It is possible that he was somewhat of a sympathetic character, not having a criminal history and entering these treatment programs and completing the treatment program and taking full responsibility, even saying, sentence to me, whatever you feel is fair. I'm not saying it's an excuse. So he did all the right things here to minimize the sentence, and it looks like it worked. Like, I think Afterwards, he handled this as well as he could for his own lighter sentencing. I don't know how much him entering these programs was for the purpose of a, getting a lighter sentence and how much of it was a legitimate desire to want to become a better person. I know if I was accused of this and had done it and knew that they had me, that what I would do would be something like this, where I would do I would ask my lawyers like you know, what what are the things I can do to look favorable to the court given everything and I would do it so I have to imagine he got that type of advice and I didn't know till now that he actually got arrested when he was there at the World Series of Poker that's that's kind of interesting that again I don't think he was taken from the table but he was at the hotel wherever he was maybe even the Rio and the FBI came and got him like you get a uh, knock on your door, housekeeping, you open the door, the FBI is there. It's like, shit, that's unfortunate. Could you imagine, Drop, you do your whole morning routine, you're getting ready to walk down, and then it's like, click, click. Yeah. You're getting cuffed. Yeah, I, I hope I run well at this 1500 event yet. Oh, shit, it's the FBI. Didn't expect that. Bad, bad beat. Well, I guess I won't be winning this one. I guess my, my dinner break is uh, going to be pretty long. Imagine all the corny headline references if, if the news did get out. You know, Poker player gets bad beat, not at the table. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the update on Dennis Bleeden. And 
I wonder if we'll ever see him in poker again or if he's going to just stay away from gambling. If he's smart, he'll stay away from gambling. I will say that uh, one interesting element to this is that he really seemed to have the desire to impress other poker players and be accepted in the community. I think that's a lot more common than people think, that just being part of the whole thing, being considered uh, a winner and a top player and uh, having titles that, that really gets into some people's heads and they really, really want it. And some people care a lot about it. Some don't care at all. Some care a little, but it's interesting how some people can get caught up in this and it becomes very important the way the poker community judges them. And there's probably more people like this than you think. Just most of them aren't committing crimes for that reason. But even with scammers who scam to stay in action, I'm not talking about the sociopathic scammers who do it for the enjoyment of it, but like the ones that would rather not scam but kind of feel they have to to stay in action. Those guys, I wonder how many of them are doing it more just to stay in the community rather than the desire to uh, make money if it really is more of just I want to be accepted in poker that's an interesting aspect I actually believe that part of it and I've known people not scammers but people that I've seen that really have wanted that sort of recognition I never have been one of them I never have wanted acceptance by the community or by certain people or have people view me in that way and it feels good when when someone does view me in that way but that's not why I play I I really play for both money and my own satisfaction when I do well and also for the challenge of the whole thing but not uh, not to get accolades from others or to be accepted within a community and that's why I've always taken it upon myself to be someone who comments on what I really feel rather than commenting on what's going to make others happy or what will make me more popular. Moving on here, another rumor about the Virgin Hotel Las Vegas, this one coming courtesy of Vital Vegas, who sometimes is right, sometimes is wrong, and even they admit that this is a rumor and not something that they believe is fact, but they have heard it and they think it's possible. But Virgin Hotel Las Vegas has had some problems. Their opening has not gone smoothly. They are the former Hard Rock, and people are not enjoying it there for the most part. They're doing everything wrong. This is the hotel that is the renovated Hard Rock It's not on the Strip, and the casino is considered a Mohegan Sun Indian casino, and Virgin is the hotel. And this is already a terrible model, because that means whenever you get comps, that Mohegan Sun is actually paying Virgin for your comp. And this makes Mohegan Sun paranoid that you're going to be using them for comps and not play, and they're going to have to pay hard money to a separate company for your comp room and for any comp food or anything else they give you. So then they have this policy that they can retract your comps if you don't play enough, which really, if you think about the whole situation, adds up to a comp not really being a comp 
Because if you come in on a comp and you have to play to earn the comp you were already given, then you're actually coming in on no comp that you have to earn. You have to earn comps going forward. Any comp you've already earned is not really a comp because they can take it from you if you don't continue to play. So it really means any comp you have is not really a comp. And that's pretty insane. Like, it's one thing to say, come in, you'll have to pay for your room unless you earn it through your play. But not, here's a comp for a free room. Oh, you didn't play enough. Or actually, yeah, you have to pay now. So that's a really bad look. And it's, it's happening exactly because they're two separate companies. And also because Mohegan Sun is just kind of used to this type of behavior because they're an Indian casino and this is the way Indian casinos operate. They're, they're very short-sighted. But this doesn't fly in Vegas. They also were known to be hostile towards these local vloggers who were coming over and wanted to do features on them. And for whatever reason, they're being hostile, saying you can't record here and being very difficult with them and throwing them out. And so then, of course, the vloggers come back out and, and bash them. They're basically doing everything wrong. And the big problem is this is not Resorts World who figures, hey, we're really big. We're really luxurious. We're a huge deal. People are going to come here anyway, so if we have bad customer service, screw it. I'm not saying that's their attitude. They haven't even opened yet. But I'm saying if they had that attitude, there would still be a reason to go to Resorts World. But when you're a property that doesn't offer anything, when there's no reason to come there in the first place, like like why would you go to Virgin Hotels Las Vegas or the Mohegan Sun? Why? Is there anything interesting to see there? No. What used to be interesting is now gone like the guitars and the clothing of the rock stars. That's not there anymore. That was when it was the hard rock. So now what's there? Answer, nothing. It's just a casino and hotel. Is it on the strip? No. Is it really nice? No. Is the area good? No. Is the casino unique or really good? No. Are the restaurants there renowned? No. So why is anyone coming there? Like, What do they have to offer? They really have nothing to offer and yet the customer service sucks and they're hostile towards everyone. So they have hostile policies and they're arrogant and they are unfriendly to these vloggers. Like They're really doing everything wrong. They really are violating the when you're number two, you try harder theory of business with handling the competition. If you're the best, if you're known to be the best, then you can afford to be kind of arrogant and customer hostile. I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but I'm saying if you are, you can survive because your product or service is so good. Think of the soup Nazi on Seinfeld is a very good example. His soup was so good that they tolerated all his ridiculous rules and his abuse. I know that's fictitious, but I've seen things like this in real life where people tolerate bad treatment by a business because otherwise it's so good and everyone loves it. And that's just what you have to do if you want to go there. So if you're one of the best and people want to go to you anyway, then you can afford to lose the few people that are not going to want to continue because you don't treat them well. But if you don't have a lot to offer, then you have to do something to make people want to come. And if then you aren't treating them well, then you're invalidating their comps and getting the reputation for doing so. If then you're kicking out the vloggers and they're bashing you, and if, in general, you're seen as customer hostile, no one's going to want to come there. And I've said that on previous shows. I'm saying this again. So I don't know if they're really trying to sell or looking for buyers before they're even getting going. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's true. 
because it's possible that they're realizing that this just isn't working out, that people aren't coming. I've seen a lot of things posted all over social media, pictures of them being uh, very empty or, hey, it's a Friday night. Look how empty the Mohegan Sun at the Virgin is. Like I've seen – and I don't know if these people are really posting honest pictures. Maybe they're taking the pictures at 4 a.m. on Wednesday and claiming it's Friday night. I don't know. I don't know these people. So I, I don't know for sure that's what's happening, but I've seen a number of posts on Twitter indicating that it's a ghost town over there when Vegas is otherwise booming. So if this is the case – Maybe they see the writing on the wall and they're like, you know what, let's wash our hand to this. This is not what we expected. We don't even want to try to turn this around. We're so far gone from being able to make this work. F it. We're just let, – let, let's just get rid of the whole thing and let someone else take on this headache. Like they may be already in that mode. They may feel like a few tweaks aren't going to do it. And the funny thing is I think a few tweaks actually would do it. And I just don't know if they could bring themselves to do it or if they feel it's feasible because of the weird split – ownership with the casino and the hotel. But what could really fix this is just a complete makeover as far as the way they treat customers. So here's some things they could do to turn it around. Lower prices to stay there to where it's a great value. Don't try to squeeze every penny, but lower prices to where it's known as a good value place. Uh, Coach all the employees to be very nice and friendly and accommodating and giving the customer the benefit of the doubt. Stop invalidating comps. If someone screws you with a comp, do what all the other casinos do and just eat it and do not invite them back on another comp. Just stop comping them, but do not reverse people's comps. It's well known in the casino industry that if you are somewhere on a comp and you don't play or you barely play and you don't get offered a comp next time, that that's what happens. That's been known for decades. So, no one's going to say, oh, my God, you know, I, went to, I went to the Mohegan Sun and stayed at the Virgin Hotel, and I didn't play much, and they're not giving me another comp next month to come back. Man, that sucks. Like, someone's like, yeah, that's what happens at every hotel and casino if you do this to them. So that, that's very standard. But what's not standard is to hit people at the end of the trip with a bill because you feel they didn't play enough when they thought they were on a comp. That's not standard. And the word gets around, and you look terrible. They even had this stupid uh, no outside food plan at first, which they had to abandon because they were shamed. Now, apparently that was a, ca- a carryover from Hard Rock, but this is the type of thing you get rid of. When you're a new owner, you say, how do I bring people there? And the answer is not disallow outside food and drink. That is not the answer. The answer is not uh, you, you can't bring a cooler full of food. Now, you just let, Not many people are bringing coolers full of food and drink. Let them. If they, if they want to drag food and drink in a cooler, let them do that. Don't bitch about it. Let them bring the coolers with food and drink. It's going to be a small percentage of your clientele. You don't have to make maximum money off of each person. That's a mistake that a lot of businesses make where they just they, they get so mad when a customer gets over on them. Where they, you know, We didn't make a profit on this guy. Okay, are you making a profit on most people? Yes, then just let it go. Understand that a certain percentage of customers will be this way and that if you try to punish the customers that aren't you're not making as much from, the word's going to get around and you're going to look terrible. So just you just eat it. And they Indian casinos have a very hard time with that in general. But if you are a property that you really want people coming to that you don't have a lot to offer to get them over there, you've got to do it through good customer service and good word of mouth. What you don't want 
is to be known as the asshole property that also does not have much to offer. That's what you do not want. And unfortunately, that's the reputation they seem to have right now, whether deserved or not deserved. And from what I can see, it kind of looks deserved. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they are taking this attitude. Uh, Think about, let's say you're at a singles bar or even on a dating app or something, whatever. You, You meet a woman who's very physically unattractive and you say to yourself, you know, I'm not going to be shallow here. I, I would prefer that she's someone I'm physically attracted to. I'm not attracted to her at all. I find her very unattractive, but I'm going to give her a chance anyway. And then you talk to her and she has a really unpleasant personality and is mean and nasty to you. Are you going to go out with her? Obviously not. Now, what if she's super hot and the same thing is true? Are you going to go out with her? Maybe. Why? Because there, you see some positive in it. You, you recognize the faults, but you say, okay, I'll deal with it because of the positive. But if she's really ugly, you're going to say no. If she's average, you're probably going to say no with a personality like that. Now, if she's ugly, but she's really nice, and you have a lot in common with her, and she's fun to be with, and she's cool to be around, you may say, you know what? I actually like being with her. I don't care that I'm not attracted to her. I'm attracted to her personality. I like being with her. I'd much rather be with her than a really pretty girl who I don't really care for the personality much. And But the the, the, the girl who's like, really ugly there, she's not going to be able to have an abrasive personality and and get any men. And the same is true the other way too, with, with men with women, unless I guess unless they have a lot of money. But you know, the average dude who doesn't have a lot of money, if he is unattractive and a complete jerk, he's not going to get a lot of dates either. So you gotta bring something to the table at the point. There's got to be something about you that's good that people are going to find appealing, whether in the dating world or in the hotel world, in the casino world, if everything you're bringing to the table is mediocre or bad and there's nothing good, you're not going to bring anyone in. Now, some things are beyond your control, much like the woman who's really ugly. She can't just snap her fingers and become beautiful. But she can say, okay, well, let's look what I can work on here. Let's see how I can improve. Even if my looks can never be that good, um, maybe I can be appealing in a lot of other ways. But if you just say, hey, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll act how I want, and I'm not going to work on myself at all. And I just expect everyone to accept me for who I am, even though I'm difficult and not attractive. No one's going to want them. And that's kind of what's going on here with the Virgin, from what I've seen. That they have a lot of negatives. And instead of trying to negate this by bringing good things within their control to the table, they're, they're doing the opposite. How about a place, a restaurant that has food that is mediocre and then the service is terrible and they're rude to you? You're going to go back? Of course not. Why would you ever go back? Food's not good. The service isn't good. They're rude to you. Why would you ever go back? So if you have a place like that, then if you, there's no way to improve the food, let's say you don't have the budget to get better ingredients or hire a better chef, then you better make the service real good and better be real nice to the customers. So they're screwing this up big time. I, I just don't understand how they think they're going to work here. And this isn't rocket science. I don't know why someone didn't tell them, like, you can't do things like this, especially with a mediocre property that's not on the strip. Resorts World, by the way, is opening in 12 days on June 24th. That will be an interesting one to see. I think that's going to do very well. There's a lot of hype about it, but I think it's going to live up to the hype. I think it is going to do well. I think everybody is excited to go there. 
think everybody's excited to see a new freestanding property in Vegas that's built from the ground up. The first one in 11 years. Cosmo was the last one in 2010. It's kind of revitalizing an area of the Strip that has been dying. And I think people are ready to go to a new high-end hotel in Vegas. I think they're tired of all the ones that are around and they'd like to see something new. And they'd like to see what Resorts World brings to the table. So I, that I can see people are going to really want to go to. And they're opening up at a good time when everyone's excited to return to Vegas. Trader Ruski, uh, are you planning to go to Resorts World uh, anytime soon? Oh, he messaged me that he may not be available. Okay, well, he said he's listening, but he may not be able to talk. Okay. No, no, no. I'm oh, back. Oh, you're no, back. Okay. Could get off mute. Uh, you know, I'll, I mean, I'll definitely, I guess, stop by if I don't have to pay for parking. I don't know. <laughs> I'm in no rush to rush there, but uh, it'll be interesting to see at some point. Yeah, it will be. Well, I plan to go there soon. Let's just say that. And uh, when I go there, I will give you guys my impression. Maybe I'll even take some pictures. Though I'm sure plenty will be available online as well, not just for me. Well, let's move on to talk about a hotel I just mentioned, the Cosmopolitan, which, until Resorts World opened, is still the newest freestanding casino on the Las Vegas Strip, even though... That happened 11 years ago, but here's something that didn't happen 11 years ago. The Cosmopolitan was recently robbed. The cage at the Cosmopolitan is where the robbery took place, and the criminal was not very smart. So here is the story of what happened. A man named Ronald Allison, who's 51 years old, entered the Cosmopolitan Casino on Tuesday. Just happened uh, this week. He came at 6.30 a.m. Tuesday, walked to the cashier's cage, and handed them a note that said, Give me 10K purple or boom. I guess they understood that. To me, it kind of reads like, give me 10K purple or boom. Like, you can give me 10K in purple chips or just give me boom. I don't know what boom would be, but he he was trying to say, give me 10K purple or this place is going to go boom. And I, I guess they understood it because they gave him not 10K in purple, but they gave him uh, 5K in purple. They gave him 10 purple chips. Now, had he come to my station in the cashier cage, this is actually what I would have given him. Remember, he gave an option there. He, he said, you can give him 10K in purple or you could give him the boom. We like the cause, the cause that go boom. We're and funny and we like the boom. We like the cause, the cause that go boom. We're and funny and we like the boom. The teller at the casino cage said that he heard a loud noise when the bag was placed on the counter. So the teller actually believed that the guy maybe had an ability to make the place go boom because he heard like, like right? it wasn't like an empty bag being put down. And he said that he was afraid that his life was in danger. So 
the casino employee handed 10 chips, 10 purple chips of 500 each over to him. I don't understand why it was only 5K instead of 10K. You'd think that the boom would happen then, but the boom did not happen. Instead, the guy just picked up the bag and uh, walked out along with the chips. And what he didn't realize was that as the casino employee was getting the money together, there is a panic button under the counter. So he surreptitiously hit the panic button, which creates a silent alarm. So it doesn't make it seem like he pressed anything. And then handed the chips. And then, this, of course, alerted security to look at the video footage immediately. And so they basically followed the guy out on video. So they watched him walk out on video. They didn't chase him right away. And then using video surveillance footage of area casinos, the police were able to see where he was walking to. So he actually walked to the nearby Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which is the former Mandarin Oriental. And by the way, Waldorf has ruined it. The Mandarin was much better than the Waldorf. I've, I've been to both, both versions of the same property. It's nowhere near as good. But there's no casino there. It's one of the... I think it's the only strip hotel with no casino. But anyway, the Waldorf is where he walked over to from the Cosmo. It's not that far. And they saw in surveillance footage from other cameras on the strip, they, they basically followed him through all the footage and saw where he went. So they went. the police went to the Waldorf and found him there and arrested him. When they arrested him, they found the chips in his bag and once he was in custody, they questioned him, and he admitted that he did this. I don't think he had much choice, though. They had him all on camera. What's going to happen to him? I mean, obviously, he's in jail now. They're going to prosecute him. I'm sure he'll plead guilty. He already admitted he committed the crime. And that's the end of Ronald Allison's crime spree on the Las Vegas Strip. He said to police that he was going to catch a bus out of town, but that they got to him first. But that was his plan, to get these chips and take a bus out of town. I don't know if he was ever going to cash them in or if he was going to take the chips out of town and then bring them back later when there's less heat on him. Or maybe have a friend cash them in or something. You may wonder, is there a way to track these chips? To my knowledge, the answer is no for chips of this denomination. Even though this was kind of a dumb crime and committed in a dumb way, one thing he did that was smart was ask for $500 purple chips rather than larger denomination chips. The larger the chip, the higher chance it is that they have a way to track it or that it may even have RFID in it and they can simply turn it off or alert casino staff if anyone tries to cash it in. They also will question anyone who brings in a large chip even if there is no alert about anything. That is definitely true at all casinos of any $5,000 chip or higher, which is why I always recommend whether you're receiving this chip legitimately or not. When I say legitimately, I don't mean that you rob someone. I mean something that isn't really a crime, but is technically not allowed, such as your friend paying you back with a $5,000 chip or exchanging a $5,000 chip for smaller chips. Or you know, That is like, let's say you're, 
leaving the Bellagio, and someone says, "Hey, dude, can you sell me your your hundreds for this five thousand chip?" Well, that may seem okay, but the problem is then you try to cash in the five thousand chip, and technically, uh, it was this guy's chip, and then confiscated from you. Or if your friend owes you five thousand dollars and pay, you gives it to you as payment, if you admit this, then they can take it from you. Or if you go cash it in, they say, how did you get this? And you claim you played there, and they say when, and you tell them some bullshit, and they look it up and you're not there. They can't find any footage of you being there when you said you were there. Then again, they can take it. They don't tend to do this for $1,000 chips. So even if you have an easy explanation, they still put you through the Inquisition. It's just much better to take $1,000 denomination chips or less. But the lower the chip, the less questioning there will be. For $500 chips, there typically are no questions. For $100 chips, there's never any questions. And of course, anything lower than that, there's not either. And the belief is the, you know, the smaller the denomination, the harder it is to get these chips in any sort of uh, manner that they wouldn't want to see. Because there's only so much you can get on a large scale of chips because they're too hard to carry. But also, they have to show to the government that they're doing something about money laundering. And the way they demonstrate this is by saying, hey, look, we question anybody who brings in a 5K chip or higher. And then they can explain to the government, hey, we don't question 1K chips because they're so common it would, it would be too burdensome. So I would suggest never taking $5,000 chips. I will not take them. I will have people come to the table as I'm racking up at the Bellagio and say, hey, can you take this 5K for 5K year chips? I say, nope, can't do it. I won't take the 5Ks. They give me a hard time. I hate them. I tell people the truth. If they want to do it for 1Ks, I'll do it because they will cash out 1Ks without question. So him taking these $500 chips, all he has to do is wait some time or even better, give it to somebody else helping him and no one will be the wiser. Now, maybe if you bring a whole lot of them at once, you'll get some questions, but yeah, have someone bring in a few K at a time and he only got 5K anyway and you, you could easily get away with it. And they don't track those $500 chips. I know at the win they had RFID in all of their chips. I don't know if they still do, but most casinos don't and you can tell because they're heavier. And they had it in all the chips, not just the bigger ones. So asking for it in purple is smart, unlike some of these other robbers who stupidly demand the higher chips and then have a hard time getting rid of them. There are robberies like this every so often. This isn't super unusual in Las Vegas. The one that was best remembered in recent times was the series of robberies that was occurring at the Bellagio Poker Room and that the perpetrator, whose name was Michael Cohen, was finally killed after attempting a carjacking, and the police happened to be right there for a completely different reason, not related to him, saw it going on, tried to interrupt it, and he took the gun that he was trying to carjack with and shot at a police officer and hit him right in the chest, but the guy had a bulletproof vest on, so the guy kind of just fell back and then a different officer chased him and shot him in the back of the head and he didn't die right away, but he died shortly after in the hospital. So that was the end of Michael Cohen, a guy who was a career bank robber and then 
moved on to robbing casinos, and he really was only apprehended due to bad luck. They actually did a pretty poor job at Bellagio Security. And even when this robbery had occurred, even with the police on premises for a different reason, they still almost let the guy get away. It was only because of this carjacking. If he had just walked off, he would have gotten away. But it was because he, he didn't realize the police were right there or anything, and he, he tried to carjack someone to quickly get away. And then they saw it happening and yelled at him, and he pulled the gun out and got in the shootout and hit a cop with a bulletproof vest on, and then the cop shot him dead as he was running away. So that was the end of Michael Cohen. I covered that before on this show, the Michael Cohen thing. One of the more interesting elements of that thing to me was the fact that the police were there because of a pervert who had convinced a 12-year-old girl that he met online to meet up with him in Vegas. When her family was going to Vegas anyway, he came to Vegas too to meet up with her, and he convinced her to ditch her family. I don't know where she explained she was going, but uh, she ditched her family somehow and met up with this dude. This dude was like in his 30s, maybe even older. He was like way, he wasn't even like anywhere near her age. It wasn't like an 18-year-old meeting with her, which would still be a problem, but like this guy was not even anywhere close to being a kid anymore. There's like an older adult, and he arranged to meet her in Vegas and did. And then the family noticed she was gone, and they called the police. So the police came down to Bellagio to search for the girl, where she disappeared. So they're going through surveillance footage, and they find the pervert there with the 12-year-old girl and arrested him and, and brought the girl back to the family. So the police are, are sitting there out front by the valet area, kind of you know, looking for this pervert, just kind of waiting to get news on what's going on, and they're kind of really not paying much attention. And they had just gotten the call that they got the pervert, and then right after that call, and they're kind of letting their guard down, okay, they got him, okay, we can relax. That's when Michael Cohen tries to carjack someone after having robbed the poker room. So that's the only reason the police were right there. But security like let him walk right out, and didn't attempt to stop him as he got away with it previously doing the same thing. So it was just a coincidence that the police happened to be there standing in the valet area just in case that pervert tried to walk out with a girl. But they even had their head down because they had heard the pervert was arrested because he was arrested right before Michael Cohen tried to do that carjacking. That's a weird coincidence that got him caught. I'm sure he would have never guessed in a million years that he would be caught and shot dead because a pervert was uh, meeting a 12-year-old girl from the internet over there. Talk about a fluke. We also had on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, Darren Atterbury, also known as Darren Lara, who was falsely accused of having been this serial robber at the Bellagio because he had some similarities physically to Michael Cohen, that they were both on the shorter side with a big nose and uh, they were really pressing hard on Darren saying, we know you did it and don't go anywhere. And he started really getting nervous that they're about to get him for something he didn't do. And when it was said that the Bellagio robber was shot and was in critical condition, a lot of people started spreading around the rumor that Darren Atterbury, a.k.a. Darren Lara, was shot and was in critical condition. And then when it was said that the robber was killed and the name was still not given to the public, 
it started going around that Darren was dead. And then he, this got back to him. And he's like, crap. So he made an appearance on social media going, no, I'm not dead. No, that was not me. Yes, the police have been talking to me about it because someone had contacted them that they recognized the grainy footage and they thought it was me. And I've given alibis to the police and they just didn't seem like they were believing me. And if we had him on here, it was a very interesting interview if you want to find it. If you just Google Darren Lara Poker Fraud Alert Radio or Darren Atterbury Poker Fraud Alert Radio, you can read about this. This was in uh, 2019, the early part of 2019, I think in, in March. And he came on this show. I think this is the only place he did an interview. And it was very interesting. You got to hear what was going through his mind when he was highly suspected of a crime he didn't commit. And he was really having trouble sleeping and he was really, really getting depressed that he thought that the police were just eventually going to pin it on him and arrest him and prosecute him. Maybe he'd spend years in prison for robberies that he didn't do. Now, once Michael Cohen was shot dead in the act and they saw it was the same dude, then they knew Darren was innocent. That kind of sucked. Sucked for Darren there that he had some resemblance. Though he didn't look completely like him. There was just a similar height, similar body type, and they both had a big nose. But he was younger than Michael Cohen. But the problem was Michael Cohen was wearing a disguise. They did come pretty aggressively at Darren Lara without any kind of evidence other than kind of like looking sort of similar and someone saying it was him. So I, I did feel like from that story, the police were too aggressive on this. It's, it's one thing to investigate it. I mean, if someone reports it and he kind of matches the description, fine. It seemed to me they went too far. Like, there's a lot of people that kind of look like some criminal that weren't really the ones that did it. Okay, so I want to tell you guys about another crime that occurred involving gambling. should have done this after the Dennis Bleeden topic because it was kind of similar. But you would think you can trust... You'd think you could trust a nun with money. You would think a nun wouldn't steal. But a nun did steal, apparently. And it was for reasons of gambling. So a nun in California pled guilty to stealing $835,000 from a Catholic school to fund a gambling habit. This is in a, a U.S. District Court. Sister Mary Margaret Kruper was facing one count of wire fraud and one count of money laundering. She was 79 years old. She entered a guilty plea on Tuesday of this week. And this is part of a deal she made. She was able to embezzle $835,339 from St. James Catholic School in Torrance, California, which is very near where I grew up. And then she uh, was able to do this by um, claiming that there were certain expenses for the Catholic school that were really just for her that she used the casinos. She was the school's principal for 28 years and did this over a 10-year period from 2008 to 2018, at which point she retired. So that's how she got away with it. They didn't just notice 835 k missing. It was probably on an average 80-something a year. 
which I guess she was able to get out without them noticing, claiming to be ordering things. She was in charge of charitable donations and funds received for tuition. She also was in charge of accounts at a credit union that were used as a savings account for the school and also one that uh, paid for the nuns' expenses that were living on property. So what she did was uh, diverted the school funds into two accounts at the credit union and then also was taking out cash that she would bring to Las Vegas. She's going to be arraigned on July 1st. As I said, she already pled guilty. I have not heard of St. James Catholic School, and I, I know of Catholic schools in the area having grown up around there, but I haven't heard of St. James Catholic School. It's possible that it came to be later on, because I didn't know anyone going to St. James, and I knew a lot of people in Torrance, and I thought I knew all the schools in that area, public and private. Maybe it's a smaller one, or maybe it's new. But even a nun, <laughs> you can't trust to not embezzle for gambling. I'm going to guess she played slot machines. I don't have any information that she did, but I'm going to guess that she was a slot player, given that she's a 79-year-old female. Trader Risky, would that be your guess? Her game of choice being slots? I, oops, I, I can totally see it. Yeah. <laughs> Slots are. I guess, I guess that praying didn't pay off, huh? No, sl- slots are overwhelmingly played by women, and especially older women. And I always wonder when this is going to end. Because, yes, younger women age and become old women and seem to develop an interest in slots. But you would think there would be some generation of younger women that just don't develop that interest, and then the existing older women die off, and then there's. Nobody left to play slots, or at least not enough of them. So I wonder if slots will see their day of reckoning when the older generation is not here any longer, and when the younger generation just doesn't see the appeal in them. I know casinos were trying something to appeal to younger generations with that in mind when they were doing these skill-based slots, but they, they didn't really catch on. I didn't think they would either. In fact, I, I knew of some advantage players. In fact, one that listens to this show that I actually saw playing one of these things, that he was damn good at it. I was impressed. He, he actually played for me. I was multi-accounting in a way where I, I would play the machine and then if I got into the skill-based part where I would suck because I have no experience, he would take over because there was a way to advantage play these by both playing when they were in a certain state, when the progressive amount, even a small progressive, was at a certain level and being good at the skill part of it. It's kind of like a two-pronged thing. So they thought that maybe the skill part of it would attract the younger generation, but it didn't really work. And there's a few reasons this doesn't work. First of all, uh, it takes people time to get good at it, and this would frustrate young people when they first start playing for real money that they don't have time to get good at it. And second, that just being good at it will never make you real money. It's not like you can aspire to become so good that it can become positive expectation. The only way it's positive expectation is if you also play it only during certain conditions. So this is just not going to appeal to young people who have to work to get good at something to be less negative EV in the game. It's just not going to work. It's not going to attract people. So I don't know why they ever thought that was going to work. 
But that the reason they did these, the reason they tried this, was because of the younger generation's lack of interest in slots to such a degree that they were afraid that even as they aged, they just would not have that interest in slots anymore. Plus, I think they are seeing that the current generation of older people is not as interested in slots as previous generations were. So who knows? It's going to take a long time to see whether slot machines die. You still have a lot of old people playing, but I, I always talk about the slot tournaments, which you're typically invited to if you're a slot player, and you look at them, and they're not all by invoice, invite. You can also buy your way into them, but it's funny walking by these. You see all these like really old ladies just like clicking spin, 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 spin. Like you, you see them ra- rapidly tapping buttons, and there's all these like 85-year-old women doing it. So that gives you an idea who plays slots. And I mean, take a look at this. Next time you're in a casino, just pay attention to who is playing slot machines. And I'm talking about who's actually playing, not who has someone next to them. I mean, who's actually spinning. You'll see it's mostly women. And of the women, most of them are old. Not all. There's some younger ones playing. Some middle-aged ones playing. But most of them are old. It definitely skews very old. And I don't know if it's the simplicity or just something about it that appeals to them. I don't find slots to be that fun. I, I get bored very fast with them. But I guess, I guess some people love them. Tend to be old people. And, and don't and don't try like sitting in one of their seats or, or moving. <laughs> I played in one of those slot tournaments that they had sent me up for Golden Nugget. And I thought, you know, and I just moved. I was about to sit down. This woman looked at me like I was about to take her lucky seat and almost got hit with the cane over the head. <laughs> yeah, well, some of these old women take their slot tournaments very, very seriously. And the funny thing with slots is where people talk about loose slots and tight slots, and they are really mostly talking about a variance and don't understand it. There are slot machines that have a higher casino hold than others, for sure. But the truth is that usually when people talk about tight slot machines and loose slot machines, it's just the variance of where they just happen to be doing well at the moment. And that there is never a slot machine that is so loose that is paying out like close to even. Unlike video poker, where if you play perfectly, you can in certain pay tables, you can get close to even. Slot machines are not like that. They have a big casino hold, some bigger than others. Now, there's some machines which I feel shouldn't even be legal, like these ones with the must-hit jackpot, which like must-hit by the jackpot hits 5,000, and it's not evenly spread, where if it's at like 4,000, you have just about zero chance to hit it, and in order to pay for that must-hit, once it gets to 5,000, the odds in that slot machine of, you know, the household is super high during the time when the must hit is almost impossible to hit because they have to cover when it does hit. So because that is really, really skewed towards the very end, it's not just a random point between 4,000 and 5,000, that when it's down to 4,000 or even lower, your odds are horrendous. And most people don't realize that and play and just get destroyed in these machines. So that type of thing, I think, should be illegal because it's misleading. But really, unless you know what you're doing and you're only playing slots when you have an advantage, then slots are going to be a big loser for you. And by the way, if you're interested in learning slot advantage play, you can Google it. 
there are actually some advantage slots out there. I've talked about it before on the show, but there are known slots that you can advantage play under certain conditions. Usually not for very big money. That's why the casinos don't change them. But like gold in Egypt, that's one of them. There's a number of these that you can Google. Just Google slots advantage play and you'll find sites, reputable sites that give you instructions on how to advantage play these machines. And these are real. Like it's the advice given there is legitimate. And if you stick to their advice in the long term, you'll make money. The short term, you may not, but in the long term, you make money. The problem is you have to stalk the casino to find machines like this. And when you do, the period where it is in positive expectation mode is not very long. And then you have to have the discipline to quit when it's not. And even if you do make money, it's usually very little money unless you get really lucky. So unless you just enjoy doing it, it's not really worth it. There are some positive expectation slots that are worth doing, but it is still very tedious, and those are not always known plays. The reason things like gold in Egypt are publicized is because there's not much money in it, and there's so little money in it, the casinos don't bother to do anything to stop it. So I'm hearing they actually have some situations where casinos are actually kicking people out for stalking things like uh, gold in Egypt that if they see people like looking at what status it's in and then only sitting down when it's positive and running it and leaving, they actually will have casinos. They'll have security 86 people. So keep that in mind as well. Not happening much, but I've heard about it. Moving on, I want to tell you about a status match. I want to tell you about a status match. I always like to give out this information here. I know a lot of you are casino gamblers. And status matches are a way you can get something for nothing. That's always good. And this status match information is going around, and it's something you should know. You have to have a higher-tier card at certain properties to get this match. Otherwise, you will not get it, and this is useless to you. But this does apply to a lot of you. So here's what's going on. The win in Las Vegas is willing to match your card to a high-level win card if you have a high-level Caesars or MGM card. Unfortunately, other casinos, it doesn't seem to matter. So, like, if you have a high Venetian card, it's not going to do anything for you. But MGM M-Life or Caesars Rewards will get you a match. It is not known at this time and this is even with a June 11th update, it is not known if Encore Boston Harbor, which is a win property, will do this. You can try. You can bring your Caesars rewards to Encore Boston Harbor. The worst they'll say is no. But it's not known yet because it's a relatively new story as to whether or not Win is doing this. Also, I would not hesitate on this if you want to get this match. I wouldn't make a special trip for it, but if you're going to be in Las Vegas or maybe even in Boston, you may want to get this done now because sometimes they will retract this earlier than they claim that they are going to retract this because too many people are taking advantage of it. So even if they say that this is going to be happening for a while, sometimes they will say, you know what? No, it's getting around on the internet that everyone's doing this and taking advantage of us and effort. Supposedly, this is going to continue through August 
I'm not sure if it's August 1st or August 31st, but supposedly, and this is not verified, you have until sometime in August to do this, but again, this may not be the case. I am going to do this at my first opportunity when I'm back in Vegas. I haven't visited Vegas yet since the pandemic was over for me personally, since I got the vaccine, even though I've been vaccinated now for about a month and a half, but I just haven't made it to Vegas yet. But when I do go, I will stroll into the win and get this match done. So let me tell you what you're going to get. If you have Caesars Diamond or M-Life Gold or Platinum, you can get Win Platinum. If you have Caesars Diamond Elite, which is the higher level of diamond, it'll say it on your card, Diamond Elite. If it doesn't say Diamond Elite, you're not Diamond Elite. But if you have Caesars Diamond Elite or Seven Stars, or you have M-Life Noir, then you get the highest tier card from Win, which is called Black. So Platinum is the second highest at M-Life, or at Win, sorry. And at and then Black is the highest status there. And you can get these with the equivalent cards at Caesars or M-Life. In fact, it's interesting that even Diamond Elite will get you Black. I would think it would only be seven stars, but now you can do it Diamond Elite. That's pretty good. Um, supposedly, it, they may be actually doing it for other casino loyalty programs, but that's also not known yet. They have verified that uh, Caesars and MLife are doing it, but it's saying here in this article I'm reading that it's possible there may be others that they're recognizing for the status match. So you may want to try that too. You may want to take your highest status card, especially at a major property. Like something I would give a shot with is something like Venetian. That's a major property. If it's some minor property, like let's say you have the highest status, the Casino Royale, I wouldn't bother. Uh, Trader Risky, you may want to try with your Nugget card. What, what status are you at Nugget? Uh, you know, I, it's, it's been so while, so long with COVID. And oh, that's right. You're probably, I think I was chairman or something. I'm, okay. Yeah. yeah, I forgot you probably lapsed. Okay, well, if you get back there, you may want to, like if you get back to the higher status, you may want to take it over there and see what status you can get. But if you're Caesars Diamond, you're definitely going to get it, the Platinum. If you're M-Life Gold, you'll definitely get the Platinum, or M-Life Platinum. And then, as I said, Diamond Elite, Seven Stars, and M-Life Noir get to win black. Now, what are you going to get here? What are you going to get from these status matches? Well, basically, you'll get all the base benefits of win rewards. Base benefits meaning things that are not related to play. So are you going to get uh, comp rooms? No. Are you going to get comp meals? No. You're going to get whatever their base rewards are for each of these tiers. Now, they only have three tiers at win. The bottom one is red. You get that for signing up. Platinum is the middle one where you have to earn 7,000 of their tier credits. And then black, you have to earn 70,000 tier credits. A tier credit, I'm not sure how that is calculated at win. <coughs> I don't know their program very well, but that's how many tier credits it takes to earn each of these. But here are the benefits. That's the more important thing. It doesn't really matter what it takes to earn because you can get these right away through the status match. You get some sort of birthday credit 
for both platinum and black. I'm not sure how much, but you get some kind of birthday credit there. You get $100 to spend at the spa with platinum and 200 if you're black. That is a black card. If you're a black person, you don't get 200 unless you also have a black card. You get $150 birthday dinner credit. I don't know if this is the same as the birthday free credit. It's listed as two different things, but I don't know. I'm looking at their chart. A complimentary birthday dinner credit of $150 for platinum and 300 for the black card. That's pretty nice, as long as you're there on your birthday. So you may want to spend your birthday in Vegas. You can have a, a nice meal there. Also, in the non-monetary category, you get two complimentary win master classes for two guests. I guess they have like master chef classes and stuff like that you can take for free. So you can do this twice with two people. If you have platinum and four times, if you have the black card, you also can enter a nightclub. I don't know if it's only a one time or every time, but it is complimentary nightclub entry for two guests. I'm assuming just once, but that's only with a black card. You also get a complimentary round of golf for two people at the Win Golf Club for the black card. You can get a complimentary Encore Boston stay for three nights. Subject to availability, it says. So I assume you can't do it on super popular dates, but on probably on most dates, you can get three free nights at Boston Harbor if you have the black card. So if you're going to Boston, that might be a nice thing. And complimentary golf club shipping. So I presume that is if you are living elsewhere and you want to bring your golf clubs to play at Win. not only can you get the free round of golf, but you can also have them ship your golf clubs for free from wherever you are. Now, if you're going to drive your golf clubs in anyway, it doesn't matter, but that's something they also give to black club members. Also, you get a bonus on slot points that you earn if you're going to play slots there. For I don't know if that counts for video poker too, but it says slot points. I assume that video poker applies too. A 20% bonus and a 30% bonus for platinum and black. You have, quote, priority access to special events and promotions for both. You have priority slot service. I don't know what that would entail for platinum and black. You get priority restaurant seating at certain restaurants subject to availability for both platinum and black. You get preferred restaurant reservations for black only. You get complimentary airport transportation, complimentary late checkout upon request. These are all black benefits. You can get a room upgrade to what they call the tower suites, if available, with black. It's not a free suite, but if you book a room there, you can use your black card to get an upgrade if there's suites available. Again, it probably couldn't be done during a busy time. There's a VIP check-in room at the tower suites that you can use with your black card, and you get priority valet service with your black card. So are these as good as what Caesar 7 Stars used to be? No, not even close. If you remember Caesar 7 Star, you'd get that trip where they pay your airfare up to 1200 and they give you the $500 in food credit, and then you have the dinner you can have for $500 worth, either all at once, or you can split it up by hundreds. You can do it five times for 100 each. 
and they used to have that annual gift. And then there was the four free nights at any Caesar's property as much as you want, as long as it's separated by two days. I mean, these were tremendous benefits for standard benefits of any card. Seven stars was great at one point, but they've degraded it. There's no longer the room benefit and a lot of other things have been removed. There was also that uh, cruise benefit too, where you get the heavily discounted Norwegian cruise. I took advantage of that a number of times. So th- this is nothing like that. Even the win black card does not have all this stuff. But is this useless? No, it's not useless, especially if you're going to go to the win anyway. This is nice stuff to have. And definitely, even just for the free birthday dinner and the spa credit, I mean, like, even just a $100 spa credit, you know, just go get an hour massage. That'll cover it. I mean, I guess you have to tip, but aside from that, you'll get a free massage there, or very close to a free massage. I don't know what an hour massage is there. It might be 120 bucks, but it, it'll be very cheap or free. Even if you're not a big spa person, you might want to take advantage of that. And also, you may want this because sometimes a free card, a free upgrade, can be used to get other free upgrades. So, for example, I believe you'll probably have this for a year or six months. I'm not sure how long it lasts. You're not, you're not going to have this forever. At most, you're going to have it for a year. But oh, I see it. Yeah, it's actually going to be good for a while. It's going to be good until December 31st, 2022. That's actually really good. I thought it was going to expire at the end of this year. But no, you're going to have uh, until December 31st of next year, 2022. It claims in this article that the card will say expires December 31st, 2021. But much like the same thing that Caesars was doing, that doesn't mean anything. That just means they haven't printed the cards for the next year yet and you can just walk in anytime in 2022 and they will print you a new card with the December 31st 2022 date you have to do this in person you can't do this through email or online in any way but I would take a shot with it even if you don't have Caesars Diamond or M Life Gold or higher I would take whatever card you have especially if it's at a Vegas casino and try it and I would also try it at Encore and see if it works that's something very useful, and you might as well do it. It's free. I typically will status match when I can. One downside to status match is usually you can't do it twice. So if you think maybe you'll have use for this more in future years, then I wouldn't do it. But on the other hand, you know, like how much more useful will it be in future years compared to today? So you just might as well do it. Like, if you know you're probably not going to be in Vegas much and you think maybe you'll be more in subsequent years, then don't do it. But other than that, I say do it. Because sometimes they just won't do these anymore. For a while, MGM was matching with Caesars. I don't think vice versa was occurring, last I heard. But for a while, I know MGM was doing a status match where, like, Diamond would get you MGM Gold. I'm not sure if that's happening anymore. You may want to call them if you want to try to do that. I remember in Atlantic City, people were pulling tricks with these status matches where certain statuses were matched at certain properties. So if you did it in a certain order, this would get you a card that was recognized in certain other properties. So you could kind of do the certain order and get top cards everywhere once you had one. And then some of these places got wise to it. <laughs> People figure this stuff out. People always figure this stuff out. But yeah, it's free stuff. 
So I wanted to draw your attention to this. Yeah, apparently, I, I'm reading here, before I finish this segment, apparently they are still doing the M-Life match. So you may want to do that, too, where you can get, like, Diamond. I think Diamond will match with Gold, and then Seven Stars will match to Platinum. So if you're a Caesars, Diamond, or Seven Stars, I would also stop at any MGM property and go to the M-Life Rewards desk and get that done as well. Now, keep in mind, you can get MGM Pearl, which is the second lowest tier, you can get that by just getting the MGM free credit card if you qualify for that, which is pretty easy to qualify for. And then you will have the free parking, which really is all I need over the at MGM property. So I never bothered to look into status matches. I have like the permanent pearl. The, the one pain in the ass is that I never use that credit card. And every six months I get the ominous letter. You haven't used your credit card in six months. And if you do not use your credit card, we will close it. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, there goes my free parking. So then, then I have to go spend like a dollar on it, and then I got to remember to pay the dollar for the bill. I like the sad thing is I can't even pay the dollar up front and just take a dollar credit. It will not let me pay the bill with a zero balance. So until the dollar actually hits, actually like hits as a hard charge, I can't actually pay the dollar. But like I'll pay my phone bill for a dollar with that card because the rewards on that card suck. I just use it to keep my pearl status so I can park at MGM properties for free. So if if you want to go to MGM properties and park there, you should get that card. There's no fee. And as long as you use it once every six months, you will be permanent pearl. And then you can park to your heart's content and never be charged. Now, I even told the story on this show here, uh, probably about a month ago, that I even helped someone. I helped a babysitter who was babysitting for my sister's kids who lived somewhere in Vegas and she just didn't go to the strip much and did not realize that they were charging locals to park at the Aria. And I felt so bad for her. It was going to cost her 20 bucks, which is going to eat away at some of the profit she made from watching my sister's kids. I mean, it wasn't going to eat all of it, but you know, she wasn't making huge money. It wasn't that long of a job. So I felt so bad for her. I said, you know, I, I'll walk with you there. You can use my card. So, like, I, I used my card to get her out and then walked back. And I didn't know her, and I wasn't trying to impress her or anything. <laughs> I just I just felt bad for her. I, I didn't want MGM to get $20 of her own money because she came over to babysit my sister's kids. So I think my sister even offered, hey, I'll just give you the $20. Says, no, 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 no. We're not giving MGM anything. I will walk with her and uh, get her the free parking. So I did. But even if my sister hadn't offered it, I wasn't doing this to save my sister money. I was just I just didn't want to see MGM get the money, either from her or my sister. Like the second I heard that, I'm like, okay, I, I got to help here. So I just wanted to let you guys know that. Let's move on to the next topic here. This is a long-ass show. 6 a.m., oh my God. I knew this was going to be a long show. That's why I, I, I told Brandon, I'm like, we can't do your Vegas topics. I mean, this is kind of a Vegas topic. Well, it is a Vegas topic, but I like... That I, I told Brandon we're just not going to have time to have him come on and present all his Vegas topics as, my, as much as I love having him on. I just knew we had so many things on the agenda already. All right, so our final topic is about hydroxychloroquine. We're not going to talk real long about it, but you probably remember last year, this was probably the most uh, politicized drug in the history of pharmaceuticals. And that was because Trump was very pro-hydroxychloroquine 
and was promoting it, which was stupid. I mean, he shouldn't get involved in this. Trump is not a doctor. He's not an expert in this, and he he should not be pushing this. But he was trying to do this not to pump up hydroxychloroquine or make it uh, successful or because he was trying to make money. There were people saying, oh, he owned stock in the company. It turned out he owned like $100 worth of stock, so obviously that wasn't going to do much for him. He wasn't doing this to gain financially or to do anyone any favors. He was trying to do this because he wanted to give people optimism that there was some hope that COVID wasn't just a death sentence for some people. But the problem was that there was not a therapeutic that was reliably stopping COVID. And if you were destined to die with COVID, you were going to die. So for him to say prematurely that hydroxychloroquine is the right thing to do and that it's very uh, positive what we're seeing of it, like he, he just shouldn't get involved. He should let the experts make the statements on this. He shouldn't be making the statements because he didn't know. He was just uh, trying to say something that sounded good. And then he kind of married himself to it because the media started making fun of this and giving him a hard time about it. So then he, as Trump always did, then he had to dig his heels in and double down that this is effective. And then it really became a narrative where the right wanted to prove that hydroxychloroquine is effective and the left wanted to prove it was not, which is stupid because if you think about it, we should just want to know the truth. If it is helpful, then we should be honest that it's helpful and it should be administered to those that it would help. And if it's not helpful, then we should not use it. And we should be honest about that as well. So we should just put out the truth about hydroxychloroquine, not what is going to help Trump or hurt Trump. But unfortunately, you had the right wanting hydroxychloroquine to be great. And you wanted the left actually rooting against it being good, which I found was bizarre because it seemed to me like they, some people on the left would rather see people die than have Trump be right about this. Well, the research on the matter was actually mixed at the time in 2020. There was some research saying that hydroxychloroquine did provide some benefit. And there was research saying that it was useless. In fact, there was even some other research saying that it does more harm than good. So there were a lot of dueling studies about this. And people didn't know what to believe. Something that was basically universally accepted by the scientific community was this was not a miracle cure. This was not, if you get COVID, take hydroxychloroquine and make you better. This was a thing where if it's used with other therapies with very seriously ill patients, ones like on the verge of death, does it reduce their chance of dying and increase their chance of recovery? This was not, oh, I have COVID, let me just take my hydroxychloroquine and I'll be good. I was hoping something like that would show up, but to this day, we don't have anything like that. There's there's no treatment for COVID that you can do that you're highly likely to just get better and have no symptoms or something that's going to virtually guarantee you're not going to die from it. And that's why we are still having COVID deaths. You, you can look and we're still having hundreds of COVID deaths per day in the U.S. And some of these are people who've had it for a while and some of these people are, are getting it new. These are people who aren't vaccinated, the vast majority of them. And they're still dying because there are people, especially ones who are old or in very bad condition, that COVID is going to kill and that these therapeutics are just not going to work or they're not going to reliably work where they can be sure they're going to take it and be okay. But we haven't heard much about hydroxychloroquine recently because it was generally accepted that 
it turned out this wasn't all that great. In fact, it may have been useless. So that was the narrative. But the thing that bothered me was not that this was what the conclusion was in 2020 because of these mixed studies. Because if that's what the studies say, that's what the studies say, even if it's mixed, like you do become skeptical that if it's so good, how come there's some studies that show it's not helping? But what bothered me was that even considering that hydroxychloroquine could be effective was heresy. There was heresy. It was considered something very taboo to say. It was considered anti-scientific. It was considered that you're just an idiot Trump supporter who's only saying it's good because Trump likes it. And any scientists, even people who have the proper credentials to say this and to actually have uh, a valuable opinion on the matter, I'm not talking about people like myself who are not uh, scientists that study this sort of thing, that uh, I can go by what I've seen in other people's studies, but I don't have the personal expertise on it. I'm talking about scientists who do. Anyone that did say that they were pro-hydroxychloroquine, they were really, really ostracized for it, the same way people were ostracized for pushing that lab lab leak theory for the origin of COVID. There was certain dogma, there was certain orthodoxy involving COVID narratives that if you agreed with what people on the right were saying, that not only were you shunned and made fun of and put down and treated like a pariah, but often you were censored from places like Twitter and Facebook or warning levels, or warning labels were put on your posts that you were distributing misinformation. If you tried to post that hydroxychloroquine is actually effective, if you tried to post this on Twitter, you often got your post deleted and you got a warning. If you posted it on Facebook, it would either be deleted or you'd get a misinformation warning placed on your post that everyone would see and you'd look like a fool well lo and behold guess what hydroxychloroquine actually looks like it is useful it is not a miracle cure but for those who are in very bad shape and on a ventilator and near death it looks like that hydroxychloroquine was indeed useful According to a recent study, which is now studying a much larger group of people over a larger period of time, because they were still using this. There were some doctors that were still using it. Nobody was forbidden to use it. Doctors could prescribe this if they wanted. The triple therapy of hydroxychloroquine, the antibiotic known as azithromycin, and zinc combined, if you combine all three of these, that this would give you a 200% better chance of survival than if you did not take this stuff. So apparently this was very helpful if you were in very bad shape, that your chance of survival was increased by 200%. Now, obviously that doesn't mean 200% of people survive. That wouldn't even make sense. But whatever the chances were of survival once you're on a ventilator and you are in critical condition due to COVID-19, if this is administered to you, your chance of surviving went up by 200%. So let's say your chance of survival was 2%, it would go up to 6%. Your chance was 20%, it would go up to 60%. I'm just making up numbers here, but that's the way it worked. A 200% increase. 
I'm not saying it doubled your chances. That'd be a 100% increase. I'm saying a 200% increase with this triple therapy, which included hydroxychloroquine. Now, it was seen that just hydroxychloroquine was not doing it. But it was also seen that just these other two without hydroxychloroquine was not doing it. That it was these three together, of which hydroxychloroquine is an important part, was very useful for critical COVID patients. I don't know about people who are not critical COVID patients, people who have COVID and maybe uh, have only moderate symptoms or people with kind of severe but not uh, yet deadly or critical symptoms, like someone who checks into the hospital with some breathing problems, but it hasn't gone beyond that. Or maybe someone at home who doesn't have breathing problems yet, but is in very bad shape with COVID uh, as far as like super sick and super fatigued and can barely get up to go to the bathroom. Uh, Anyone like that, I don't know if this triple therapy will help or if it can reduce the recovery time. I've heard rumors that it can, but I didn't see it in this study. But definitely with the people who were in critical condition, it helped. And now this is starting to become accepted. But hey, what what do you know? It, It wasn't a miracle cure, but it was helpful for people who were in really bad shape. Hmm. Now... I understand this is mid-2021. This is not 2020. We've had more time to study it. There were some studies in 2020 that, for whatever reason, showed that it was not helpful. There were a few studies that showed it was even harmful overall. So I'm not saying that there was something wrong that we didn't get more of a conclusion on this earlier, because some of these things you have to wait for some time before seeing more data And once you see more data, then it becomes clear what the truth actually is. But my problem was how this theory was shut down. Something that ended up being true was shut down. You couldn't discuss it on social media. The mainstream media would not cover it. In general, if you said that you felt this was helpful, then you were mocked and you were considered anti-science. You were considered a Trump drone. And it's stupid because this shouldn't have to do with Trump. And yes, I know this is somewhat of Trump's fault for attaching himself so much to it, but the other side doesn't have to play that game. The other side doesn't have to say, well, we're going to hate it because Trump likes it. The other side can say, Trump should not be saying this until he has enough data. Trump is being irresponsible saying this without enough information on this. You can say that while also saying, but you know what? Maybe it helps. We just don't know yet. Maybe it helps, but we're, we're not going to shame anyone who feels this way. And if you're in the camp that you like hydroxychloroquine, you think it's got potential, we're not going to say anything bad about you. We're just saying that Trump shouldn't be making the statement at this time. That's not his area of expertise. And as the president, he should be more responsible. And I'd agree. I agree Trump should not have been promoting this, even if it's to make people feel better or feel more confident or, or not feel as hopeless. He still shouldn't have said this. So I'm not defending... Trump's remarks about it because he did it from a place of ignorance. But it turned out he was right. <laughs> and and you may say, well, he just lucked into being right, and I'd agree with you. But where he wasn't lucking into being right is he did state that he liked what he'd seen of the results so far. And these results at that time were worth studying and not just dismissing because Trump liked them. And that's what happened. Trump liked those results, so at that point... Anyone who agrees is a moron. And that's not the way it works. 
you can think very bad things about Trump. You can think he's a moron. But that doesn't mean everything he says is wrong. And it was treated that way. Anything he said was wrong. The lab leak theory, oh, it's got to be wrong. Trump said it. It's got to be because of racism, not because maybe it's true. Hydroxychloroquine is helpful. No, 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 no. Trump said it. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. It's got to be false. But what about the scientific studies that, oh, no, 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 no. We have these other ones that say it's not good. So let's forget about the ones that say it was good. Just, just assume the other ones are right. Like, shouldn't we be curious why some studies are showing it's good and some are showing it's not? Shouldn't we want to find out the truth? That's what I wanted. I was never attached to hydroxychloroquine. I, I was never one of these people saying that uh, this is the miracle cure and the left and the media are suppressing it. I, I said this is something that needs to be looked at. And I've seen some encouraging things and I've seen some discouraging things, but we need to look at it and take it seriously and not just dismiss it because Trump likes it. I've seen so many things that occurred in 2020 where there was censorship on social media because it was something that either Trump liked or that would help Trump that it turned out the truth was being censored. Think of Hunter Biden's laptop. That was something that shouldn't be censored. That turned out to be true. Why was that censored? So I don't feel any of this stuff should be censored. I don't feel that stories that make the right look bad should be censored. I think they should all be presented as well. I do not think it is the responsibility of social media to censor so-called misinformation. That if people are going to say false things on their platform, let them. And then let others respond by saying, no, this is not true. Here's why. The most important things that we shouldn't let happen is, number one, ideological censorship of any kind, and number two, suppression of scientific study because it might come up with a conclusion that doesn't meet our politics. There should never be suppression of scientific study. You should not suppress any study because you're afraid the conclusion will make a certain race look bad or make a certain sexual preference look bad or make a certain uh, narrative of what we need to do in government policy that it would make that look bad and make people not want it anymore. No, we, there should never be any suppression of scientific study. Now, there can be useless areas of scientific study where the, the basis of studying it, uh, there's no point other than to try to uh, create controversy and that there's no upside to the study no matter what you find that i can see meeting criticism but to actually want to suppress study that is going to come to a conclusion you just don't like that's really bad and that you, a society cannot progress with that sort of situation going on so by an example is if you were to go to a university if you're a, well, not go to one, if you're a scientist working at a university and you want to study whether it is harmful for teens, for teens under 18, to transition genders and for kids who are younger than teens to transition genders, if you want to study whether them doing this is a good or bad thing and whether there is any harm in, uh, transition by minors if you want to see if that does more harm than good 
overall. If you want to study that and really honestly study it, not with any kind of conclusion in mind that you want to get to, but just you're really curious if this is if the positives outweigh the negatives or vice versa, you try to do that study at university, they won't let you. They, they will, you will be ostracized. You will be told that this is transphobic, that you're a bigot, that you're not allowed to study this. And good luck with your career if you do. Why? I mean, shouldn't this be known? We have a lot of minors who are saying they want to transition. And shouldn't we ought to know why so many do all of a sudden and whether these are really people with gender dysphoria who would benefit from it or if this could be very harmful to them? And if a lot of them shouldn't be doing this at that age? Shouldn't we be studying whether that's the right thing to do or whether it's harming people? So why would anyone suppress a study like that? But seriously, try, try to do that at university. Try to, go, go see how many universities are allowing that study. And there's lots of reports of uh, the few scientists that are brave enough to try to do it, and they are told no. They're not allowed to do it. And there's many others like this. Because it doesn't meet with the politics of the community. They do not want a conclusion that is going to be negative. And yet I see a lot of studies where it's very clear, and you can see from the abstract of the study, it's very clear that the people doing the study already have a result in mind they want when they start it. And that's terrible science also. No scientific research should ever be done where those who are studying it really want to see the conclusion land one way. There should be as much neutrality as possible in studies where really the goal should be, I want to know the truth rather than I'd like to see X or Y is true, especially if it's for political reasons or social reasons. It's one thing if you're studying if a medication works and you say, hey, if, it wor- if it's true that it works, it saves lives. Okay, yeah, you can want that as long as you're willing to not let that color how you actually go about the study. But if, you, if you're studying something really from a, a social standpoint or that has social or political implications and you already have a very strong opinion on that matter before you begin the study, you shouldn't be doing the study. I don't care if you're left or right. That's bad science. And that harms society. Society can't progress when that is the way scientific studies are done or when scientific studies are suppressed or not allowed or strongly discouraged because they don't want to see certain conclusions reached that might help the other side. And as far as speech on social media or theories on social media, It's like some people are learning for the first time that a side effect of free speech is that there will be some misinformation always. There will always be misinformation out there when there's free speech. It's unavoidable. That is a side effect of free speech. If your goal is to have zero misinformation out there, then you don't want free speech. But the suppression of free speech, the consequences of that are much worse than the existence of misinformation. So you're taking a much lesser negative to get a big positive. Fascism has never risen when 
the society is a fully free speech society. Never once. Go, go find a time in history that a fascist regime has risen to power while free speech is being allowed. Full free speech. Never. Can't happen. Because free speech is the enemy of fascism. Some people think that fascism means right-wing authoritarian rule. No, it does not mean right-wing. There can be left-wing fascism just as easily. So free speech should always be protected. And it shouldn't matter the politics of those who are unhappy with what's being said. It, it, you need to have the right to say it. You need to have the right to present controversial opinions and theories. And there needs to be discussion. People need to be able to see that information. You can't say, well, this is misinformation. This, this, you know, this is just confusing people. You're, you're making people think the wrong thing. You're, you're making people feel like certain things are true which aren't, and it's harming them. So we have to protect them from these people who are spreading these lies. No, because that becomes censorship, and it becomes more dangerous than anything the misinformation can do. I'll admit misinformation does have negative consequences, and we don't want it. But it's impossible not to have some of it with a free speech society. But you get so many benefits from a free speech society. And having a full free speech society prevents so many bad, harmful, and corrupt things from occurring that it's worth the misinformation that also spawns from it on the side. And somehow, there are certain people in the 2020s who think they have figured out the magical solution to have both free speech and a suppression of misinformation at the same time. We're going to leave, we're going to let you say what you want, but we're only going to censor it if it's misinformation. Ah, solved it. No, you didn't. No, you did not. No way to do that because misinformation is subjective. So what you think is misinformation may not be. And what the other guy thinks is misinformation may not be. So you have to be very careful with that. And there's no way to do it. There's no way to only censor misinformation without accidentally censoring things that are true. And when you accidentally censor things that are true, then you are suppressing free speech. And that is how fascism arises. That is how you end up in a fascist society which became that way because everyone was being protected from speech they shouldn't hear because it's too dangerous. That's exactly how it progresses. You may say it can't happen here, but it can. This is an example. We're, we're not living in a fascist society yet, but this is an example. I'm, I'm telling you things that were said to be so ridiculous last year that we shouldn't even discuss them. That they need to be suppressed from social media. They need to be completely dismissed and scrubbed from any polite conversation because all they're doing is confusing people and making horrible things happen. Can't talk about the lab leak theory because that's creating anti-Asian American racism and uh, there's Asian people being killed and beaten up so we, we can't discuss this. We can't discuss hydroxychloroquine because people will abuse it and, and, and take it in ways they're not supposed to and people will die and... and uh, People will act reckless about COVID because they think there's a cure. So we can't talk about it. It just doesn't work. Even though there's some studies that say they do, we just forget about those. We, just, we, we can't talk about it. We can't talk about Hunter Biden's laptop because uh, I'm not sure why, but somehow that's 
a forbidden subject, at least before the election. Why? How come a year later we know all these things were true and we weren't allowed to discuss them last year? Why is that? Is that good? Is that good that we had that suppression, that censorship? No. And I've been very consistent that I don't want to see censorship of any type. I do not want to see censorship against the left. I want the left to be able to say what they want, even things I completely don't agree with. I do not want to see the left censored for, quote, misinformation. I want just everything to be put out there, and then whatever is misinformation can be called out. And yes, you will have certain people that will not be convinced and will believe the wrong thing, and that will always happen. But the alternative is much, much worse. And you may think you're following the science. You may think that you're the logical one. You're believing the experts. Uh, but sometimes the experts are wrong. Sometimes the experts aren't the experts you think they are. And that is no reason to suppress the alternative, the alternate point of view. Because sometimes that's the correct point of view, and you need to be able to consider both. And you know what? Even with stories having to do with poker and gambling, I will always try to look at all points of view and figure out what the truth is, not what the truth is that I want to believe or the truth that most people believe or the truth that will get me more likes on Twitter and Facebook, but the actual truth. I always seek to get the actual truth. And I think it's important that that can always be expressed. The actual truth about this show is it was on too long. I have to shut it down. I was hoping I wouldn't be up till this time doing this show, but I, I was. And here we are. You still with us, Trader Risky? I had a great night's sleep, Trump. I'm uh, still here. Uh, I, I, didn't. <laughs> I, I did not. As you guys have noticed, we've been on Friday for several weeks in a row. We should continue that for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing and not doing. Something that is exciting is that California is having its like full opening on June 15th. I've been counting down the days from like three days away now till June 15th when the state no longer is going to mandate a lot of the distancing and masking requirements and therefore businesses will be able to open in the manner they choose. They won't be restricted if they want to continue with these restrictions, they can, but a lot of them won't want to. And as a fully vaccinated person, I welcome that because I would like to do some things normally and not this kind of weird way that I find restricted. Uh, Rumdick, who donated $50 this week and $50 for next week, which I appreciate to our free roll, he is someone who is on the left politically, but he lives in the San Diego area. And he claims that where he lives, he doesn't notice any difference, that like everything's normal. He doesn't know what I'm complaining about. I'm like, well, I haven't been to San Diego, but I, I can tell you that here I see a lot of things that have restrictions. I can enter all these businesses. I'm not seeing shutdowns, but I am seeing that there's capacity restrictions, there's masking requirements, and there are 
various rules in place that are put there by the state government, so I can't imagine it's any different than San Diego, and sometimes the local government too. But these are going to be lifted on January 15th. So I'm not quite understanding how he's just seeing complete normalcy unless he's just going to do different things than I am. But I pretty much see it everywhere. And I think some of this is unnecessary at this point. But I'm just glad it's going. Like, Trader Risk, have you noticed that things are, like, not completely back to normal? I know you're in California also. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that. I mean, I think people are going out. You know, I think the people still just put the mask on when they go in stores. Most of them, I'd say. Well, you have to at the moment is the problem. It's, it's not right. If, if people want to, I don't care. Like if you, if you if others want to wear a mask, and I'm not because I'm fully vaccinated and I don't feel the need to. If someone wants to wear it anyway, whatever, that's their choice. It doesn't bother me. Uh, what what uh, the problem is is I, I can't like. There's been so many times I'm about to go into the store or some other business I'm visiting, and I get almost to the door and I go, "Shit, I, I didn't bring my mask." And I have to run back to the car and grab the mask, which 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 isn't doing anyone any good. It's not me doing me good. It's not doing them good. But I've got to do it because that's the law, and they have to enforce it, and they have to make sure people wear masks in there. So I, I never complain about it because I, I know the reason. I know the reason is that the state is requiring it, and then even after the fifteenth, when the state won't be requiring it. If they want that to be the rule of their business, then fine. And if I don't like that, I don't have to go to that business. I have to imagine most of them are not going to do it anymore because it's it's just a pain in the ass for the customers, and they they want to. The point of a business is to make money, and if customers will want to come more often, if they don't have to adhere to these restrictions, they will. Uh, one of the things I've stayed away from has been the local card rooms. I haven't gone to Commerce, I haven't gone to the bike, I haven't gone to the Hustler, I haven't gone to any of these because I don't want to sit there in, in a mask. While I'm playing poker, it's uncomfortable, and I also don't want to be restricted from having a bottle of water or anything else next to me. You just have to sit there with no food, no drink, and a mask on. It seems very unpleasant. I'm just going to stay home and play online. So I, I miss live poker. I haven't played online. I haven't played live poker since like February 1st of last year, and I'd love to sit down in a poker room and play live hands of poker. Even though I've been playing online all this time, it's different. I, I miss live poker. So I really am looking forward to returning. I haven't gotten any confirmation that like, commerce is going to be rolling back all the restrictions, but I have to imagine that that's what they're going to do. I don't think commerce is doing this because they want everybody to be so safe. I think they're doing it because this is required of them, and that's the only way they can be open. So I, I'm looking forward to these being, restri- these being lifted, and I've actually gotten more faith in the vaccine's effectiveness over time, just because I, I've... And I knew this could very easily happen because now we have a lot of people vaccinated in this country and you get to see what's happening with them. So are people ending up in the hospital with COVID who've been fully vaccinated? A few, but not many. Are people dying with COVID after being fully vaccinated? A few, but not many. And in fact, the ones dying are mostly people who have uh, major uh, immunosuppression to where it's not surprising, where I don't have that. So it's not going to happen to me, most likely. And and also, you have to imagine a lot of them are very old or have some other problems that I don't have. And even people who are getting very sick with COVID, who aren't going to the hospital, you're not seeing much of it. You're seeing some people who are getting sick with COVID, much less than before who are 
asymptomatic or have very light symptoms. That seems to be, for the most part, the worst people are getting, and most are uh, either not knowing they have it or not getting it at all. So it, it seems very encouraging. It seems like a very high percentage who have been fully vaccinated have excellent outcomes where COVID is basically not a concern for the moment. So that has changed my thinking on, uh, you know what, maybe I should stay away from something like a poker room to, yeah, I'm going to go to the poker room. Like this, this seems like a good time to go. It's fairly recent since I got vaccinated, so it should be very strong. So if it does wear off, it definitely hasn't happened yet. And there's no variant to be scared of right now that is breaking through the vaccine in the U.S. or really anywhere. So I feel confident enough to return and play poker live, to go to Vegas and go to casinos, and to play at the World Series of Poker when it comes in October. And I look forward to that as well. I see pictures of the World Series of Poker, not even of me, just like of people playing at the World Series. And they go, oh, yeah, I remember those chips. Yeah, I look forward to having those chips in front of me again, those World Series chips. And the excitement of, will I, wear, will I win a bracelet here? Will I run deep here? Will I make a lot of money here? Like, I always have that excitement. It doesn't always pan out that way, but even just like going to sit down at your first event of the year, just knowing you've registered and bringing that registration card and walking into the Amazon room or the pavilion room, whatever it is you're going to play in, and know you're sitting down to a World Series event. There's a certain excitement to it I have every year that I look forward to, and I'm, I'm going to do it this year. I thought maybe I wouldn't be playing this year and that maybe my first year back would be 22 when I'd be playing the seniors event, but no, I'm going to have one more year not eligible for the seniors event, and then Trey Ruski, I'm coming for you in that event. In, in 22, when I'm 50. I'll be waving. Yeah, maybe we'll get at the same table for the first time ever. We still have not had that yet. Yeah, I'm going to be attacking that seniors event. I'm going to be... Uh, the, you know what? I, I've had very good luck Like when I play a new event. Now, a seniors event's not a new event, so maybe it won't apply here. This will be the first time I qualify for an event that I previously couldn't qualify for. But any event I am playing as a new event... I tend to do well that first time. And I guess that even applies to the whole World Series. Like my first two events, I got third and first. So I, I, I have a good feeling next year about the seniors event that I'm going to come there and just rip through these, these seniors there who may be close to my age like you, but still. Uh, the, these old people that I will consider myself the exception. I'm the young 50-year-old that's going to wipe the floor with you guys. I'm going to sit down and go, I don't feel 50, and you guys are 50 or older. And even if most of this field is between 50 and 60, I'm still going to feel good. And there's no young guys to pick on me. That's the big part. None of these young punks who are trying moves on me because I'm not young like they are. They will not be allowed. But this year, I will still be one of those young punks who cannot play the seniors event yet. My final year as a 49-year-old, then I will be in my 50s. All righty. Well, those are my plans for the remainder of this year. Hopefully COVID doesn't take some weird turn and screw that up. Not just for my sake of the World Series, but for the world's sake. be so nice to return the world to normal. I think everybody's had enough of this. Thank you for coming on, Trader Ruski. And... Uh, it's always nice to have you join me uh, towards the end of the show. And uh, if you want Brandon to be back on the show, 
should happen next week. I I was the one who told him that uh, we just have so much to do, and we did. Look at what time it is here. I'll read a few texts before I shut it down here. From the 314, 635 Central, that is 435 uh, Pacific, that was quite some time ago now, but just seeing it now. Druff the Marathon Man keeps going and going, just incredible. Thank you. Then a little bit later, in regards to Dennis Bleeden, he texted, uh, Federal, he'll do 85%. 78 months less 15% equals 66.5 months. If he takes addiction program, it'll shave off another 12 months. So real time equals 54.5 months. Yes, that's not good. That's like four and a half years. That's way too short for what he did. From the 641, where's Brandon? Yeah, I just explained that. Like, I feel kind of bad telling Brandon, like, we're probably not going to have time for your Vegas stuff. I just, I just know what, Ve- what, what Brandon likes about this show and what he doesn't like about the show. And Brandon's like burnt out with the poker topics and he kind of is bored by them. And he loves talking about Vegas stuff. And I just said, you know, we have a, a little Vegas stuff here. We just don't have that much. And the stuff you bring is going to be too much on top of what I already have here. So so he said, no, I'll, I'll come back next week. He said to me, that's fine. Just waking up anyhow. I'll come on next week. Thanks for keeping me updated. So we, we should have him back next week. And hopefully we'll have the Sharif update at that time. I just knew we had too much here. Too much happened. All right. Thank you for coming on, Trader Risky. Thanks, Trap. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Ha! It was long. I will get this up in the archives when I can. But, you know, as longer shows, they take longer to edit. My throat hurts right now. Talked way too much. Maybe I have to just keep these shorter. I saw this big list and I said, you know, I'll try to go through these topics quickly and I, I just couldn't. We had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen topics this week and. A lot of them were, like, fairly lengthy. So that's how this happens. I didn't feel like I wasted a lot of time on anything. I just kind of think we had a lot to talk about. Some of you love this stuff. Some of you get to download this long show and go, Oh, cool. I have a lot to listen to. We'll know by next week what happens with the Veronica Brill, Mark Randazza attorney's fees hearing involving Possel. That should be interesting. Look for that on the Sacramento court website on the 15th. And then on the 16th, you can watch the proceedings on the court YouTube channel. So that will be pretty fascinating to watch. And hopefully the Venmo hacker like isn't into my account. It's kind of hard to tell because he has nothing he can do there. He's probably getting it. Go, what the fuck? This guy has zero. He has no bank account. I thought this guy is like a successful poker pro. What the hell? Why am I hacking this guy? Uh, who is Nicholas Scheel? If you know who Nicholas Scheel is, please let me know. I'm trying to figure this one out. All right. Talk to you next week. Shalom. Shalom.